Another year of gaming spreads out behind us like a particularly explosive trouser accident, and so it once again falls to me to nominate the games that were best, the games that were worst, and the games that fell asleep after one thrust and left me to wander an unfamiliar neighbourhood without even money for an Uber. And oh, what an embarrassing oversight. I seem to have run out of weeks in the year before I could get around to Smash Brothers Ultimate. Oh well, if it makes you feel better, I wouldn't have put it in any of my top fives, unless I came up with another new one, like top five games for simultaneously giving yourself epilepsy and carpal tunnel syndrome. Perch my perineum on a pole if it wasn't a struggle to pick a whole five good games from this year. In the end, weighing up several possibilities for fifth best, I had to conclude I had most enjoyed Unavowed, the well-realised paranormal adventure that hopes you've never read a Jim Butcher novel. But before the AGS community starts getting smug, this is more an indictment of the year. I had no trouble filling in my other candidate lists, they both rolled on like fucking Ubisoft credit sequences. Oh, that Yahtzee Croshaw, I hear them say. He's that old fogey who just alternates between pissing on every new AAA game and sucking indie dick. Not so, detractors. I'll have you know there's piss enough in my balls for every class of game. Hence my fifth blandest game being indie Kickstarter excretion Moonlighter. Just for being a painfully generic pixel art dungeon crawler whose one unique gameplay idea had all the depth of a Netflix true crime documentary. <laughs> Well, let's get the obvious one out of the way quickly, and if every year passes that a new David Cage game doesn't get onto my shit list, then load the family dog with drinking water and canned goods, cause civilization is officially over. Detroit Cumstain, a hack writer who has convinced themselves and others that they're some kind of bold game narrative auteur, is bad enough, but when they think they're being profound, it's a McChicken bad witch with a chocolate milkshake. It's gonna have to be Star Control Origins. However buggy the interface or dog shit the subtitle and whatever drama might have been going on behind the scenes, the game is well written, fun, and not afraid to be silly. Remember when science fiction could be fun and silly, when something occupied the middle ground between dry realistic simulators and overly dramatic struggles for the fate of humanity with constant laser explosions until it looks like a rave in an anger management clinic? Now, as any parent of young children will tell you, it's nice when they play together, but forcing them to do so is a highway to screams, resentment, and sky dancers in the eye socket. It's a particularly bad idea to force us to play together to experience your mediocre string of sub-David Cage, slow-time events and movie cliches a way out. Oh Christ, sub-David Cage, that's a new low, isn't it? That's a limbo dancing contest at the geothermal power plant low. But I digress, blimey that dude had a big nose. <laughs> The main benefit of crowdfunding is simultaneously its main problem. It's a marketplace of ideas, but sometimes only putting an idea into practice can reveal it to be sputtering jizz on a hot skillet, and then you can't just ditch the project because it's already paid for. What must have gone through the minds of the We Happy Few developers as their great idea for a procedural immersive RPG with social stealth elements gradually shaped up to be tosh? Better keep it in early access another year while we finish writing the apology letters. While I refute the accusation of being an indie knobgobbler, it is true that I try to limit AAA presence in my top five because they can get perfectly good hand jobs from literally anywhere else. But lest I be accused of pretentiousness, yeah, Marvel Spider-Man was a good game with a stimulating core gameplay loop and in contrast to the other really big releases like Red Dead Redemption 2, exhibited a considerably more restrained use of horses' buttholes. Ubisoft sandboxes most definitely have a permanent booking at the Blandford Heights Hotel, but I think Assassin's Creed Odyssey deserves particular mention for being the Assassin's Creed game that finally made me bored of the whole sordid business. Assassin's Creed 3 didn't do that with its pulse-pounding document-signing action, but Odyssey did it by forcing me to spend an hour chipping away at a Minotaur with a sword that I wasn't convinced hadn't been replaced with a sword-shaped novelty bath sponge. <laughs> 
It may interest you to know that all three of my lists this year feature a survival game, and furthermore the worst game lists entry isn't Fallout 76, for all its greedy corporate buggery, misuse of beloved established IP, and being just plain boring and shitty to play after all that, there was another game that beat it on all three of those fronts. Look no further than Metal Gear Survive. You can't look any further anyway cause you'll be too busy wincing and tearing up. So we go straight from worst survival game to best. Pay attention every other survival game because here's how Subnautica title drop stands out from the crowd. Not using a focus on exploration and crafting as an excuse to skimp on good story, a beautiful exotic world so utterly hostile that you want to keep surviving largely out of spite, and most importantly no other cocking human players. Human contact is like Joss Whedon's Firefly, I tried it once or twice but it's not really my thing. Rise of the Tomb Raider was my third most mediocre game of 2015, and now Shadow of the Tomb Raider has made it proud by hitting the number two spot. Now that the reboot trilogy has finished sandblasting the personality off Lara Croft, any chance we could go back to the old one? She might have been constantly pouting like she was trying to conceal an entire Portuguese man of war in her mouth, but at least that was a facial expression of some kind. <laughs> There are some bad games that are bad because they fail in what they set out to do, and then there are those that are bad because they succeed, because what they set out to do was gross and dumb. Agony would have been bad enough with its terrible design and confusing story, but did they really have to construct the entire game world out of moist vaginas? I mean I normally like vaginas, but now I'll never be able to look at a pulled pork sandwich the same way. Well, my 2018 Game of the Year should come as no surprise, since I've recommended it to every person, dog and houseplant I've conversed with since it came out. Lucas Pope's Return of the Obra Dinn is the kind of thing that restores a man's faith in artistic game design by using an original and engaging core mechanic to tell a story in an utterly unique way. Also, if for whatever reason you need samples of death rattles from brawny European sailors, you won't find a better source, you weirdo. But for the year's blandest, we return to the world of survival games, as well as the world of full frontal nudity. And it doesn't get much blander than the game that would have me grind up 200 rocks to build a fucking rabbit hutch, Conan Exiles. Not even titties could liven this one up, mainly because playing colon textiles for the nudity would have been like tying a bungee cord to yourself and trying to use a fleshlight at the far end of a very long corridor. <laughs> The worst game of 2018 was, like the devil and weird sex practices, known by many names. The seven hour snore, hunt down the refund, shit down the piss shit, call it whatever you like, just never forget what hunt down the freeman was and what it represented. A cringe fest that unstitched its thoughtless patchwork of stolen assets to whip out its diseased knob and dispense blood flecked urine all over a once top rate franchise with the tacit approval of its creator. Fuck, man, what else is there to say? I suppose I could say fuck again. No, that's the wrong attitude. It's a new year after all, let's move on from the past and focus on what the future will bring. Fuck! Well this is what they call making a rod for your own back, I suppose. See, Smash Brothers on the Wii U came out and the usual suspects all scurried at my garden path waving it, but I slammed the door and went, sorry, much as I'd love to join you in Nintendo's paddling pool full of self-satisfied cum, there's no single player content, so damn, hands tied, if only I liked multiplayer games and wasn't quite so good at alienating people. So now of course Smash Brothers Ultimate comes out with a story mode and I can't use that excuse anymore. Back up the garden path they come. Oh please review Smash Ultimate, Yahtzee, please please please, there's a story mode. Look, it's not really my thing, alright? Oh please review it anyway, everyone else is talking about it, we love to hear your take. Fine, here's my take. Ugh, we didn't like your take, you shouldn't have reviewed it if it wasn't your thing. For fuck's sake. 
I want to know what you whinging cunts were expecting. Did you think I would finally be converted? Oh yes, this specific combination of characters and slight gameplay tweaks has finally made me see Smash Brothers for more than just a colourful button-mashing stroke nostalgic wank exercise. I am now a Nintendo fan. Please let me know where to report for my free amiibo and lobotomy. No, that's not how it works, is it? Smash Brothers doesn't create Nintendo fans, it leeches off them. You become a fan of a character from their own game, not from seeing them in Smash Brothers, mainly because you can't fucking see them in Smash Brothers from all the particle effects and the camera being pulled back far from the action like me at all my high school discos. So I asked myself how I would feel about a fighting game populated with all my favourite characters, a game in which Modesty Blaze and Major Kira can team up to bring down Horatio Hornblower and the Arkhamverse Riddler. And yes, I suppose I would get a kick out of that, but I wouldn't expect anyone else to who didn't know the characters. It would only be the superficial appearance of Modesty Blaze, with none of the nuances from the comic strip that make her a great character. The personality, the backstory, the surprising amount of gratuitous nudity. Actually, Smash Brothers has a close equivalent to that with Bayonetta, and sure enough, little of that character's actual personality is conveyed. She's even depicted with realistic human proportions, which kinda threw me. Without legs like an unfolded stepladder, she just looks like that one friend of your mum who kept wanting to hang out with you when you were a kid because she was still single at 34 and the ticking of her biological clock had become as loud as a malfunctioning lawnmower engine. But anyway, Smash Brothers Ultimate does indeed have a story mode, but it's not much of one and you need to turn over a few rocks in the main menu to find it. If you're expecting the sumptuous buffet of laughably earnest cinematics and specially designed platforming levels that was the Smash Brothers Brawl story mode, then you can go stick your head between your legs and wait for your rectum to dispense butterscotch angel delight. All you get this time around is two cinematics, one at the front, one at the end, and approximately 500 million billion and squillion random battles against the AI. The story is, all the fighters have been captured by two godlike forces, a white circle representing light and a black circle representing dark. Sterling creativity on display there. What was the inspiration, Nintendo? The stains on your favourite nightdress? The only fighter who isn't consumed is Kirby, possibly because the evil gods were both diabetic, and so it's up to them to explore an open-ended map screen, battling and unlocking characters as he, she, or it goes. It's a deceptively long campaign. Every time I thought I was close to completing the map, they'd pull out another fucking map. It was like being the only filing clerk at the cartography department. Because you don't just unlock fighters, there are also hundreds upon hundreds of what are termed spirits, basically still images of video game characters who didn't quite have the clout for a full-on appearance. You find whichever fighter or fighters most closely approximates the spirit, like for example Otacon from Metal Gear Solid is represented by Dr. Mario and a Rob Robot, gotcha. Although personally I'd have gone with a Squirtle in glasses or something equally moist. Unlocked spirits convey various buffs and you swap them out before each battle to best counter your opponent, and the whole Nintendo characters crossover remit which was already getting shaky with all the guest characters is now officially in the bin because the spirits are from all over the place. You've got Shantae, Rayman, the chicks from Fatal Frame. Blimey Nintendo's in bed with a lot of people. It's gonna end up with a snatch like an inside out pink ski sock. I wish there was an in-game database explaining where some of these spirits were from. Perhaps the game would have had some value then as a virtual museum, but no, all you get is an image. So all you're basically doing is filling out a sticker album. At its core it's about the combat, and yeah, it's Smash Brothers. You mash buttons and hope all those particle effects are coming out of them and not you. Every now and again your tiny opponent gestures vaguely with a limb that's like two pixels big on screen and you promptly get blasted into the cosmos and you're left wondering what the fuck that was and how you were supposed to predict it. So for a while I was struggling along not having much fun, but everything abruptly changed after I unlocked Donkey Kong, who I proceeded to exclusively play as. Why? Because A, he's big and cartoony enough that you can actually read his fucking movements, and B, he has this one attack that I like to call Fuck Off I Win, oog oog, where he slaps the ground and everyone in a ten yard radius explodes. I ended up challenging myself not to use it because I'd jerk off sailors for nickels and even I thought it was cheap. Things went pretty smooth after that until the final boss when I had to pick two additional characters to use besides Donkey Kong, which was like pulling me out of my nice comfortable roadster and forcing me to do my final lap on a unicycle. But you know what, I didn't dislike playing to story end, it was samey and prolonged, but there were moments when I'd land a fully wound up donkey punch that made my trousers tighten with satisfaction. So what is it about Smash Brothers that irritates me? I think I finally figured it out. See, I believe in video games as an ever-progressing art form, and while I'm sure Smash is a lot of fun when you gather your mates around it, the same is true of poking a dead fox with a stick, and I don't think Smash has any artistic value. It's got so many characters, but it doesn't add anything to them, it just references them, superficially. It's Hey Who Remembers This, the game. Breath of the Wild is a great game, with a lot of 
of artistic value, but Link's appearance in Smash Ultimate is to Breath of the Wild what a TV commercial for action figures is to The Empire Strikes Back. And even that's not why it annoys me. The artless does have a right to exist, hence daytime television and KFC. What annoys me is what an enormous fucking profile the game has. I resent the rest of gaming media for fixating on it and letting it selfishly hog attention away from games with actual new ideas and stories to tell. I despise the twat sandus who come up my garden path demanding I review it and messing up the plastic flamingos for wanting me to join them in an unproductive circle jerk. So just to clarify, I don't hate you, Smash Brothers. I don't even hate your fans. I just wish they'd shut up and wipe the spunk off my flamingos. You know what they say, if you're gonna get kicked in the balls, might as well get kicked in the balls twice so they stay symmetrical. And that's why it's time for the first indie double bill of the year. Gratifyingly, for my love of connecting themes, both games are named after a word that means grey. Not only that, but they're both words that mean grey that you might use if you're a pretentious twat. Or French. For all the difference that makes. So let's start with grey. Gree is a platformer. There, I've just described the game about nine times more efficiently than the blurb on Gree's Steam page, which describes it as a serene and evocative experience about pain and an atmospheric journey through sorrow. It's a fucking platformer, alright. You remember that game Far Lone Sales, which would more accurately have been titled Car With Sales? Nice little idea about maintaining a complex vehicle on a long journey, but went for a slightly inconsistent bleak melancholy atmosphere because, as I said at the time, it had a bad case of indie game-itis. Well, Gree is patient fucking zero for indie game-itis. Always the same, these Oscar bait games just make an atmospheric platformer where the main character is implied to be sad and watch the best art direction prizes roll in. Grrrr is about a stick figure in a dress with a girl's head trying to cheer up their giant statue friend. But when that doesn't seem to be going well, she must explore a strange empty world to repopulate it with colours while being threatened by an ever-encroaching amorphous blackness, also known as Baby's First Metaphor. The flat-out stated intention is that this is all a metaphor for overcoming sadness, which invites further analysis. Maybe the one ability where you make yourself very heavy and do a ground pound is a metaphor for eating a bunch of cakes to cheer yourself up. In all seriousness now, Grrrr is of course a very very beautiful game with haunting arty watercolour style backgrounds, a very good soundtrack and what looks like hand-drawn animation, as smooth as a virginal college boy's hand moving across a frustrated cougar's thigh. But then actual control was given to me and I'd push right only for the character's beautifully animated walk cycle to glide across the ground like I'm dragging an icon across a Windows desktop and that sums up my issue with this very artistic and emotional experience that its eyes keep glazing over whenever it has to address the whole video game thing. As I said it's a platformer and sort of a metroidvania because you unlock new movement abilities as you go but there's not much point in going back to old areas unless you're having trouble sleeping. The level design kinda herds you through the set pieces and there isn't much challenge. At one pseudo action sequence where my character was fleeing with the blackness snapping at her heels, I experimentally put down the controller and she successfully fled the blackness anyway. Grrr, do you really need me here? Or would you rather just very artfully wibble away to yourself while I pop out and run some errands? I know this was the intention, let's go back to that steam blurb. Grrr, is a serene experience free of danger, frustration or death. Listen here, clever tits, locking myself in a fucking bathroom with a paper bag on my head would also be a serene experience free of danger and adversity but I wouldn't base a game around it. You indie emotional experiences and walking simulators need to stop being so fucking sniffy about gameplay. Challenge is the tool by which video games pace themselves and direct the player's attention. And frankly I found Grrr to be very boring. Yes, a good story can be challenging in its own way, but what's the story here? Sad person wants to be less sad, not exactly American History X, is it? So our second game, whose title means grey, is Ashen, which initially caught my interest because at time of writing it's exclusive to the Epic Games Digital Store. Yeah, hope you're paying attention, Steam, because plucky little underdog massive games company Epic and its 12 or 13 games most of which Steam already has are gearing up to take you on. Well it's early days yet, we might all be enslaved in the Epic Mega Corporation Bitcoin mines by next year, let's not tempt fate like I did with the President Trump joke. Ashen is a Dark Souls clone. Again, I've just been about nine times more informative than its own store page was. It's not even trying to hide the Dark Souls influence, it's a high difficulty action RPG set in a dying world and the opening cinematic is essentially a creation myth. Although instead of an epic battle between gods and dragons, you get a bird who sits on a tree branch for a bit, then falls off. 
off, which rather sets the tone for Ashen, and that tone is grey. Wow, both the games called grey turned out to be boring, it's almost like the colour grey has certain associations attached. What probably doesn't help is Ashen's distinctive art style that makes it look like Dark Souls the Playmobil set, where every character is a faceless plastic dolly running around a landscape that someone with far too much time on their hands made out of papier-mâché for their Warhammer meetups. And the gameplay is also the Playmobil version of Dark Souls, they give you a map for a start, Christ, why not give us fucking bunny slippers while you're at it? Dark Souls is about exploration, sticking objective markers all over it is like publishing a crossword with half the answers filled in. Honestly though, I can't complain, because the NPC quest givers would only talk at me in flowery Shakespearean monologues, so I needed the objectives to inform me of what the fuck they actually wanted me to do. The plot of Ashen is that you're exploring the embers of the world to find NPC specialists who can come help develop your home base at Firelink Shrine, I mean Majula, I mean Vagrant's Rest, and they give you side quests to do alongside your main quest to… you know, it was probably mentioned at some point, but then the combat annoyed me too much, and all I can remember is my eyes filling up with blood. As far as I can tell, the main quest line was keep advancing along a linear string of areas so that you can do side quests in them. But that doesn't matter, I'd like to address now Ashen's most significant feature, the multiplayer. I'd like to, but sadly I have no fucking clue if I participated in it or not. How it works is, you have an NPC support character most of the time as you explore, and if another player happens to be around, pursuing the same quest, then they seamlessly take over your support character. Consequently, a lot of the game is designed around co-op. Dark Souls combat is best suited to one-on-one -on -one fighting, but the enemy almost exclusively ambushes in groups, and support is vital. But either I never ran into another player, or the game had assessed my combat skill and decided to exclusively matchmake me with the severely mentally disabled. I wouldn't mind an NPC that just stood still and drew aggro while playing with their belly buttons, but they're just competent enough that you start relying on them, until you wade confidently into a battle and glance back to see them a hundred yards behind, taking undue interest in a shelf bracket. I gave up on Ashen altogether after my seventeenth failed attempt to get through a long boring dungeon trying to keep my support character alive, only to watch them thrust a bit too eagerly and plop off the walkway yet again. It'd be a good scam, wouldn't it, claiming that we're playing co-op with uncommunicative humans indistinguishable from NPCs. It'd be like an inverse of the Dumbo's magic feather trick. Maybe I could have beaten that dungeon if the other guy hadn't been such a fuck-up. Haha, <laughs> don't you see? There was no other guy. The fuck-up was in you all along. You know, the first few weeks of January are always slow ones, because everyone's still picking the bits of candy cane out of their teeth and chasing the last few New Year's partygoers out of the kitchen cupboards, but it's a waste of energy getting frustrated at the release schedule. If it's decided it's on a break, let's do the same and just have a super casual time talking about whatever games we're playing without fretting about silly things like being relevant or funny or interesting or getting to the bathroom before I piss my pants. So here goes, hi, I'm Yahtzee Crozier, super casual game reviewer. What's that games industry? No new games of interest? That's cool. We're all super cash here, have a fun-sized Twix. Yeah, so I finally finished Celeste this week, I've been playing it super cash style for about an hour every three months, and yeah, it certainly is a game. It was okay, I don't know, the way people were banging on about it all year, I was expecting it to fire streamers and ticker tape out of its nipples. Is this like the Senwa's Sacrifice thing, where the main character has a mental illness and therefore it's a masterpiece and if you think otherwise you're Hitler? Oh you are Hitler, well that's cool, I'm super cash, have a Twix, hey! And over Christmas I did a super cash stream of Katamari Damacy Reroll, the re-release of the original PS2 game that recently came out in a super cash kind of way, and what surprised me was how many young people in the stream chat pulled out their pacifiers and mentioned they'd never heard of Katamari Damacy before. Which I suppose is the result of an industry getting a bit too super cash about archiving its history and just letting things drop out of memory like milk bottles from a poorly supervised factory production line. If you can only preserve one thing, preserve the fucking PS2 era for god's sake, when the big developers could still indulge out their ideas before the industry was infected with a terminal case of big money and turned itself over to exclusively making milking machines that they can't even be bothered to paint in interesting colours. Come on Yahtzee, super cash, remember? Eat the Twix. Oh alright. Hey, let's retro-review. Katamari 
Damacy was a quirky Japanese game from 2004, and there's no quirk like Japanese quirk. Gosh, the Japanese are quirky, aren't they? Just look up Unit 731. Even Japan's atrocities are quirky. Hey, that's not where a human arm goes. Anyway, Katamari Damacy is about the king of all cosmos, a very serious-faced man with a Swiss roll for a head and a fondness for unsettlingly tight leggings, getting a little bit too super cash one day and destroying all the stars in the cosmos. Fortunately, this can be remedied because the king can create new stars from clumped together balls of random quirky bullshit. And double fortunately, today just happens to be random quirky bullshit clearing out day down on Earth and everyone's fucking ankle deep in the stuff. So the king's son, the principal cosmos, has to come down and steal all the random quirky bullshit using a magic sticky ball that can suck up anything smaller than it. Yeah, I've got some magic sticky balls for you. Katamari Damacy's greatness lies in the simplicity of its concept and the unrivaled catharsis in its execution. You start off with pathetic, laughable sticky balls that can just about pick up drawing pins and which get gleefully batted about by the cats that patrol the living room, but then a few minutes later after you're done hoovering up the garden furniture you come back and there's something very rewarding about seeing an exclamation mark appear above the head of a cat that once bullied you. I see you remember me, Mr Whiskers. After all, what good are sticky balls if you can't crush pussy? Shortly things get completely out of hand and you move on to rolling up people, then cars, then buildings, and eventually continents and Godzillas. Presumably an awful lot of people die horribly when those Katamaris get turned into stars, but hey, there's nothing quite so super cash as a few consequence-free murders. Boy, Yahtzee, you sure have opinions on Katamari Damacy. You must have played this a lot back in the day. You might want to put tea strainers over your ears, listener, because this will blow your mind. I'd never played Katamari Damacy before. The one I played a lot of was We Love Katamari, the sequel, but it runs on the same engine and plays identically. It was doing the Hand of Fate 2 thing, same game but with more stuff, which is fine, but it does render the original obsolete, and that makes me question Reroll's decision to only re-release the first game. I know precisely why they didn't do We Love Katamari instead, it's because the plot of We Love Katamari is literally, let's make a sequel to Katamari Damacy. It's all very self-referential and ooh quirky quirky Japanese Unit 731 anesthetized life of a section, etc. But it does mean that We Love Katamari doesn't really work by itself. Still, they could have easily remade both the games into one package like they did with Crash Bandicoot and Spyro and those people in the Human Centipede. Playing the first Katamari Damacy alone, I feel disappointed by its comparatively slim variety of levels and gameplay modes, and I think it suffers from being a bit over-generous with the time limits. On one late game level, I'll have sucked up the entire fucking town into my sticky balls and still have about three minutes to roll around the empty valley looking for every last remaining brick and dustbin and thinking up even more oblique ways to talk about my testicles. The time limits in We Love Katamari are a lot tighter, and even if you pass, the King of All Cosmos will talk shit about the size of your sticky balls if you show up with anything that wouldn't immediately silence all conversation in the men's locker room, which is good because challenge is important for catharsis. The success of victory is all the sweeter when there's a clear and looming presence of failure, that's why it's important to have a few ugly bridesmaids at a wedding. Katamari is quite challenging on the base level because you control your sticky ball in the same sense one controls an overloaded shopping trolley with one dodgy wheel around a car park. See, that's what I didn't get out of Donut County. That's right, it's a Donut County review now, that's the kind of thing that happens in super cash videos. Donut County was an indie game from last year that had a similar vibe to Katamari, except instead of a big sticky ball which gets bigger as things attached to it, like what makes sense, you get a hole that moves around and gets bigger as more things fall in it. And how does that work, Donut County? Does every single loose object in this town carry a little pickaxe? Are we supposed to believe this is some kind of magic hole for wizards? Why is everyone stupider than me? In any case, amusing as it is to watch a cat fall down a hole with a stupid look on its face, after that the cat's gone. Whereas in Katamari, the cat's still there, stuck to the side of your ball, kicking its legs in fury and you can continue taking the piss out of it. And that's why Katamari's better. Donut County has its merits, it's got a stronger story aspect but it has no challenge, so it's a one and done two hour distraction, where Katamari's meatier gameplay and jaunty soundtrack makes it almost endlessly replayable. Besides, who'd want a hole when you can have sticky balls, am I right fellas? I'm very lonely. If my review of Travis Strikes Again No More Heroes was one word long, it would be self-indulgent. Also, I'd have a lot more free time this week, and my editor would probably think I'd gone mad, and it might be just the cry for help I need to get someone to intervene in my suffering. Hmm. Nah, better not. Self-indulgent on the part of Suda51.
the Japanese post-punk developer who named himself after his Wi-Fi password. As one of the few true auteurs still working in high-level game development, I'm obviously in favour of him. If he and I pulled two Christmas crackers and I got the big end both times, I'd still let him have one of the paper hats and little toys. That's how much I like him. It has occasionally been difficult to tell how much of Suda51 actually is in the games that have been sold to us as Suda51 games, but I think it's fair to say he was pretty invested in Travis Strikes Again, what with it being about 90% references to previous Suda51 properties and 10% fun and engaging video game. It's not so much another instalment of the No More Heroes series as an intermediary episode, it's the quick game of Trivial Pursuit held early in the evening to gauge interest in the full-on sex orgy you've penciled in for 9 o'clock. So if there isn't sufficient interest in No More Heroes 3, then Suda's gonna find himself in a room full of confused friends in a spotlessly clean gimp suit, and Travis Strikes Again is gonna fall pretty fucking flat since it culminates in a teaser for No More Heroes 3, but then it also contains a teaser for a sequel to Shadows of the Damned, so at least Suda's hedging his bets. I think I'd definitely play a sequel to Shadows of the Damned, I mean, if you heard that someone you knew had died from attempting to swallow an entire set of snooker balls and the cues, then you'd probably want to see the corpse for yourself. Oh, but I kid. Travis Strikes Again is about Travis Touchdown, misanthropic nerd assassin with a hairdo that has made him an enemy of the ceiling fan industry, living in a trailer in the woods in order to get away from the world of assassinations and sword fighting and everything else that would make for an interesting video game. Oh I see, it's that sort of strike. Shortly, the father of one of Travis's previous victims shows up and forces him to cross the picket line, but the two of them then get sucked into a magic games console which will grant them a wish if they can beat all six of its games. Only six games? What is it, an enchanted 32x? Anyway, while I wouldn't classify this as a full No More Heroes game, this does raise the awkward question of what exactly constitutes a No More Heroes game. I guess it's a hack and slash? But the hacking and slashing is always the least interesting part of it, since spawning 400 identical dudes to fight is the No More Heroes solution for absolutely fucking everything, from padding out the gameplay length to building up tension before a boss fight to getting a second opinion as to whether or not your milk has gone off. The rest of the No More Heroes experience lies in boss fights with colourful characters, a good percentage of which will have their tits hanging out, a bunch of silly mini-games, a string of references to things close to Suda51's heart that you'd need to be Suda51's mum to fully understand, and a perplexingly large array of t-shirts to wear. All of these features are present in Travis Strikes Again, but in low-key and slightly disappointing ways, like a free sample version of it that was given away in a cereal box. Very few new t-shirts unlock over the course of the game, and one might reasonably wonder why we should care what t-shirt Travis is wearing when a large percentage of the game is a top-down or isometric gauntlet-esque hack-and-slash where he's as big on screen as an extremely important piece of information is in an average end-user license agreement. But from the way the game keeps giving you money for beating challenges and finding prize boxes we're apparently supposed to care, since we can only spend that money on new t-shirts, and not on anything useful like extra lives or herpes medication or ooh here's a brainwave, an upgrade to the beam saber so I don't have to keep wanking it back to life. Yes, remember how hilarious it was in the first No More Heroes when you had to wank the controller to recharge your sword? You'll have plenty of opportunities to relive that classic comedy moment because your weapon in Travis Strikes Again has the battery life of a fucking six-year-old iPhone. And it's not so much wanking as a complex act of stimulation upon a very uptight and picky clitoris. I'm growing to hate the standard Switch controller analog sticks. You need to press one of them in to do the recharge move and there seems to be a difference of millimetres between pressing it in and pressing it up. So I'll be trying to recharge my weapon in the heat of battle and Travis will suddenly realise he's late for smashing his face into the nearest wall. Now you might have thought from the premise of playing through six video games that there'd be some changes in the gameplay mechanics from game to game, and if you did, congratulations on retaining your childlike hopeful demeanour in this increasingly cynical age, but you're wrong, you big fat idiot. All six games are basically just different venues for more gauntlety, hacking up roomfuls of identical dudes, slight changes in scenery, camera angle and framing device. It might be intended as a joke. One of the games is ostensibly a racing game, but your car isn't fast enough to win so you have to go find an upgrade by, guess what, hacking up roomfuls of identical dudes. Very funny joke, but in the 52 pickup style of joke where the punchline is you wasting ten minutes of your life, and it's hard to keep a good-natured chuckle going that long. What few mechanics do change from game to game all repeat themselves just enough times to make you thoroughly sick of the bastards, and then you get the boss fight with central wacky character du jour, nary a one of which has their tits hanging out, and the elaborate character building cutscenes are replaced with tepid visual novel style back and forth dialogues against a blank background. Then there's an unmemorable fight and Travis finishes them off with a token wrestling move, hoisting their knee pits over his shoulder with a bored business-like look on his face like a veteran plasterer getting another bucket down from the van. Travis Strikes Again has enough of the No More Heroes post-punk quirk and plot service to give the hardcore 
pseudo fans something to be smug about when talking to people who've only played the main games, but the endless frustrating core combat and its constant jilling off the analogue sticks to recharge kill any recommendation I could make to non-Suda51 completionists. And the line between Travis Touchdown and his creator has gotten blurry. He's all Mary Sue invincibility and omniscient fourth wall breaking and not so much being incredibly pathetic around women. I don't think there's any evidence in Travis Strikes Again that Travis likes anime. Now he only likes indie games like what Suda51 likes. And he really likes Shadows of the Damned, oh boy can't wait for the sequel to that, can we viewers? So yes, self-indulgent is the word. Worth a look if you like Suda51 or are putting his profile together for a murder investigation, but you might get a sense that the comfy looking sleeping bag we willingly entered is actually the creator's wank sock. You know, the Freedom Planet problem. Oh Resident Evil 7, you've made me the happiest game critic in the world, but what furrows your brow, my love? Oh, I was just thinking about when I was Resident Evil 2. Well why the fuck were you thinking about that? You've moved on, Resident Evil, you're a good game now. About genuinely creepy things happening to real characters but with an ironic self-awareness that gives you that crucial edge. Yeah, but people seem to like Resident Evil 2, I think I should remake it. Oh you poor, beautiful, deluded video game box art on legs, you do that and you'll get half the audience complaining about its lack of modern sensibilities, and the other half complaining that it's not like how they remember it. You don't need them, you've got got me now, don't throw it all away for nostalgia's sake. You're romanticising the past and overlooking the negatives from those days, the pathetic plots, the prodigious PlayStation pixels, that weird zombie eating flesh sound effect that sounded like someone repeatedly stomping on a juice box. You do this and you'll be sliding back onto that dreadful path that led us to Resident Evil 6, the game best summarised by replacing the I in 6 with a U. Fine, run to your remake friends, but I'm gonna give it a damn good kick in the sensibilities. So I was already iffy on the RE2 make, because the very idea is what we call a mouthful of dinner plate because it makes me do this. Uh... And then reviews started coming in and virtually all of them praised it for being true to the original and that made the dinner plate double in size. Arrgh. Who gives a fuck if it's true to the original? I'll tell you who. Cunts. Small trousered nostalgia noughts who burrow ever deeper into their comfort zones at the slightest threat of challenging new idea. Then I played through Resident Evil 2, both bits of it, and I can state with resounding certainty that it's alright. This is the part where all the cockthroats swoop down on the comments like flies to a dead dog and go, ooh, an alright from Yahtzee is high praise anywhere else, buzz buzz. Eat that dead dog's last panicky burst of diuretic shit, cockthroats. Resident Evil at its best is something I found electrifying, and this conflux of old ideas and slightly less old but still old ideas is barely two licks of a nine volt. The problem might have been that the plot is still trying to build suspense about its twists and reveals despite the fact that we already know everything that happens. I was playing the fourth sequel to this game like three years ago, it was like watching a fucking nativity play at this point, except without the slim hope that someone might piss themselves and cry, this not being Metal Gear Solid. Raccoon City has fallen to the zombies in such a way that no one else in the country noticed. Only like two people have tried to enter the city since the outbreak started, I'm guessing it's not exactly a tourism economy. The two being Leon Kennedy, a rookie policeman who looks and speaks like a grown-up member of Hanson, struggling to find work in later life, and Claire Redfield, sister of former protagonist Chris, who felt the best way to get back in touch would be to show up in person at his workplace rather than, say, a Facebook nudge. The intro really emphasises the increase of scope from zombie-infested mansion to zombie-infested city as the camera pulls back to reveal a dense network of chaotic streets that form together into the Resident Evil 2 logo. Very nicely done, just a shame that the subsequent game takes place almost entirely in a single building. Alright fine, there's a secret laboratory as well, but come on, every Resident Evil game has one of those. If you're gonna count that as a location, you might as well count the fucking options menu. But credit where it's due, Very Dense Enid 2 is a very very solidly designed game. It certainly makes the most of its limited space with its multiple story paths running through its labyrinth of hallways that you must explore and unpick like a mess of tangled Christmas lights. The game balances the survival part of survival horror perfectly, ensuring that you're forever low on 
stuff but always have just enough to squeak by. It's as much about strategy as action as you plan your next route and decide if it's worth expending the ammo to down every monster for the count, or just pop them in the face and run as you would casually whip a passing exposed buttock as you sprint through the men's locker room with a wet towel. But that doesn't mean the action's any slouch, the now inevitable RE4 style combat is as solid as ever, the guns have the right kick and the gore effects are just delightful. What's that on your face, Mr Zombie? Blam! Oh, it's the skirting board. What I don't like so much is the big indestructible neckbeard in a trench coat and fedora who pursues you relentlessly from room to room because you made the mistake of admitting that you liked an anime once and now he won't leave you alone until he's shown you his entire Blu-ray collection. I get that once we've gone over the hallways enough times to start getting familiar, we need something to keep us unnerved, and he certainly does that as his massive pocky inflated bulk stomps towards you making all the walls shake, but over time he becomes more annoying than scary, like those Silent Hill 4 ghosts that keep nibbling your bum and playing their stereos too loud while you're trying to get the exploration and puzzle solving done. Eventually you realise that his mum told him he can't follow you into certain rooms, so I duck into a safe room and listen to his thundering footsteps echo through the building, not having a chuffing clue where the fucker actually is, then I'll pop my head out and oh he's right outside, boring a licker to death with his opinions on Sword Art Online 2. Back in the safe room. This isn't creepy survival horror, this is a mailman trying to negotiate with an angry dog in a front yard. Come to think of it, all the boss encounters are a bit yawnsome. I'm sure having to navigate around a giant muscle man in a small room trying to peck at their weak spots while staying out of range of their claw swipes was the height of creativity back in the PlayStation Middle Ages, when expectations were even lower than the fucking pixel resolution, but Resident Evil has come up with like 97,000 more creative set pieces since then, and put them all in Resident Evil 4. Oh, but it's being true to the original yards. Lick my gritty prit stick, viewer. I did enjoy my time with RE2 Make, but the enthusiasm I can summon is limited, largely because of its truth to the original, with all its banal bubo-bursting boss fights and charisma vacuum characters, and frankly, I think it's a step back after RE7. There's a bit early on where Leon and Claire reunite either side of a fence, and it's like watching two awkward teenage school friends running into each other at the county fair. Hey, hey, what you doing? Not much. You look pretty. Thanks. That zombie's gonna kill you. I know, right? They're so annoying. Ethan Winters could out-personality either of them, and he was just a pair of wrists that occasionally swore. It's a classic example of what was once termed a second-order idiot plot, or situation that could only exist if every character is an idiot. Hey, I'm gonna ride my bike to another city to see if my brother is at the police station. Did you try phoning the police station? Uh... Hey, I'm gonna make a virus that transforms people into gigantic super strong monsters for military applications. How would that be more efficient than just dropping a big bomb? Uh... And anyway, wouldn't it violate the square cube law? Uh... Oh, never mind. Just spit out the dinner plate. I'm not into Disney or Final Fantasy, not being a child or an overweight female cosplayer who has never once in their life been able to come, so I've steered clear of Kingdom Hearts, but I admit I was curious about Kingdom Hearts 3. The series has a high profile and some people I would never admit to respecting say they like it. The same people have also said that the plot is completely fucking incomprehensible if you haven't played Kingdom Hearts 1, 2, Chain of Memories, Birth by Sleep, Dream Drop Distance, and every other side game with a subtitle that reads like a bag of marbles fell on a keyboard with an overzealous autocorrect. But hey, I like incomprehensible. Some people called me incomprehensible when I clenched a strawberry between my buttocks and went to the costume party as a jam sandwich. Besides, I couldn't quite believe that a company like Disney would let their name be on something incomprehensible. I mean, these are the guys who always pursue the broadest audience possible with psychotic tone deafness. Yeah, let's put a happy ending on the fucking Hunchback of Notre Dame. And after that, let's put stiletto heels on a camel. So I gave Kingdom Hearts 3 a chance, and you know what, viewer, sometimes you totally should go with your first instinct. Things started okay. You are Sora, anime protagonist in a big Disney crossover multiverse with some kind of slightly unclear peacekeeping role. I assume he's the equivalent of a police officer because his job seems to largely entail beating the shit out of black people. Ha ha. He's followed around by Goofy and Donald Duck, presumably so that he never forgets even for a moment who's signing the fucking paychecks around here. Something that happened in the previous games has reduced Sora's power, so he needs to set out into the world to start building it back up. Great, reset button. That's all the acknowledgement of the previous games we needed, Kingdom Hearts 3. Let's go spend the next 20 hours referencing Disney movies and wallowing in the delicious warmth of our filled nappies. Sadly, it was not to be, and things soon began to fall apart. Who are all these other characters? Why is Mickey Mouse knocking about a black desert with the Muppet Babies version of Sephiroth? 
Sephiroth. Who are all the dudes in black coats, and why don't any of them know how zip fasteners work? Sora's motive keeps changing. Sometimes we're getting his lost power back, sometimes we're looking for three missing warriors, sometimes we're looking for Roxas, who is in Sora's heart, which he already knew, so why the fuck is he looking? Or we're just generally opposing the main bad guys, who were three versions of the same dude, and none of them could figure out how zips work either. The story of Kingdom Hearts 3 made me angry. Not Liam Neeson angry, more teaching Facebook to your grandma angry. But it wasn't so much my lack of story background as the way the story was told. Here is my impression of a Kingdom Hearts character going to the toilet. Ooh, what is it? I think I need the toilet. Hmm. Hey look, isn't that a toilet over there? Right, let's get going. Break into a sprint, bloke in a black trench coat appears, everyone stops dead. I wouldn't do that if I were you. What? The organisation? Why shouldn't we go to the toilet? Simply because. I just did a very big poo in that toilet. Ha <laughs> Gorsh, if he did a very big poo in the toilet, it probably still smells. It doesn't matter. Hmm. As long as we're together, we can take on the smell of any poo. That's what friendship is all about. Imagine this conversation happening several times an hour, and some of it is in a Donald Duck voice. I was prepared for Donald Duck voice. Everyone knows Donald Duck's voice. It's one of the things we've just accepted about the world, like climate change and the Ebola virus. But it's still compounded by irritation. Oh yeah, listening to Donald Duck's voice is like sticking your entire head in a soaking wet condom and then trying to remove it with an orbital sander. So it might have put me in the right mood to want to start twatting some things with sticks, but sadly there wasn't much catharsis to be found in the combat. It's yet another modern JRPG combat system that figured there had to be some happy middle ground between real-time and menu-based combat, by the same principle that onion gravy mixed with marmalade would presumably be superior to both, so mostly it's mashing the one attack button at whichever enemy happens to be nearest, but when you want to cast a spell or use an item, you've got to fiddle your way through the menu options, hoping not to get hit as you stand there in the melee like an erection in a rugby scrum. You can also occasionally do super moves in which you pilot particle effect drenched versions of Disneyland rides that fuck up the enemy, which is one of those trademark Kingdom Hearts moments where you're not sure if you're being advertised at. Oh, and by occasionally I mean in every fucking fight regardless of threat. So that's the core gameplay experience, you go to a new world themed around a Disney film, you advance from room to room fucking up one batch of dark lads after another, learn once again the same lesson that My Little Pony successfully brought across with three fucking words, watch an incomprehensible cutscene or two, then move on to the next. And when I say Disney film, I mean Pixar film. Well, partly. The first level's themed around Hercules, bit of an odd choice for the opener. Who the fuck has spared a thought for Disney's Hercules in the last 20 years, besides mythology professors who can't let go of a grudge? But after that, it's CG movies all the way, those being the fucking moneymaker these days, but Pixar films tend to be a bit too intricate and high concept for this format. Toy Story and Monsters Inc. are levels, but aren't both of those tangentially set in the real world? Last I checked, reality isn't a subsidiary of the Disney Corporation. Not yet, anyway, give them a few more years. Your standard Disney fare, Pretty Princesses vs Evil Witches, fits more comfortably in an epic crossover setting, even if the Tangled and Frozen levels are just pointless recreations of the film plots that don't even hold up because several plot elements are missing, and Sora and his mates are there, standing awkwardly in the corner offering running commentary for the mentally disadvantaged. Gosh, that magical lady with the puppy dog eyes looks like she's sad about something, doesn't she? I didn't expect to finish Kingdom Hearts 3 in the time I had, so I just set out to play until I knew my opinion wasn't going to change, and that moment came at the Winnie the Pooh section. In between two of the actual levels, it suddenly becomes important that Sora investigate why he's not on the cover of a Winnie the Pooh book. Wasn't sure why he felt he should be, except his general sense of being the centre of the fucking universe, but we go to the Hundred Acre Wood and it turns out everything's fine and they just wanted to hang out. Although they won't let you leave until you've played some insipid colour matching games. Sorry, why was this important? Is the plot seriously being held hostage by Winnie the fucking Pooh? Actually, I didn't mind the colour matching games, or that Ratatouille cooking side quest, but I might just have been enjoying taking a break from the rest of the fucking game. In conclusion, Kingdom Hearts 3 is a fucking baffling experience, equal parts impenetrable and insufferably condescendingly twee, with a creepy undercurrent of Disney thought control, kinda like trying to get off with Mary Poppins in a Scientology test centre. The Big Crunch theory of the universe states that all matter will eventually collapse into a dimensionless singularity in a single point in space. I have a similar theory of video games called the Big Arsing About in a Bush theory, which states that all video game franchises will eventually gravitate to open world games set in the wilderness with stealth and resources. 
resource management, meaning that the gameplay will centre around arsing about in a bush. Bonus points if it's post-apocalyptic as well. Zelda did it, Tomb Raider did it, God of War's giving it some funny looks, and those are all at one point from three vastly different genres. So what's next on the hit list? How about claustrophobic survival horror shooters about depressed Russians? And maybe after that we could airdrop Cooking Mama into the Cambodian jungle where she has to craft a bow and arrow out of her fucking salad servers. Cue Metro Exodus. Metro Exodus is the third and possibly last game in the Metro 2033 series in which the last remnants of humanity in a frozen irradiated world eke out a claustrophobic existence in the metro tunnels beneath Moscow and must deal with political tensions, mutant monsters and a subtle paranormal undercurrent. Now take all the parts of that last sentence and arrange them nicely in a big bin, because none of them are true by the end of Metro Exodus. Artyom, ongoing series protagonist with a highly specialised anxiety disorder that means he can only speak on loading screens, is making a bad habit of going up to the surface and twiddling with his radio knobs while everyone keeps telling him he might as well be looking for chocolate raisins in a rabbit hutch, but he eventually discovers the hidden truth that parts of the world besides Moscow are still inhabitable and inhabited. In fact, most of it is, apparently. And Moscow's just been deliberately isolated by paranoid militants this whole time. Now I'd never be so hyperbolic as to say that this fundamentally ruins the Metro series, or pisses on it, or leaves its hollowed out corpse in an alley with an asshole like a rusty tuber, but it does mean that if I get around to replaying the first two Metros I'm going to feel pretty fucking stupid throughout, as I appreciate the horrific lonely atmosphere of a dead world and the uplifting moments of pure humanity in a seemingly hopeless situation, now knowing that there are fucking beach parties going on half an hour up the motorway. Anyway, Artyom and Mrs. Artyom and Mrs. Artyom's dad and most of Artyom's bachelor party steal a train and set out on an odyssey across post-apocalyptic Russia to find a purpose, a place to exist, and a nice bush to arse about in. The result is reminiscent of a lot of things, the least of which being a Metro game. Well, it feels like Metro at the start, before you get on the train, and again right at the end in the frozen city, like a schoolboy snapping out of a daydream and returning to the lesson, but everything in between is a right pick and mix. Some of the chapters are big open sandboxes with side quests, some are strictly linear tunnel excursions. One of them looks like an open sandbox, but you go through it like it's a tunnel, possibly as a test of all the skills we have been developing thus far. Some of it reminds me of Mad Max, some The Last of Us, some Resistance 3, and I can't help thinking of what I said about God of War 4. Here comes another franchise ditching what made it unique for the sake of being like everyone else. That aforementioned subtle paranormal undercurrent is now so subtle it's stomped underfoot and buried beyond the wit of archaeology because it's mostly wilderness and bandit camps now. Oh yes, and remember using bullets as currency. That interesting mechanic unique to the Metro series that was not only a nice twist on gameplay as we had to think about how much of our offensive ability we were willing to sacrifice for the things we needed, although admittedly the thing that we needed was most commonly more bullets, but was also an effective bit of world building that said a lot about this society where bullets were the most useful day-to-day -day commodity, as opposed to say tinned food or bog roll, well you can stick all that in the bin as well, because who needs unique currency mechanics when you have, you guessed it, crafting! Really simplified crafting with only two ingredients, metal and things that aren't metal, and every imaginable resource is made from some combination of the two, which rather undermines what Metro had previously established about ammo being valuable and hard to get, when you can craft a fresh handful of 9mm from a wire coat hanger and a brussels sprout. In fact, the very basic crafting undermines the whole survivalism thing, when if we're dangerously low on something the thinking is not, what supplies can we spare for trade and should we press on and hope to find a vendor or turn back and risk losing time, but rather, let's find a room full of corpses and rubble their tummies until prizes come out. Look, I'm not going to say that Abe's Exodus, I mean Ultima 3X, I mean Metro Exodus is a bad game, I just think the gameplay has become rather painfully generic. Shoot the bandits or stealth the bandits, and then gun down a pack of feral humans that we very emphatically will not refer to as zombies. Oh come on Yards, why do you always insist on things being unique? You never complain about having the exact same bowl of muesli and crafty wank for breakfast every morning. Alright, fine. One thing the Metro series does well is characters that come across as human as opposed to fleshy gun turrets with an emotional range that goes from determined to determined and a bit cross, and Exodus still has that. I relished the between mission bits on the train where we can hear extensive dialogues and watch everyone hang out and see how their personalities differentiate these interchangeable Russians with heads like potatoes, although the dialogue has a bad habit of signalling upcoming twists. We just have to get inside this one mysteriously silent bunker and everything will be fine and we'll get medals and free food and a pony. Oh I'm so optimistic for the future, if only I could <coughs> shake this conspicuous non-specific cough. Shit's about to get fucky! And it always does, but I don't like
like how the story never satisfactorily pays off what it sets up. The overall plot is just a picaresque series of disconnected chapters that abruptly stops the moment it runs out of set pieces, but even the individual chapters are all lacking an appropriate climax. We're in an area controlled by a religious cult that worships a giant mutant fish. Are we gonna fight the mutant fish at the end or liberate the cultists from brainwashing? No, we just sort of bugger off. Then we're in the Mad Max level where a bandit gang has enslaved a local indigenous tribe. Do we liberate the slaves? Not really. We do set the ball rolling on that, but instead of seeing it through, we just sort of bugger off. Then we're in the nice river valley level where we were hoping to set up home but find it crawling with weird survivalist forest people. Do we kill them all or learn to coexist? No, because then we get to the end of the valley and notice the dam's about to burst. Do we get to see it burst? Or rescue the forest people? No, we just point it out to them, say, shit's about to get fucky, and then bugger off. You called? I wasn't talking to you, comrade Buggeroff. Say what you like about Ubisoft, at least they diligently recycle. Far Cry games are like ants these days, you see one, there's almost certainly a fuckload more waiting under the skirting board. Far Cry 3 begat Blood Dragon, 4 begat Primal, and now 5 begets New Dawn. No sooner is a new Far Cry game out than they start stripping it for parts, and making something from that savage hinterland of games too elaborate to be DLC, but not quite elaborate enough to be a numbered sequel. That insipid in-betweeny territory where dwelleth roving packs of Assassin's Creed rogues, embittered and violent from their forsaken dreams of Assassin's Creed liberation. Unusually for the now inevitable Far Cry second helping go round, Far Cry New Dawn is a direct plot sequel to Far Cry 5, so those canny sods at Ubisoft didn't even have to change the sandbox map much, just copiously whittle on a few things and repaint everything in post-apocalyptic hot pink. Also, a surprisingly large number of named NPCs from Far Cry 5 somehow survived the… probably shouldn't spoil it… the thing that happened at the end of the game? Well, that's not too surprising, Yahtzee. I mean, Ubisoft credit sequences only have a 2 or 3% fatality rate. It's roughly 20 years on since the last Ubisoft credit sequence ravaged Hope County, and the survivors have just about begun to rebuild their lives when their new home is invaded by the Highwaymen, a vicious bandit gang of disenfranchised millennials led by the now inevitable smug charismatic psycho Far Cry villain, who the cover artist at least seems to think is the only character in the plot worth speaking of. The silent protagonist goes in, gets ambushed, narrowly escapes an encounter with the villain and must build a resistance from the back foot. So far, fully in line with the standard Far Cry plot that I assume Ubisoft has now carved into the wall above all their fucking urinals, but later on we discover that the smug charismatic psycho who smugged everything up in the last game is still around and thus begins the smug charismatic psycho arms race. The thing about New Dawn is that it has a weirdly conservative message. Everyone's getting along in a nice quiet community of modestly dressed people, until everything is shaken up by this gang of unruly spring break college kids who spray graffiti everywhere and play their very loud techno music at all hours of the day and night. Tellingly, every time you retake a stronghold, the techno music gets replaced with stuff like Louie Louie and other songs that white dads like. The smug charismatic psycho du jour, the twins, are definitely among the least effective or interesting villains Far Cry has produced. They come across like former stars of a 90s children's sitcom who went off the deep end. Certainly hateable but with no complexity or agenda besides wanting to laze around living off other people's hard work. Bloody typical of young people today, am I right? The only reason the twins have any power seems to be that people like the main protagonist keep getting inexplicable brain farts in their presence. There's one bit where we're heading to a building to confront the twins and the twins give us a ring when we're outside and say, hey, put all your guns in that bag and then come in and handcuff yourself to the ceiling. And we're given no choice but to obey. Hypothesize with me, Captain Protagonist person, what if we just didn't do that? What possible consequence do you think there would be of bursting in guns blazing? Oh no, they might say something very fucking sassy before I blow their jawbones off with an LMG and leave their tongues to waggle like used condoms on an extractor fan. What also undermines the threat posed by the twins is that all the inevitable liberate the enemy stronghold missions are initially set to baby's first easy mode, and you can then invite the enemy to come and retake it so that you can liberate it again. The difficulty does increase, but the fact that we trigger it ourselves removes any sense of threat the highwaymen present. Kuh, <laughs> you call that a base defence? Look, I'll turn around for 30 seconds, you set everything back up, and this time let's see you defend it properly! And you do need to do this at least once, because it's the only way to make enough ethanol to afford base and weapon upgrades, ethanol being the most important currency in the post-apocalypse. I mean, they've got to put some 
something in the mint juleps. New Dawn, are you slightly blatantly locking important things behind rare crafting resource grinderthons in the hope that I'll notice the fucking massive link to the micropayment shop on the pause menu? No, of course not, don't be absurd. Why are you interested? Well, haha, maybe I'll not get all the upgrades and call it a skill run. Well, haha, you need to upgrade your base to unlock all the story missions. Well, haha, stick it up your bum! I had a feeling New Dawn was going to be a difficult little madam the moment I started the game, got past the prologue, walked 50 feet down a forested valley, and noticed a stag running in circles, panting and sweating in fear, and clearly confused as to why I wasn't getting further away. And then my NPC support lady started screaming in my ear because a deadly wolf was idly licking its bollocks somewhere in our current postcode. There's a bugginess that implies that things might have been rushed a tad. There are definitely a few specific moments that could have done with a bit more, i.e. any amount of playtesting. The destruction derby sequence springs to mind, when I kept getting blown up over and over again because my car kept getting caught on sweet wrappers and the curvature of the earth, so in the end I beat it by getting out of the car and flinging remote bombs at my opponents, which nobody said I couldn't do, so I think there's going to be some revision of the official rulebook after today. And then there are the two final boss fights, both rather hideous in their own unique ways. The first one against what amounts to two standard enemies with ridiculous amounts of health that you just run around chipping at like you're dismantling a leather jacket with a potato peeler. Then the final final boss fight against something that might have been more at home as a Super Mario boss, the way it keeps jumping about flinging fireballs and trying to get a fist up your booty hole, and which in the restrictive first person perspective becomes an exercise in frustration as you waddle around the room, crafting medkits so fast your mortar and pestle is probably emitting sparks. I liked Far Cry 5. Well, a bit. Well, bits of it a bit. Fine, let's just say I liked it a hell of a lot more than Far Cry New Dawn, because Far Cry 5 managed to somewhat avoid the issue that so many AAA games have these days, that is, the sense that it exists not because someone thought it would be fun or interesting or a story that needed to be told, but primarily to dig a nice fresh hole to dangle micropayments over and hook ourselves some whale meat. New Dawn gives me a profound sense of oh how lovely you shouldn't have. There's a temptation to mouth the usual completely unnecessary statements like if you liked Far Cry 5 you'll want to check out New Dawn, but I feel in this case that would be like saying if you like squirrels you'll want to check out this quilt I made out of roadkill. I imagine that working for EA must be rather like living with a toddler, drunk person or president of the United States. Imagine Bioware's plight. Well now that you've spent all that money getting the Star Wars license, we did make Knights of the Old Republic back in the day so perhaps we could- But no, hate Star Wars! Star Wars is boring, cancel all the Star Wars. I want that! You want what? I want that! What, Destiny? Yes, I want thing that looks like Halo with somehow even less personality. Well you can't have Destiny, it's owned by Activision Blizzard. <laughs> alright, alright. I suppose we could make something that's a lot like Destiny. I mean mindless online only looty shooties aren't really our thing, we're more about character based role playing. Oh dear, please stop holding your breath EA. Look, we made our own version of Destiny, it's called Anthem. Ugh, I hate it, you're all fired. Why didn't you make a Star Wars game? I wouldn't take it personally, Bioware, this is what EA does. Buy a developer, force them to rip off something popular and outside their comfort zone, blame them for the inevitable failure, shut them down, buy themselves a new ball pit. It's just how they run their business, like some bizarre combination of hazing ritual and murder spree. If Anthem is aping Destiny, then it's got the approach to story down pat. The first thing it does is start throwing capitalised words at me, like a glossary with gastroenteritis. The Shapers created the Anthem that is causing cataclysms and freelancers, ciphers, sentinels, javelins, dominion, cenotaph. Well shit, Bioware, I thought I knew what all those words meant. In the end I wouldn't worry about it, this is the Destiny and indeed the Halo thing where the story is about 90% setting and 10% plot. I'm sure the writers have done a lot of world building while doodling on the backs of their exercise books, but all that you actually need to know is humans yay, everyone else boo, and there's your common or garden all powerful ancient artifact somewhere that you have to stop the bad guys getting to and making whoosh crikey lasers come out of, which would presumably be bad. But let's not gloss over the story, because Anthem is a game of two parts that are forced to live together in a state of open hostility like Israel and Palestine, although Israel and Palestine have never tried to flog loot boxes to Lebanon. On one side you have Storyland, where all the story happens, a happy community hub roughly the size of an average suburban strip mall, packed with smiling NPCs with big golden speech bubbles over their heads that seem to say, please click, I used up three exercise books working this character out, and literally walled off from that is Gameplay Land, a huge beautiful expanse of bugger all, which you venture into after putting on your Power Rangers romper suit, confront whichever of the four or five enemy factions drew the short straw today.
Marseille and create enough new widows and orphans to make up, say, a standard philharmonic orchestra. And diplomatic relations between the lands of story and gameplay seem to be poor. For example, Storyland just doesn't acknowledge multiplayer at all. As far as it's concerned, you are a lone warrior who is humanity's last best hope, and if you're curious to know why three other guys keep popping out of your ass every time you leave, then you'll have to find answers elsewhere. It's busy writing more optional dialogues for you to ignore. Meanwhile, show up at Gameplay Land and ask if it would be possible to play single player, and the game reacts like you sat down in an expensive restaurant and ordered a bowl of cornflakes. You go to the privacy settings, once you can find the fucking things, because this game has a worse menu system than a McDonald's drive through after a major earthquake. What is it with ultra AAA games having shitty interfaces these days? Is it the same principle by which Las Vegas casinos are laid out to get you lost and unable to glimpse the sun in the hope that you get confused and accidentally drop all your money? And your options are public match, as God intended, or private match for big stupid losers. Then when you set it to private and try to start solo, a window pops up saying, ha <laughs> sorry, someone's clearly made a dreadful mistake, surely you don't actually want to play a solo private match. Just click here and we'll set it back to public play so you can rejoin all the normal people. But I didn't click that, and then the tip on the fucking loading screen was something about how playing multiplayer earns more rewards and doesn't make the little baby Jesus cry. What the fuck is this, guys? Am I on suicide watch? I don't know why the multiplayer is being pushier than the last high school virgin on their prom date. The game's perfectly playable solo. Tedious, but playable. Most of the missions are variations on go to a place, press the button, depopulate another orchestra, but at least in single player you're guaranteed to be the one participating in the plot, and aren't racing three other guys to be the one to activate the beacon, rescue the prisoner, fluff the distemperate wildebeest or whatever the story objective is, and you'll also get to have a go at the ancient puzzles that occasionally pop up in the course of the dungeons, and they won't be instantly solved by the one random dickhead on your team who's done them before because they're grinding up their third character, for you could release a game about tucking frozen peas under your scrotum and there'll still be at least one person weirdly obsessed with being the best at it. Story being the thing Bioware is good at, well I say good. If I were writing their school report I'd say they certainly approach the subject with enthusiasm. The gameplay clearly exists on sufferance, and yet the main story is still surprisingly short and padded out. The bit where you can't continue the plot until you complete a checklist of arbitrary gameplay grinds springs to mind. A very poorly explained checklist at that. Get five multi-kills. What the fuck's a multi-kill, Anthem? Well, what do you think it is? Uh, killing more than two enemies with one grenade? Oh, good guess. Wrong, though. Another objective is to heal three stricken friendlies. Well, that's the solo players completely alienated, catch you later, Anthem. Then a little googling revealed that there are some NPC friendlies fighting the enemy in one spot of the free roam map, and you can grind up your resurrects there. Although with the AI being what it is, I was sitting on a hilltop for ages waiting for the enemy to get their heads together long enough to splatter one of the little bastards. Then I'd look up and see two other players hovering like vultures. Hey, I saw them first. Back off, Mr. Healy Steely. Do I need to go on? I mean, the internet hive mind seems to have already declared Anthem to be the thing we all hate over the month, and for all my contrarian instincts I can't disagree. But don't hate Anthem viewers, pity Anthem. Pity Bioware, for Anthem is their cry for help. It's a grindy generic shooter that not even jetpacks can save, but the brief trips to Storyland for elaborately animated character cutscenes hint at what Bioware would rather have been making. Sadly, it was but the face of a tormented younger brother briefly glimpsed before it disappears again beneath the flappy buttocks of its sibling. Please give us one more crack at Mass Effect, it seems to say. What if we let you have sex with the ship this time? Ah, the long-awaited Crackdown 3. Well, frankly, while it has been close to a decade since the last crackdown, and 13 years since the last crackdown that didn't suck mouthfuls of used baby wipes from a blocked sewer drain, I'm not sure it's fair to say that anyone's been awaiting another one. I was content to forget about it and recycle the relevant brain cells to think of more inventive ways to look down ladies' tops without them noticing, but nevertheless Crackdown 3 has appeared. And it's a very appropriate title. Down, because that's how it makes me feel. Crack, because anyone involved with it is going to lose all their teeth and end up sucking dick behind the bus station. And 3, which sounds a bit like we. Yahtzee, we all know you're being 
needlessly negative because Crackdown 3 is already reviewed pretty shittily and you're going for the mercy kill, switch to contrarian mode, you lazy asshole. Oh, alright, Crackdown 3's good, actually. Well, the fact is, time has made a fool of Crackdown 3. Clearly the feeling was that it's been long enough since Crackdown 2 that it was time to bring back Crackdown 1 updated for a new generation. But then someone rested their balls on the piece of paper where they wrote the idea down and obscured the last five words. And then all the scrotum sweat messed up the ink, and after they lifted up their balls, the words had somehow changed to and put Terry Crews in it. Crackdown 3 is about a glittering future city that was established in the aftermath of a global crisis in which the superpowered peacekeepers of the ever unspecifically named agency are going into to start trouble because the people running it are evil. Or at least we are given every assurance that they are. It's a very tell-don't-show kind of arrangement. We don't get to see for ourselves much of the oppression and violence we're told is taking place. The most evidence the game presents for us outside of the briefing videos is that the city has police stations. Yes, our helicopter does get shot down on the way in, but that could just have been the city authorities not wanting the agency to come in and beat them all to death with their own company cars. I spent the whole game waiting for someone to acknowledge that twist from the end of Crackdown 1 where it turned out the agency itself were the evil masterminds behind it all, but I think I might be the only person who remembers that. So the intro diligently fails to satisfactorily establish why we hate the villains and instead spends most of its time establishing that Terry Crews is in this game. And God bless his little cotton socks, probably thought he was going to be in more of it, but then he's killed off in the crash and largely disappears from the situation while the surviving agent of our choice watches up ashore and hooks up with the local resistance movement of wholesome idealistic young people. The game proper then begins, and if you played Crackdown 1, slipped on a puddle of your own brackish mung, fell into a coma and only just woke up in time to play Crackdown 3, you could be forgiven for thinking that in the intervening time the game's industry had advanced no further than a shit-smeared dildo at a relay race. For it is basically just Crackdown. You jump about the city very emphatically not driving any of the thoughtfully provided vehicles, collect upgrade orbs, cause chaos until you can take down the local lieutenant, kill lieutenants until the big boss is defenceless and reload is bound to the left shoulder button, which is exactly the sort of thing we used to do in the olden days before evolution solidified our brain matter. Surely Crackdown 1 was a good game yards. It was at the time, back before our sophisticated modern age where all races and creeds live together in harmony and everyone understands that vaccinations work. Back then, the very concept of a go-anywhere sandbox was still somewhat novel, especially ones where you could jump 50 feet into the air and bludgeon people to death with the corpses of their old school teachers. But these days, sandbox games are like chicken. Bland, obvious, and there's about three for every human being on planet Earth. We've got small sandboxes, sumptuous sandboxes, survival sandboxes, superhero sandboxes. I've got so many sandboxes in my house my cat uses one as a toilet. And Crackdown 3's sandbox is humiliatingly small and uninteresting, with very little personality on a moment-to-moment -moment level. It's just going from one shoot all the bad guys mission to another while all the innocent pedestrians we're ostensibly doing this for are but flakes of dandruff settling on the pubic hair of the world. Possibly interesting if you'd like to reminisce about what sandbox games were like around the late PS2, early PS3 era, but you could always just replay Crackdown 1 for that, or keep holding your head underwater till you damage your short-term memory. You might be a little confused if, like me, you remember seeing a hype video for Crackdown 3 a year or two back that showed off a fully destructible city, which would have been enough USP for a modern sandbox, but it turns out that that's only for the multiplayer mode. Which makes sense, it wouldn't really work in the story campaign, it'd be hard to have an epic final boss fight if you've already blown up the final boss arena and converted the rubble into a custom-made Japanese Zen garden. But I'm not sure it works terribly well as part of a competitive deathmatch either. It's pretty uninspired, every player is shown every other player's location at all times, like the game wants this to be over as quickly as I do, and I could barely notice the terrain destruction because I was too busy trying to avoid unavoidable gunfire. Everything's destructible, so taking cover was as much use as a flak jacket made of pink wafer biscuits. Besides, I don't want to blow up empty buildings in a special dedicated map cut off from the main campaign city. I want to blow up somebody's place of work and imagine the stupid look on their face when they show up on Monday, all that remains of their 401k glistening wetly in their eyes. Crackdown 1 fun. Crackdown 3 is Crackdown 1. Therefore Crackdown 3 fun? No. That's where the mathematics breaks down. Maybe I've changed. Maybe it's not just my hairline that's receded in the last 10 years. I found Crackdown 3 very boring. Go to place and shoot all the things with icons above them, repeat. The only thing that threw a wrench in the works was when my weapon switching button arbitrarily decided I hadn't pressed it respectfully enough and that it wasn't going to bloody work. But even then, the average 
tech industry CEO faces more consequences for failure. The only time I felt really challenged was during one of the later boss fights against a dude in a giant mech, and that was just frustrating. He spawns too many helpers to keep track of, all with hitscan weapons and in an arena with no cover, but after seven failed attempts I realised that I could jump out of a window, cling to the side of the building where they couldn't reach me, and wait ten minutes for my health to come back. Yahtzee, that's cheaper than a baby bird with Tourette syndrome. Hey, I'm just using the tools that are available. Blame whoever left this window open, which must have been Crackdown's last semblance of marketability as it was committing suicide. You know I could have reviewed Devil May Cry 5 this week, I didn't for three reasons. Firstly, contempt for my fellow man as usual, second, release drought has got to hit sooner or later so it's wiser to keep your nest feathered, and third, Square Enix put out Left Alive and hoped I wouldn't notice. I think the first time I saw it advertised was like the day before it came out, and even then its completely unmemorable title wouldn't leave a finger mark in a bowl of watery porridge. I kept thinking it was called Still Alive, but of course that was the name of the song from Portal. That's my immune system in action, when it detects the presence of Mondo shittiness it starts thinking about really good games to keep my hormones balanced. Left Alive is bad, have no doubt, but it's not the usual boring badness, i.e. the same hacked out shit is always callously designed to ring from the mentally disadvantaged the money that their schools and workplaces give them if they promise not to show up. It's the much more interesting for my purposes, bafflingly horribly designed bad, that some idiot actually published. Come on Square Enix, you're old enough to know better, what happened to the sterling business minds that published… Hmm. If I gave you money, would you go away? Left Alive is about a haunting vision of the future in which two parts of Russia, populated mysteriously by people with American accents, decide to call themselves silly names and declare war on each other, with the focus being on some individuals from the less shitty country, struggling to survive in a city occupied by the more shitty country as the occupiers move to exterminate everyone non-shitty. I'll spare us the detailed plot summary, AJP Taylor, just tell us what kind of game it is. Do you know, audience? I'm not sure. I could tell you what it isn't. It isn't very good, but in gameplay terms I suppose it's primarily a stealth game. You can see the Metal Gear solid influence as our protagonist springs into a dodge roll like a teenager leaping to slam the laptop lid closed as his mum walks in, and it does the MGS thing of giving us tons of unnecessary solutions. You can craft grenades, and sticky grenades, and remote grenades, and sticky remote grenades, but then 99% of the time all you need to do is chuck an old tin and leg it in the opposite direction. But then at other times it feels like survival horror with evil Russians, although it might just be because the first two cunts you control are American-accented Russian Leon Kennedy and American-accented Russian Claire Redfield, and then every now and again the game lets you pilot a giant robot for about nine seconds in a sort of tone-deaf attempt to spice things up, equivalent to splicing Transformers movie clips into the boring bits of The Hunt for Red October. Each mission is set in an open-ended part of the city, and the objective is usually move your fat American-accented Russian arse over to where the checkmark is. But there are also side objectives in the form of escorting civilians to safety. Oh boy, let's add the shittiest parts of Dead Rising to the list of things we're not sure if we're ripping off or not. It does do the Dead Rising thing where before you subject yourself to the terrible gameplay you have to prove that you're worthy of it. I ran into one civilian who wouldn't let me escort her until she went through a dialogue tree, and if I picked anything but one specific thread of responses from a list that all seemed to mean the exact same thing, she fucking popped herself in the skull, and then I had to pretend to look disappointed. But the true shit shower of Left Alive all falls upon one flimsy umbrella, and that's bad AI. In fact, if there were a bad games version of Captain Planet, then I Am Alive would be chosen to wield the power ring of bad AI. It all starts when you get near the enemy, and you will know about it because the computer voice goes, THE ENEMY ARE APPROACHING every fucking time, like a forgetful sat-nav, so you get into cover, as long as you press the button when you were within the regulation half centimetre from the cover and didn't do a flying somersault in to the open instead. You poke your head out the side of cover to observe the guards, at which point a guard goes, oh look it's someone's head, everyone gets alerted and you get shot fifty times in the body. Granted, yes that would happen in real life, but I've grown used to a sort of gentlemanly etiquette where stealth game cover systems are concerned, but it's in the subsequent conflict that the big brains come out to flex, I chucked a molotov and the enemy screamed and ran away from the fire, then ran straight back into it to double check that it was the thing making his eyeballs melt. At another time I was pinned down in an alley behind a box with no means of escape, and the seventeen guards that were pinning me down just stopped 
firing and wandered off, presumably because they hit the union-mandated 30-second alertness cap. At other times, after popping out, I couldn't tell if a soldier was still unalerted or if he'd had a little Alzheimer's brain fart and forgotten how to move or shoot. Those Alzheimer's brain farts can be contagious too. At one point I was escorting a lady and when she was barely six feet from the shelter, incidentally, yeah, let's put refugees in obvious inescapable holes in the ground in the middle of occupied territory. I'm sure they'll be just fucking dandy. When she caught a whiff of enemy fart and immediately screamed and hugged the ground. Then like six enemy soldiers all came over and clustered around her like a rugby scrum, possibly to compare notes on how to make their guns fire. Fuck, did this army recruit all its conscripts from the special schools? Or will I take off one of those evil faceless helmets and discover naught but a stack of confused hedgehogs in the shape of a man? I think the game itself had an Alzheimer's brain fart and forgot whether it was courting Adolf action or Slobodan stealth. I mean, you have no stealth takedown, unless you count stunlocking a lone enemy with repeated crowbars to the mush, which is as quiet and subtle as a hippo using a portaloo, and most of what you can craft are explosives. But said explosives damage the average enemy soldier about as much as a three-star Yelp review, you can carry less ammunition than a lark's nostril, and if you get spotted and enter combat, you're rolling the dice on either getting your body atomized by gunfire from all directions, or escaping because the enemy all forgot how many legs they had and fell over. But then again, Adolf Action wrestles control back, and I'm suddenly expected to use my nostril full of ammo and sparrow fart grenades to escape a fucking corridor with 50 alerted guys in that I got dumped into after a cutscene. Five Alive is mesmerizingly bad. It's like the world's worst lasagna, I keep finding more layers of dog shit. I'd almost recommend it for the sideshow factor if it weren't so frustrating and unrewarding to play. The precise moment where it all came crashing down for me was when I found a hidden document that displayed a piece of flavoured text, stating that the city council rejected a proposal to overhaul the sewer system. In that moment, the scales fell from my eyes. What the fuck am I doing here? Why the fuck am I reading this? Flavoured text? Only in the sense that plain is a flavour of crisp. As the Christ must once have said as nails were driven through his palms, sometimes I wonder why I fucking bother. I devoted a whole nine brain cells to coming up with a name for the specific genre of fighting games that Devil May Cry and Bayonetta fall into, the kind where defeating all the baddies is secondary to looking damn sexy while you're doing it, and came up with Spectacle Fighters, which is a good name. It conveys the important information, the tumbling syllables of spectacle transition nicely into the smooth finish of fighter. It would fit nicely into a song lyric, Spectacle Fighters make testicles lighter. But then the games industry collectively turns around and says we've decided we're going to call this sort of game character action games. Put a straw in your mouth, stick a gas bottle up your ass, and turn yourself into a soda stream. What the fuck is character action? That doesn't tell you shit. Mavis Beacon teaches typing features a character and actions. Is that a character action game? I hope you realise, games industry, that you need me more than I need you. There are millions of bathroom walls I could be writing this shit on. I had a really good idea for what to call PUBG clones, but I'm not going to tell you it now. Sorry, this was supposed to transition into a Devil May Cry 5 review at some point, but I lost the thread. Let's start again. Devil May Cry is a... <sighs> character action game and direct sequel Devil May Cry 1 through 4, in which case may I be the first to welcome Ninja Theory's attempted reboot, DMC Devil May Cry, to the dustbin of history. I hope you have a good time in there hanging out with the Star Wars expanded universe and most of the Halloween films. DMC 5 is so keen to bring back the previous canon it's almost being slightly aggressive about it. Old Dante's back, looking like a member of Metallica after a near-fatal bleaching accident, as well as Nero from DMC 4. Yes, the whiny teenage replacement protagonist that nobody liked. He's back with a robot arm and he's going to keep coming back with more robot parts until you do like him. That's right, we're doing the full ride-in on this bitch. And let's have every other established character appear as well, even if they've got fuck all to do. Trish and Lady will both appear, they will get beaten up, flash their naked bodies precisely once each, and then spend the rest of the game sitting in the back of the van like two old mattresses you haven't gotten around to taking to the dump. The plot of Devil May Cry 5 is something of a light touch, but then that's usually the case. An evil demon king has taken over a human city, and in order to protect the humans that are all already dead, Dante and the Scooby Gang, who now literally have their own mystery machine, have to go in, cockily fight a few bosses, get beaten up by the unstoppable big boy a few times before having some kind of convenient 
convenient revelation along the lines of I will do whatever it takes to protect my luscious hairdo and turning into a demon or something. The only real curveball of the plot is the third playable character, V, who looks like Adam Driver auditioning for his high school production of A Christmas Carol. More importantly, when you start your first game and are asked to pick Human or Devil Hunter difficulty, I'd advise taking Devil Hunter. Only two difficulty settings is a tricky moment for me, a dedicated medium man. You don't want to get stuck with something too hard when you've got deadlines, so I went for Human. I mean, it seemed like the sort of thing you'd call a medium-y, average-y setting. If there were an insultingly easy mode for Ickle Babies, they'd have called it Toddler, or Frenchman. So I played Human and proceeded to S-rank every level against enemies who couldn't knock down my health bar so much as shave it, which was a tad disappointing. I mean, not playing DMC for the challenge is like going to an Indian restaurant and ordering nothing but naan breads and writer. The challenge and stylish combat are the selling points, and of course those two go together. The combat wouldn't feel as stylish if there wasn't the possibility of buggering it right up an unlubricated chimney. You'll be disappointed if you play DMC5 for the plot. The story really falls apart by the end, after all the reveals are revealed and the last few chapters descend into something halfway between Dragon Ball Z and Days of Our Lives. You'll also be disappointed if you're some kind of interior designer bereft of inspiration and are playing it for the scenery, because large chunks of it are just navigating one washed-out ruined corridor after another that only serve to connect the fights rather than enhance them. But the combat at least will give you what you want, especially if what you want is variety. It's still unlocking new weapons and fighting styles right up to the final mission. Frankly, I find that a bit obnoxious, when the game throws the mystical nunchucks at me when I still haven't gotten to grips with the Cerberus testicle bowlers and the double-ended salad tongs of Toshwa Hay, to say nothing of when we switch playable characters and have to change to a completely different set of combat controls, which is like suddenly having to learn to wank with the other hand. But I guess you're supposed to keep practicing, that's why it follows the usual DMC tradition of having about 9 million super hard difficulty settings that just keep unlocking and unlocking into the stratosphere, and there's something very traditional about Devil May Cry 5 all over, like it's more about re-establishing itself after its time in the Ninja Theory wilderness than in breaking any interesting new ground. With the exception of what I hesitate to call the multiplayer, which just confused the fuck out of me. The first I heard about it was after I finished a chapter and the game went, would you like to rate the other player's performance? And I was like, there was another player? Fuck, don't do this to me, DMC. I get quite enough paranoia from infused gummy bears. What it does is, there are several missions that run parallel to other missions that you do later as a different character, and in these cases the game drops in players who were doing that character's mission to, I don't know, lend authenticity? Harmless enough as gimmicks go, but the problem was when other players were in my game, I don't think I ever saw the fuckers. Each character is kept in separated paths, so you can usually only glimpse them through windows and stuff, and they'd almost always moved on by the time I got there, because I'm a more methodical player who eats too many infused gummy bears. So when they asked me to rate people, I just gave them all a thumbs up whatever, they could have spent the whole mission sitting in the corner telling all the monsters about my erectile dysfunction for all I fucking knew. But who cares, I guess Capcom haven't quite given up on that dubiously consensual drop-in multiplayer shit that ran through Resident Evil 6 like skid marks on a communal towel, but the actual effect is so minimal it hardly seems to have been worth the bother. Capcom seem to be going through a nostalgia trip right now and are doing competent enough work, but while RE2 successfully brought its subject matter up to date, DMC5 feels more like going through the old motions. It delivers if that's what you're into, but be careful Capcom, you can't forever smell your own farts without getting a bit of poo on your nose. Devotion is, or possibly was, a Taiwanese first-person horror game from earlier in the year that came from the same firmament as shit like Layers of Fear, the collective worldwide grieving process and gradual coming to terms with the fact that we're never getting Silent Hills. So it's the PT thing again, you're in a small chunk of someone's residence that you have to visit over and over again with varying quantities of blood dripping out of the skirting board and you have to figure out what horrible thing you did to your spouse this time. Devotion has some puzzling and infusion of Taiwanese culture that elevates it marginally above a typical walking simulator, but none of this matters because you can't have it. Yes, it's been removed from Steam because one of the textures or particle effects or something was interpreted as critical of the Chinese government, and the developers took it down because they didn't want to be black-bagged. Depressing as it is that this sort of thing can happen in 20-fucking-19, I do think it was a bit of an overreaction on Red Candle Games' part to rush out a sequel so quickly that they didn't even spell the name right, and also to move to Sweden and change their names to Massive Entertainment. You could be forgiven for thinking that The Devotion 2 actually has nothing to do with Devotion 1. It appears to be an entirely different game in an entirely different setting, a third-person cover shooter set in a ruined near-future Washington DC. But this all starts to make sense if you consider this an overreaction to the first game getting black-bagged by China and the developers wanting to make nice. After all, nothing cheers up the Chinese 
Chinese government more than watching the US getting its shit ruined, besides the total oppression of dissent and free will in its citizenry, you are a member of a secret peacekeeping organisation that's so secret absolutely everybody knows about it, and you're called to Washington DC by an urgent distress call, arriving at the White House headquarters to find it being besieged by an invading force of about four or five looters. It now being perfectly clear that nobody else in your agency can direct a school nativity play, you have to take over recovering the fallen Washington from, um, the generally speaking bad guys, and returning it to the good guys, meaning you and everyone who doesn't immediately respond to your presence by trying to replace every oxygen molecule in the room with bullets. So a repetitive open-world pseudo-tactical third-person cover shooter might seem about as far away from a small-scale first-person linear adventure as you can get, but as we settle into the primary gameplay loop of The Devotion 2, we see precisely how it intends to carry on the series' legacy of staring existential horror. As you connect with a safe house and a list of numbered objectives appear in the corner of the screen, knowing that all of them will entail the exact same thing, walking into yet another exhaustively decorated large room full of chest-high walls, taking up position and waiting for another parade of identical generic bad guys to inexplicably leap out of cover in turn so you can pop them in the face, and then you will grasp the true horror of your existence that you willingly paid money to play what is essentially a right-wing gun enthusiast version of 52 Pickup for potentially the rest of your life. And in that, The Devotion 2 is a true sequel to the previous- what, what do you want? Well what is it a sequel to then? What, the boring one? Actually that does make more sense. Sorry everyone, little misunderstanding, I'll have to start again. <clears throat> Boring Tom Clancy Ubisoft Sandbox 2 is another The Division. Oh bugger, I've confused myself. One more try. The Division 2 is yet another live service shooter that the publishers would like you to add to your daily schedules, so of course it has a horrible menu interface. After Black Ops 4 and Anthem I am now 100% convinced that shitty menus is a deliberate strategy in live service games. They're either there to make you spend money out of confusion, or make it extremely difficult to quit out of the game in the hopes you eventually give up and stop trying and accept that this game is your life now, or they hope that by putting some nice obvious shittiness to focus on front and centre you'll be distracted from the broad overarching fact that this game is the same tedious bullshit over and over again. You shoot bullets at the enemies to make their health number go down so you can ship at your arbitrary number of objectives and find gear to improve your numbers in rooms with very large numbers of chest-high walls. Someday they're going to refine this all down and make a game where all you do is press plus one on a calculator until you reach the arbitrary point that makes a nearby person's chest cavity explode, and your calculator gets slightly bigger. It'll make billions. All story and context is a complete washout. You might have heard that one of the spokespeople for this game spent several interviews trying to wriggle his way out of saying The Division 2 was in any way political. Despite being a military shooter about killing terrorists in Washington DC. But having played the game, I sort of get what he meant. See, shooters used to be about killing Russians, or Arabs, or PMCs, or someone with some kind of real-world ideology, and yeah, sometimes that could be a bit unneighbourly at best, but the only characterization of the bad guys in Division 2, as well as Far Cry New Dawn thinking about it, is that they're bad guys. Not like us, we're the good ones trying to make something of our lives, they're just self-interested and want to tear down everything we create. But self-interested people don't join gangs. Hey, fuck society, live for yourself. Yeah. Come join our society that opposes society. Yeah. Now put on this uniform and lay down your lives by the hundreds for extreme extremely minor gains. What? No thought seems to have been put into how or why any of them got into the endless arenas where you fight them. You can be in a secret underground lab with one entrance that was locked when you showed up and they still pour in from the back doors the moment you achieve an objective. Were they just growing on the walls like mildew? Of course no thought went into it. Of course they have no character besides bad guy. Anything that might provoke thought or conversation might potentially distract us from getting addicted to the live service number crunching. The real tragedy of games like The Division 2 is all the effort that clearly went into making the calculator plus one button simulator look nice. All those lovely rendered recreations of Washington DC buildings, but take a look at an average one and explain to me the difference between a door you can go through and the merely decorative ones. The answer is, the former has a contextual button prompt, which has nothing to do with environment design so fuck you artists. And fuck all you artists and modellers who filled every single chest high wall arena with endless random garbage and mysterious doors that go nowhere, except when they open and spawn more enemies right behind you in ways you couldn't possibly predict. Oh fuck it, I'm sick of talking about this live service tit wank. I'm gonna play Sekiro. From Software hurt me but they hurt me because they love me, not because it's points 7% more profitable than not hurting me.
Now obviously having played through Dark Souls more times than I've willingly vacuumed my own carpet, when I review a new game by From Software, Dark Souls is going to come up a lot. But even I get bored of saying the name over and over again, so how about this? Every time I want to say Dark Souls, I'll instead say the name of a James Bond film, and we'll see if I can get through them all by the end of the video. That'll add some much needed gaiety to the upcoming whinge. So then, Sekiro Shadows Die Twice is a new game by From Software, the developers of Dr. No, set in a slightly fantasised version of Feudal Japan, and which has been making Neo, Team Ninja's version of From Russia With Love, set in a slightly fantasised version of Feudal Japan, slowly sink to its knees and frustratedly bang its head on the floor. Oh, but wait! Sekiro is not going to be anything like Goldfinger, several correspondents informed me in the run-up to release. I wish I could remember who those people were specifically, because I want to slap them across their big fat lying faces. Yes, the combat is different, and there's a grappling hook and a stealth element and everyone's got feudal Japanese haircuts, but the broad experience is pure thunderball. You explore a series of gloomy environments very fucking carefully, because combat's built for one-on-one -on -one dueling, and if you pull more than two standard baddies at once you might as well sit on a sesame seed bun in preparation for the sloppy joe that will soon be rendered from your living buttocks. Resting at checkpoints restores health, healing potions and brings back all the baddies, and every now and again you stumble into a new boss fight that you have to hurl yourself against like a fucking crash test dummy over and over again, until you can keep your shit together long enough to finally kill the big fat bastard. The plot is, you are Wolf, a lone feudal Japanese warrior who should be really fucking grateful there was no such thing as copyright in the days of lone feudal Japanese warriors, who was the personal shinobi to a little prince boy before the prince boy gets captured as part of a power struggle and the wolf has to go rescue him after the power struggle also struggles one of his arms off. It's surprisingly easy to understand for a From Software game. If this were You Only Live Twice, I'd have expected to need three playthroughs and an afternoon with a wiki to have grasped that much, but here we find another way Sekiro is different to On Her Majesty's Secret Service. The main character is a character, so you can't customise them or change armour or sword, but on the bright side they can actually converse with other characters and don't just gormlessly stand there while a highly suspect dude with a concealed face laughs maniacally about nothing in particular. Also, Sekiro has no multiplayer component, no more messages from other players and their hilarious attempts to construct a reference to Guinevere's tits from pre-selected words and phrases, no more summoning help in boss fights, which was the all-purpose Diamonds of Forever parachute for when you'd spent the whole afternoon using up 900 crash test dummies and simply could not be fucked anymore, but on the other hand, without multiplayer we now have the ability to pause. Holy fucking shit, I'm going to relish the fuck out of this, I'm going to get into a big fight and then pause right in the middle of it and go off to do my fucking laundry, and the enemy will have to just stand there the whole time with their arm up like a stupid twat. Now who needs to get good? Oh Yahtzee, you and your live and let die, can we please stop banging on about the man with the golden gun and start talking about Sekiro You Only Shadow Twice by its own merits? See this is the thing, listener, I sort of have to compare Sekiro to the spy who loved me in order to understand why I, a card-carrying fan of Moonraker, don't like Sekiro as much. Shocked gasp, someone faints, questions asked at Parliament. And it's not because it's too hard. Yes, it was busting my balls like a cranky neighbour enforcing his yard boundaries, but it's just a matter of learning a new set of muscle memories, like when you sprain both your wrists and have to figure out how to wank with a pasta claw. My trouble is, where For Your Eyes Only had extremely versatile combat that allowed you to find your preferred approach to things, blunt weapons, sharp weapons, shields, magic, or the time-honoured martial art of calling a friend to do it for you while you sit at the back eating crisps and shouting advice, in Sekiro it feels like there's only ever one right way of doing things, and it's usually parrying. I was never one for parrying in Octopussy, I always went for rolling behind them and sticking a scimitar up their ass in the technique I like to call the spicy armadillo, but in Sekiro parrying is the only game in town, and if you can't get the hang of constantly parrying multiple times in a row, then you're on the midnight bust of failure country. At other times the enemy would do a thing that makes a big red Japanese character flash on screen and I would respond by going, boy sure would be nice to understand Japanese, in the brief moment I had before being creamed. In these cases the enemy is either doing a thrust, a grab, or a sweep attack, each of which has a best response, but I found it very difficult to read which of the three they were winding up. A lot of the enemies are wearing loose-fitting feudal Japan outfits with lots of dangly bits, so in the heat of the moment and with the murky graphics it's hard to tell what's a sword and what's a leg and what's a fully primed stiffy. I guess that's another thing practice might help, but what does feel iffy to me from a mechanical standpoint is the stealth. Sekiro has taken to stealth focus like a befuddled old grandpa who just discovered MP3 players and is now on a quest to share this wonderful new concept with the world. So it's got enhanced verticality, meaning unlike in Never Say Never Again the jump controls are more intuitive and responsive than a dead hamster at the bottom of a sack of Christmas lights, you have a grappling 
landing hook to put yourself in ideal positions for backstabs and drop kills, and there are icons to show when an enemy is ready for one, as well as awareness indicators, so we can sabotage our lovely scenery with ugly icons just like all those other games you like. But doesn't this feel a bit at odds with the traditional a view to a kill style arena boss fights? I mean, the game does encourage stealth, some of the standard enemies can be right bastards if not caught unawares, and it's quite possible to stealth all the way to a boss and then have an absolutely bugger all practice at the combat you are now going to get locked into and fucking sodomized in. Furthermore, a lot of bosses and mini-bosses have standard enemy helpers, so I'd stealth kill one of them, alert all the rest, run off and hide on a roof or in a laundry hamper for five minutes until they all calmed down, and repeat until only the boss was left. And when the boss was taking multiple attempts, this was about as fun as transporting several shopping trolleys up a gently sloping road. So is Sekiro a game that would appeal to the Living Daylights fans? Honestly, I'd almost recommend it more to non-licensed to kill fans who don't have prior expectations. Your mileage may vary, but I didn't find it as interesting as GoldenEye, or as creative as Tomorrow Never Dies, or as fun as The World Is Not Enough. Oh, die another day, Casino Royale Quantum of Solace. I'm sick of hearing about Skyfall, Yards. Can we please move on? No, we can't. Spectre. Alright, now we can. Well, after Sekiro, it seems the release schedule is going to be stumbling around in a post-coital funk with a shuriken lodged in its forehead for a while, so let's do one of my indie double builds with two recent games that have some kind of connection between them. In this case, they're both named after seven-letter words that end in ard, and absolutely bugger all else. I can already tell I'm going to be breathing through this year's drought periods like a rowboat on a ball pit, so let's start with Unheard. Unheard is a puzzly detective game thing that I had a go at because the premise reminded me of Return of the Obra Dinn, last year's really gosh-darningly main-brace splicingly good puzzly detective game thing that I was very sad to find can only be beaten for the first time once, and then becomes little more than a very atmospheric corpse party. Unheard is another spin on the concept of solving a mystery from listening to snatches of dialogue, and by snatches I mean flipping great wadges of the stuff. The premise is you're given a floor plan and can skip around the last five to ten minutes before a crime or disaster or the ice cream man comes, moving your invisible avatar from room to room listening to conversations between characters. From these conversations you must divine each character's name and ultimately answer one or two broad overhanging questions. Who was the killer? Who stole the painting? Who was the drummer in Roxy Music from 1983, etc. And on the whole, I'd say Unheard suffers from a lack of the sheer elegance and design that made Obradin so hatchbatteningly good. Rather than listening to snatches of dialogue in the brief moments of constructive debate and airing of feelings that occur as a person is getting their head split in half by a giant crab monster, Unheard has us listen to entire conversations and hopes that the relevant pieces of information will craftily sneak by unnoticed once we've all been bored to death. The core gameplay is just systematically going from room to room, listening to all the conversations in turn. And once you've heard them all, the answers are usually obvious. Naming the characters is easy, there's almost always one moment where another character loudly greets them by name as they enter a room, like they're a fucking special guest star on The Simpsons, and there was more than one occasion where the killer turned out to be the guy with the obvious creepy psycho voice. I didn't get much deductive challenge out of Unheard, is me point. It felt more like constantly moving inexorably towards success the more I listened to, and the scenarios all feel so very contrived, partly because it seems odd that everyone in the building should be having incredibly relevant exposition-heavy dialogues throughout the entire five minutes up to the incident, when you'd think at least some of them would just be talking about lunch or going to the toilet, partly because the actors were apparently all told that this was their big chance to get out of radio ads and the theme park mascot costumes and finally get into big time shit like anime dubs and softcore porn, so they're all doing massively overblown performances with their best Bugsy Malone accents. Alright, maybe my melancholy tinged love of Obra Dinn is making me overly cruel about this, it's harmless enough fun, and there are at least a couple of solid aha moments, so it might be worth a look if you're still jonesing for another hit of that Obra Dinn you sold three more characters music, but with its short length and lack of complexity, Unheard has even less replay value than Obra Dinn, and it doesn't have that wonderful atmosphere to drink in unless 
Nigel Keane on the atmosphere of an amateur dramatics class in a Los Angeles rehab centre. So our second game is Outward, an indie open-world RPG with survival crafting elements. Now if you're anything like me, that description probably has you nodding and smiling and slowly backing away as your gaze nervously flicks around checking the exits, but give it a chance because the emphasis is more on the RPG and the survival than the crafting, and at no point are you given the ability to build a house. I'm here to explore and slit up Velociraptor's open-world survival RPG developers, why the fuck would I want to build a house that A cannot move and B doesn't go rawr? Truth be told, I probably wouldn't have given Outward much of my time if it weren't for two things I found intriguing. First of all, you start the game, wake up in your nice bed, yawn, stretch, put on your jeans, head out the door and then a crowd of people on your doorstep call you a cunt. Well, that would have livened up the start of Chrono Trigger, or basically any Pokemon game. Not only do they think you're a cunt, but you've got five days to pay 150 silver and if you can't pony up they're going to burn down your house or something. And that's how you get to grips with the game, by immediately having to go out and find a way to pay off the local neighbourhood watch come protection racket. And only after you do that can anything approaching a plot start. I like this, because while some games will just immediately overload you with plot characters and places to go, Outward doesn't give you much beyond one simple goal and leaves you to figure out the rest. Maybe you'll do some side quests, maybe you'll hunt and scavenge enough stuff to sell, or maybe you'll just hop aboard the nearest boxcar and resign yourself to a life of furiously sucking dick like a starving hedgehog in a worm farm. The other feature that impressed me early on was the combat, and specifically the fact that you can press a single button to ditch your backpack where you stand and can come back for it when you finish dodge rolling the enemy's balls off. Many things would benefit from a dedicated immediately stripped down to your pants button, dark souls, awkward job interviews, etc. Sadly, Outward couldn't sustain its appeal after the good first impression. Mosey on back to the start of this paragraph and note my usage of the phrase anything approaching a plot, because most of the time Outward doesn't so much approach a plot as hang around outside its house until somebody calls the police. The main point of the game is travelling. There's no fast travel, everything's spread out like your mum's legs at a farmer's market, and travelling by night is about as advisable as bobbing for hair dryers, so every journey is a little mini-adventure in map reading, resource management and picking your battles, but the characters you're travelling to are rather hollow and little more than nodes connecting the journeys. I finally reach the next city and the person I'm supposed to meet and they're like, good boy now, why don't you go back to the starting city and see if they need anything. I thought this game was called Outward, not Outward Inward Shake It All Aboutward. I'm also not a fan of the way you never truly die. It's a fairly universal measure of a game's frustration, how long it takes after failure to get back in a position to have another crack. And this game's like, oh no you died, never mind, just have a six hour rest to get your health back, scavenge up more food and water, figure out where the fuck we just spawned you, and then trek back over. Or I could reload a save, no you fucking couldn't, we literally won't let you, and I don't feel enough sense of purpose to mitigate the annoyance, so in conclusion, Outward doesn't go anywhere, and Unheard won't shut up. Next week, a game called Piers Morgan about a human being who deserves to be alive. Did you know that the Wii U is remembered by history as a failure? I mean, unless you want to call Wikipedia a liar, there it is, right under the Vectrex and the Virtual Boy on the list of commercial flops. I was a little surprised, I mean, I know the Wii U was a giant awkward etch-a-sketch that couldn't leave the room or fit into a purse but nonetheless dreamed of being a handheld, the way a giant panda dreams of learning to tap dance, and I know there was that whole incident where Satoru Iwata had to dock his own pay and chop off a finger in front of the shareholders, but it's rare for me to feel so completely vindicated by hindsight. The console that brought us Devil's Third a failure? Surely not. Well, far too fucking late as it may be to suggest improvements, like for example a controller that didn't feel like holding three classic Game Boys scotch taped together, maybe the problem was that it didn't have enough Yoshi's Island sequels that looked like they were made from the contents of your grandma's biscuit tin. Hopefully now the Switch can pick up where the Wii U left off with Yoshi's Crafted World, which isn't the greatest title in the world, lacking the alliteration of Yoshi's Woolly World, Yoshi's Crafted World just sounds like the name of a TV show that goes out at about 3pm on BBC Two, designed to distract retirees from setting fire to themselves for another half hour, and it doesn't even entirely commit to the crafting aesthetic. I spotted at least one slime monster, what's that supposed to represent Nintendo, the moment when your little brother gets bored and pours jam on the crafting project? Anyway, the Yoshis are on their island, continuing their carefree lives of skipping about saying bum a lot, when baby Bowser, who seems to be really struggling for things to fill his time with in these days before puberty hits, and he takes an interest in date rape, decides to steal their five magical gems and one of the Yoshis has to go across the world gathering 
deciphering them all up again because, I don't know, someone wrote all the Netflix passwords on them. Look, you have to gather the gems because if you didn't, you wouldn't get to play the video game. The plot hardly matters. Although someone should have explained that to the cutscene writer. There's altogether too much dialogue for a game where motivation can be just as easily established by having the villain lean into shot, shake their fist for a second, then lean back out of shot. Dialogue scenes that include dialogue choices of all things. The villains seem weirdly invested in the opinions of a barely sentient creature that can just about lick things and say bum, although I suppose that puts them above most alternative comedians. I must confess, listeners, that I'm a little bit biased against Yoshi's Island and its present-day derivatives. Of all the chapters of what we might as well call the original Mario canon, I like Yoshi's Island the least. Not just because listening to Baby Mario cry made me want to vaccinate him against continuing to be alive, not just because of the questionable way in which Yoshi would swallow enemies and then poo them out of his implied cloaca, not even because the aiming controls were shit, and still are shit, despite the no longer having the excuse that the controller isn't full of unused buttons and analog sticks, all hankering to muck in like a bunch of guilt-stricken white people at an African house-building project. No, the main reason Yoshi's Island sits poorly with me is that it introduced to a hitherto perfectly straightforward series of platformers the idea that there can be degrees of success. See, in Mario World, you can crawl across the finish line as Tiny Mario with shards of tortoise shell lodged in your face, or you can break the tape with the tip of your giant powered-up stiffy and either counts equally as a win. You can find your own level of success. But Yoshi's Island doesn't tick the level off as properly done until you find all the invisible secret places and end it with full health, and thus began video gaming's dark history of exploiting the obsessive instinct, something that set the path that led us all the way to our current apocalyptic age of live service loot box labouring. All it took was for one cunt to realise that that sense of fulfilment one gets from the level 100% completed jingle is something people might conceivably pay extra for. A cunt who will one day be remembered alongside the dude who fucked the monkey that gave us AIDS. Mummy, can I watch this funny internet video about my favourite Yoshi game? Of course, darling, there's hardly likely to be a reference to the dude that fucked the monkey that gave us AIDS. Alright, maybe I'm being a touch hysterical about the game about the silly dinosaur that goes bum. I just miss the times when you could be done with a game. In Crafted World, you're not even done after you 100% the level, because then you got to go back to find three hidden puppies and do the scavenger hunts and fuck me. Baby Bowser's probably going to have the five magic gems threaded onto his anal beads by the time we're done with all this. And of course, even more levels unlock after you beat the inaccurately titled Final Boss, where the difficulty rather suddenly lurches upwards like an uptight middle-aged woman being tased. Still probably shouldn't complain about extra gameplay. Speaking of loot boxes, Crafted World has a sort of plastic Fisher Price version so the kiddies can cram it full of fake money for random rewards and pretend they're making themselves financially insolvent for real, just like Mummy and Daddy. Lacking any other use for all the coins you pick up, Nintendo having finally given in and tearfully pressed the pillow down upon the face of live systems some years ago, you instead load them into a toy capsule machine and get random costumes for fun dress-ups. Except not for fun dress-ups because they have a gameplay effect. The super rare costumes let you tank a frankly insane five additional hits before you start losing health. So why the fuck would you wear anything else? All aesthetic preferences out the window, maybe you think the bottle cap costume is a sportier little number, but when there's both survival and the extra flower for beating the level at full health at stake, I'll dress up like a fucking cowpat for five free hits. The costume falls off if you use up the free hits, but you don't lose it, the game just forces you through the rigmarole of going back to the costume menu between levels to put it back on. And I'm not sure why. Maybe it's trying to indirectly teach children the important lesson that should for any reason your pants fall off, you should address the matter before continuing with the day's business. Yoshi's crafty wank is soured for me by the little frustrations, but a lot of that comes from my own obsessive standards. I hate how you can't retry a failed timed challenge without restarting the whole vulva splicing level. And then the obvious gap on the summary screen at the end is a dark sucking anus in the chorus line of my life. If you just want something to distract your little ninjas for an afternoon, it'll probably do the job, just make sure they take the right lessons from it. Not the one about how the best way to claim something you want is to throw something at it that came out of your arse. My fourth novel, Differently Morphous, is finally available in print and ebook editions. Check in with your local bookseller. They'll probably appreciate it, they tend to be lonely people. Another Mortal Kombat game, another stream of gore about as meaningful and justified as a layer of gravy in an ice cream sundae. Another opening paragraph in which I try to explain what the fuck I think I'm doing reviewing a one-on-one -on -one fighting game, when I think fighting games are for people who drink undiluted syrup and enjoy core mechanics reminiscent of having to repeatedly and very quickly enter the combination
installation on a high school locker door with some pictures of bikini girls on it. I mean, I never really engage with the gameplay of fighting games when I can get through them reliably enough by strapping the controller to the end of my knob and having sex with a pinball machine, but the thing is, listener, the idiosyncratic Netherrealm multi-character story mode that began in Mortal Kombat vs DC Universe is something I've actually begun looking forward to, because they are, to a man, hilariously fucking dumb. I think Mortal Kombat must have caught some kind of venereal infection from the DC Universe during that crossover, and now it's got the same disease superhero comics have. It already had some of the symptoms, like every character having the exact same body type, which was unavoidable in the original Mortal Kombat's because everyone was mo-capped from, like, two guys with a box of assorted ninja pyjamas, but even in, say, MK9, take all the lads in the roster, put paper bags on their heads, remove their clothes, and tell me how many you're confident you could identify, before you're all overcome by sexual tension. And if Mortal Kombat does have superhero comics disease, then it appears to have entered its terminal stage, as it's officially having its own crisis on infinite Earths. To put that another way, the official message of Mortal Kombat 11 story mode is fuck continuity and fuck anyone who is invested in it. You probably should have known not to get invested after MK9, I mean any franchise that so openly and deliberately flushes its entire canon down the toilet is almost certainly going to keep doing it, and indeed the end point of the MK11 story mode all but states that not only is everything reset yet again, but no future continuity is going to have any permanence either. Yards, who the fuck is invested in the continuity of Mortal Kombat? You're supposed to be invested in the kicking people in the bollocks so hard that their skeletons pop out. Maybe, but Mortal Kombat 10 was making some real moves in retrospect. There's a time jump, a slew of new characters, existing characters became more nuanced, Outworld becomes a complex community rather than the evil masters of the universe on protein powder dimension. It really felt like things were growing, and now all that's gone straight in the fucking bin. There's this very superhero comics plot about a goddess trying to reset time and enlisting all the baddies who've been whittled on enough times to be invested in their do-over. Present versions of characters interact with past versions so Johnny Cage can seriously consider making like the franchise in general and disappearing up his own arse. You might have noticed the internet had one of its idiosyncratic opposite sides of the monkey cage poo-flinging contests over the netherrealm lads saying they're not going to put all their female characters in bikinis anymore because it's silly and impractical. Which it is, granted, but I noticed that most of these ostensibly more practically minded dressers are still wearing stiletto heels, and as for silly, of all the silly things about Mortal Kombat this seems a very arbitrary place to start rather than, say, noob cybot talking like Talk to Claw from Inspector Gadget. If this was about claiming wokeness then rest assured no one is looking to your bollock kick skeleton pop-out game for role models, Netherrealm. At least I fucking hope not. Mortal Kombat is in the same boat as Metal Gear Solid, it's completely silly, and we're all aware that it's silly, but we never acknowledge that because if it realised how silly it was it wouldn't be as funny anymore. It's gloriously stupid how the ultra-visceral core gameplay is placed alongside dialogue and story with the tone of a Saturday morning cartoon. There's one bit in the story mode that summarises this point wonderfully. Scorpion gets heel face turned yet again because the dude's a fucking weather vane on a merry-go-round, and shows up at the good guy's hideout and obviously they don't believe him because what is the story mode if not one ridiculously contrived reason for a punch-up after another? So after Scorpion successfully beats the snot out of a couple of them he says, wait you misunderstand my intentions. Oh did we Mr Scorpion, forgive me. I thought you were making your intentions perfectly clear about ten seconds ago when you rammed two daggers into my eye sockets and then power bombed me into the floor so they burst out the back of my head, but clearly I was jumping to conclusions and you were only trying to give me emergency cataract surgery. I also note a couple of classic characters showing up in the campaign who are mysteriously absent from the roster, like Shiva and those two robot fellas, which for me smacks of the game going, hope you're saving up your DLC pennies, you dumb predictable plebs. Between this and Injustice 2, Netherrealm are really cornering the market on live service fighting games. The crypt mode used to be a fun little way of unlocking concept art costumes and finishers, now it's this massively elaborate time sink obliging us to grind Mortal Kombat fun bucks in return mostly for single-use consumables that you can use to make a fight easier, because why the fuck would anyone play a video game to be challenged? Or one of seven quintillion cosmetics. Not costumes, cosmetic. Costumes are fun, cosmetics are just one of the many exciting ways a live service game tricks you into thinking that something utterly fucking useless has value. Costumes are when Johnny Cage dresses up like Columbo and everyone has a good laugh. Cosmetics are when you randomly unlock a pink belt buckle that Commander character I 
never use can wear instead of the default, which doesn't match or bring out his eyes, but I equip it anyway, along with a puke-coloured fishing hat I found, because fuck it, I put in the work. And now Commander CINU has to go into battle looking like he tried to dress himself after Scorpion gave him emergency cataract surgery, and everyone just looks like a mess. Again, I feel unqualified to discuss the actual fighting gameplay, it's probably alright, animation seems to have improved, although I noticed the fatalities all end on a freeze frame of the climactic moment, possibly to spare us all the boring stuff afterwards while we fill out the insurance forms and get complained at by the janitors, but it does make them feel a bit anticlimactic. Even a fighting game has to rely on context to a point, and on that front I find Mortal Kombat 11 quite a letdown. The general presentation comes across as careless. The story's woeful, as ever, thankfully, that's why it's fun, but it's woeful and undermining itself as well. The pre-fight banter just doesn't have the spark it used to, and if you're going to complain about the character's looks, fuck the bikinis, or the deliberate absence of bikinis, or whatever it was that was icing your prostate this time, complain about how Kotal Khan has 20 functionally identical cummerbunds you have to grind for, complain about how Sonya Blade and Cassie Cage have the exact same face, and whenever they have to emote they look like they're trying to hold pencils in place with their face wrinkles. My fourth novel, Differently Morphous, is finally available in print and ebook editions. Check in with your local bookseller. They'll probably appreciate it, they tend to be lonely people. I do enjoy spending the week trying out new indie games on Steam. Brings back nostalgic memories of my childhood when I used to dive into the part of the canal near the sewage runoff pipes and then have to spend the afternoon combing turds out of my hair. But every now and again, amidst the turds, I'd find a real treasure. Like a used condom, the sperm bank would pay a whole 50p for one of those once I'd finished chewing it. Man, it was great growing up upper middle class. So it's mostly been a pixel art jamboree this week. First I tried out Forager, a 2D pixel art twist on the survival crafting grind em up genre that presently occupies the bit of gaming like a giant farting horse that won't stop hogging the blanket, which I played until I really realised that being in a small environment smashing rocks is what you do when you're in a prison, but without the possibility of forbidden romance. Then I tried out Dark Devotion, another 2D pixel art twist on Dark Souls to add to the pile, which discovered that once you take the majestic scenery and sterling level design out of Dark Souls, all you have left is a game moodily blatting you in the face with a rake for eight hours. Finally I settled on Katana Zero, a 2D pixel art twist on hideous psychedelic violence. Also it's published by Devolver Digital, obviously. Because the phrase 2D pixel art hideous psychedelic violence is to Devolver Digital what the word walkies is to an understanding stimulated dog with poor bladder control. In fact, I was thinking about listing the features of Katana Zero as part of a hilarious games published by Devolver Digital bingo card, until I realised I was just writing down features from Hotline Miami. Pixel art and hideous violence, check, that's the given, that's the bloodstained arugula forming the base of the horrible Devolver Digital salad, a colourful retro aesthetic particularly themed around retro forms of media in a way that would give Quentin Tarantino an even bigger priapism than the one he gets from his morning bowl of discontinued breakfast cereal, check, high speed gameplay where you can reload and try again before your death rattle has even gotten six inches past your tonsils, check, emphasis on soundtrack, check, somewhat obscure plot full of hallucinatory moments strongly implying that the main character is on enough drugs to fill out one of Michael Jackson's average weekly prescriptions, cinnamon checks with sausage on the side. So to put it bluntly, Katana Zero is side-on platforming Hotline Miami, but there's also a bit of gunpoint in there and a bit of Mother Russia bleeds, if only because that too is another strong contender for Devolver Digital the game. But does it have any ideas of its own? Well, in Katana Zero you play a complete loser with a Japanese sword, as referenced by the title. You spend your days hacking up assassin targets given to you by your psychiatrist because I guess punching a pillow wasn't doing it for you anymore, and you keep taking a magic drug that gives you the power to see the future, but which is probably also turning your brain to blancmange. It's the kind of plot where you're a small piece of a larger intrigue and none of your manipulators ever tell you anything, it might take more than one playthrough to fully grasp it, so it's just as well that the gameplay kicks ass. 
mostly. Your precognition means that your failed attempts are all framed as possible futures, and also gives you a slow motion power, so at the end of the level you see a replay of your successful run as the timeline that actually happens for realsies, and all the slow motion stuff plays at normal speed. I've often thought games with slow motion could use something like this. Doing something in slow motion isn't that impressive, because I can see how the game has slowed down and extended the wheelchair ramp to let my masturbation adult thinking keep up. But when the game then shows you how what you just did looks from an outside perspective, you can go, oh, okay, I'm a fucking badass. I mean, I suspected as much. I do masturbate to a heroic degree, but it's nice to see it confirmed. Every enemy dies in one hit, and you can dodge and deflect bullets, so on a successful run you sweep through all resistance like a red-hot knife through a knife-hotness inspection, and it generally kicks ass. Just a shame there's so much plot in the way. And now all the game developers will throw down and stamp their baseball caps they got free at GDC and cry, he's officially impossible to please. Sorry, I do like narrative, it's just I think this is the super-hot and quadrilateral cowboy problem where they came up with a lovely little original gameplay loop but refused to let it breathe properly and keep killing the pace for the sake of story moments. Press right to walk over to the fridge, press X to heat up left leftovers for tea. Was this necessary game? I'm happy to just assume my character picked up drive through on the way home from the murder spree. Then there are a couple of gameplay asides that fit into the core combat about as comfortably as a hypochondriac into a bat of assorted cattle guts. One of your assassination targets flees on a motorbike and we give chase on a second convenient motorbike and suddenly we're playing an arcade shooter from the early 90s where we dodge slow predictable missiles that move like they're on wheelchairs when five minutes ago I pressed the dodge button two frames earlier than I should have done and my knackers were shot clean off right into someone's martini. And then there's a stealthy bit because that's just what a high speed drug fueled katana bisectathon needs, a bit of hiding in a cupboard with a sushi roll up my ass, waiting for a gap in the guard patrol route, multiple sargasms, and it's flat out fucking broken because sometimes the guard's positions reset in such a way that there are no gaps in the patrol routes and you run out the stage time limit waiting for the fat gits to stop farting visibility cones at the only door. I say stealth section, you're perfectly free to give everyone a wazakashi prostate massage, but my transparently evil handler told me not to kill anyone, so obviously I try to do that because otherwise the level's completely fucking trivial and a game without challenge is like fucking your own dog. Where's the thrill of sexual conquest? he's right there, and up until this point trusted you. But I did a second playthrough to see what consequences occur if you don't stealth it up, and the answer was bugger all. Your transparently evil handler just calls you a naughty boy, which depending on your tastes might be considered a reward. This is far from the only time the game's story implies that you're making a significant choice that swiftly proves to be nothing of the sort. There's this one choice you have to make that the game builds up across like three of its interminable fucking dialogue trees, and when you finally get to make the choice it comes down to do you want to continue playing this game what you paid money for, or do you want to die, and then quit, and then, I don't know, stick your head up a fish. So let's tot up the main points, Katana Zero is a game with heartbreakingly good pixel art and animation with a neat core gameplay loop that's just crying out for some kind of infinite challenge mode so I can get it clamped nice and tightly around my nipples but it needed to ease off the story pedal a tad. It's not awful, it's just got too much setup and not enough payoff, like a wet t-shirt contest where they all left their bras on. Days Gone is painfully generic. Thanks for watching this week's Zero Punctuation, see you next time. That was 40 hours of my life well fucking spent. Odd phrase that, painfully generic. When I think of painful, I think of knees to the balls, punches to the stomach, paddles to the buttocks, splinters under the fingernails, but I wouldn't- oh, pins in the bell end, that's the other one I think about. But I wouldn't call any of those generic. Playing Days Gone isn't like a chisel to the elbow, it's more like having to move a large quantity of ball pit balls from one room to another because you hadn't heard that your future prank victim was changing offices, and all the balls are painted greyish brown and have very poor communication skills. Sorry I'm rambling, but your thoughts will probably start rambling too before I finish describing this fucking game. Days Gone is a zombie apocalypse wilderness sandbox five-a-side football simulator. Not that last part, I was just making sure you're awake. It is the fucking example zombie wilderness sandbox that comes with the zombie wilderness sandbox construction kit. You want stealthy base assaults? Limber up that distraction rock throwing arm and get ready to crouch walk up to oblivious bandits like a knife wielding goomba. You want crafting? You'll be slapping enough molotovs together to supply Boris Yeltsin for an entire breakfast. And you'll have plenty of time to think about how all this scrounging for crafting materials is an apt metaphor 
for for life in modern society while you're waiting for all the fucking loading times. To call the game soul crushing would still be too dramatic a phrase, more like it put a large beanbag chair on my soul and then a cat lay on it and I don't want to wake it up. So the plot. In a zombie apocalypse that for all you fans of crossovers could fit comfortably inside the continuity of about 12 other zombie games I can think of, a biker named Deacon St. John is bumming around rural Oregon being depressed because he lost his wife in the apocalypse. There, that sums up roughly the first 20 hours of the plot. The game feels so fucking drawn out, which I partly blame on the dialogue. They should have called Days Gone Verbal Tick the game. Maybe it's more naturalistic to pepper every line with ums and errs and stutters and flubs, but it's so fucking exhausting to listen to. And Deacon St. John is the verbal tickiest of them all, constantly, uh, talking like he's just woken up and is working a, a kink out of his back and really can't be bothered with your bullshit right now. Of all the video game protagonists I've been unreasonably obliged to identify with, I struggle to think of one I dislike more than Deacon St. John. Even Jeffrey Cuddletrousers from Hatred at least had some fucking ambition in life. At least he knew how to express himself, didn't just mumble into his shoes all the time. He didn't sulk and whine every time someone asked him to do something, like a teenager when the bins need putting out. And he didn't passive-aggressively criticise them under his breath the moment their backs were turned. He'd mainly just stab them in the face and shit. But the developers apparently thought Deacon St. John's dynamic personality needed to be a constant presence. So he has to comment on fucking everything. Oh, I picked up a bottle, another Molotov, is it? Yawn. And another thing, stop second guessing my intentions, Deacon St. John. I walk two feet out of a zombie clear out zone to get a better look at it, and you go, oh, I guess I'll finish clearing it out later then. You'd like that, wouldn't you, you lazy bastard? What was your job at that biker gang you used to be in? Because I think it must have been taste testing the crystal meth. Part of why Days Gone is so generic is that it struggles to focus on any one idea, so all its features feel very token. Token upgrades, token guns, token nails added to token baseball bats to incite token head trauma. At the start of the game, Deacon divides his time between two survivor camps, neither of which he wants to officially join because he'd rather spend his mornings lying in watching MTV, like the total fuckhead he is. One camp will sell him weapons and the other has bike upgrades, but one is run by slavers and the other by weirdo truthers still calling for the rotting corpse of Barack Obama's birth certificate. So deciding which one to support is a semi-interesting dilemma. Until that is, you unlock the third camp, which has weapons and bike upgrades and is run by a large friendly golden retriever. So that initial conflict disappears unfulfilled from the game like a bloke losing his nerve and speed walking out of a brothel. So the plot centres around the nice camp for a while and seems to be coming to a natural conclusion until we suddenly have to leave and go to a completely different camp full of completely different characters in a locked off part of the map for another eight hours of game. Get to the plopping point! And incidentally, why does every camp, even the ones cut off from each other, use the same zombie lingo? Swarmers, newts, ragers, what, has the government been airdropping pamphlets on proper forms of address in the post-apocalypse? Surely Days Gone has some unique selling point, yards. This isn't the 80s when you could just knock off another company's lawn mowing simulator and call it done. Well, Days Gone is basically zombie Red Dead Redemption 2 with even less stuff happening, and a motorbike instead of a horse, and fuel instead of delicious hay. And you have to watch your fuel meter, which can lead to interesting organic moments when you're stranded in the wilderness and need to hoof it for gas, but the scenery is too repetitive to make the most of it. If it weren't for the map, every time I ran into a gas station, a government checkpoint, or a tunnel full of wrecked cars, I'd assume Deacon's dumb ass was going in circles again. The other unique feature that appeared in all the E3 videos, in that typically suspicious, slightly more impressive than it ever is in the finished game kind of way, is zombie hordes. And yes, I suppose it's quite impressive how it can render enough zombies at wants to get a really foul-smelling Mexican wave going, but how to put this? So fucking what? You find a zombie horde every now and again, you run away from it, or you die, that's all it offers. It always feels more like an incidental than an integral part of the game, especially since most of your time is spent goomba creeping around groups of five or six enemies sticking knives in their ears, although on one occasion a horde blew through a bandit camp and killed everyone just before I could, which was galling, if hilarious. Days Gone feels to me like a victim of the usual AAA process, an idea that has been stretched and pulled apart and reworked and put back together until no one remembers what the original idea was, or 
or even who had it. I hate the rambling story and the fiddly two-level weapon wheel that only successfully selects the kind of ammo you want if you remember to say thank you. And I hate Deacon St. John, the man who's less sparkling company than the mangled top half of a squirrel trying to drag itself off a road. But in his own way, the ideal protagonist for this game, because the game is going to do exactly what he'd do in any social situation. Stand around muttering for a while and then bugger off, possibly killing a few people. But that's crunch time for you. Somehow I'd expect more from something that calls itself the Epic Store. I picture a place with ten foot high golden doors where all the staff dress in togas that sells nothing but copies of the Odyssey tattooed onto the side of white stallions. And when you swipe your credit card it makes a lightsaber noise. At least something more than dark grey boxes and no user reviews. But whether you think the Epic Store is an inferior pretender trying to buy its way to the winner's table by holding sought after games hostage, or a viable means to break Steam's digital distribution monopoly that at least has a slightly higher level of quality control than a starving goat in the alleyway behind a KFC, either way it's something we're going to have to live with. For me, I'm happy for any source of indie games that actually curates them a bit. The indie game sphere can be a wonderful thing, but my god it produces shit like an uh, extremely well-fed goat in the alleyway behind a KFC. And this week it was one of the indie games presently exclusive to the Epic Store that caught my eye, mainly because the graphic on the store page made it look like the lady was annoyed that the logo kept electrocuting her shoulder. Close to the sun. And now having played it, I find myself wanting to talk about it because it highlights that sometimes the difference between homage and ripoff is a line no thicker than a walrus whisker. Stop me if this starts to sound familiar. In an alternative late 19th, early 20th century style setting, a lone adventurer in the middle of the ocean arrives at the doorstep of an isolated high-tech electropunk city, founded by a charismatic visionary and populated by the world's best and brightest, promised a place where they could work without fear of regulation and be entitled to the sweat of their brow and all that, but as soon as we get in we find it seemingly deserted and more littered with bodies than a corridor in a hall of residence at about 2am on the first night of spring break. Shortly, the two or three remaining survivors contact us by radio, including the charismatic visionary himself who initially takes us for a spy, and our goal is to escape, determining on the way what precisely befell this failed utopia. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yes, it's quite hauntingly reminiscent of Jet Set Willy. I mean Bioshock, obviously. Close to the Sun isn't so much wearing its influence on its sleeve as fashioning an entire bathrobe from its influence's box art. I mean it even uses a similar fucking font. It's so blatant it makes me wonder how much the game is inviting the comparison, extremely poorly advised as that might be since Bioshock kicks ass and Close to the Sun hasn't an ounce of its clever subtlety. It's called Close to the Sun for fuck's sake. Do you get it? Yes, Close to the Sun, I get it, it's a reference to the Icarus myth. Yeah, cause like, they're scientists and they tried to progress too fast so they were flying too close to the sun. Yes, I already said, I get it. My high school English teacher liked it. I'm sure he did! For another example, the Andrew Ryan stand-in who founded the city is Nikola Tesla. As in actual Nikola Tesla, the person. And I believe I've counselled before that one should be wary of any game in which Nikola Tesla is a character. It happens with slightly alarming frequency, because he's the pin-up boy of choice for a certain kind of person frequently found in video game development. The man whose capacity for making things go whoosh-crackle-kabang in exciting new ways made him accepted in society despite having the social skills of a leper with no inside voice. So yeah, a lot less subtle. Although that might on reflection be the wrong word for Bioshock, a game that's central fighting diving suit cyborgs with giant drills for hands. There's not much of that in Close to the Sun, there's not much of any kind of gameplay truth be told, it's of a type not unlike a walking simulator but a sort of advanced level walking simulator, where you get messily killed if you don't walk in precisely the correct manner at times. There's a lot of waiting for the right moment to walk in between bolts of electricity, and on a few occasions you have to walk very briskly away from hunty chasey monsters, because this is a first person horror game with no combat mechanics, so what the fuck else did you think you would be doing if not outlasting this shit? Generally the grace period you're given to internalise the fact that we have moved from the introspective exploration bit to the fleeing blubbering for our life as fast as our shit spattered legs can carry us bit is around 4 nanoseconds, so you get killed very quickly if you don't follow the precise intended path. Also, all the jumping in this game is contextual, so if you have to jump over an obstacle during the chase sequence all you can do is hammer on the use button as you approach and hope to god the animation triggers before the chaser covers the 8 or 9 centimetres of distance you have on them. Oh, I was so eager to shit on the chasing sequences I forgot to summarise the bits of the plot that aren't Bioshock. You play as a feisty hotshot reporter lady who comes to Rapture, I mean Helios, in search of her sister, a feisty hotshot 
child scientist lady, neither of whom talk much like they're from 1897. At one point, Hotshot reporter requests the Hotshot scientist, quote, cut out the nerd shit, the lesser-known Emmeline Pankhurst, quote, well, it is an alternative history setting, maybe the advances of Nikola Tesla also advanced human dialect by a century or two. As for what happened to Helios, it turns out that a time travel experiment ended with the ship getting filled with wibbly-wobbly blue science gas, and then growly monsters came out of it and killed everyone. See, this is what I mean by less subtle. Rapture's downfall came from the inherent flaws of its concept and in human nature. Bioshock's setting is making a philosophical point that any dream of utopia is inherently incompatible with the concept of free will. Meanwhile, the point close to the sun seems to be making is that if you do too much science, then monsters will come and bite your face off because they're the fucking interdimensional science police or something. Well, maybe it's a little deeper than that, but the plot leaves so many threads untied it's hard to say. On multiple occasions it's hinted that you yourself will at some point travel back in time to the present and you're dealing with situations that your future self has in some way instigated. But then the game ends and none of that happens. Don't do that, story writers. You're only supposed to leave loose threads to fuel the sequel, not the entire resolution of the fucking plot. It's like bringing someone halfway to orgasm, then going away for six months, coming back, finishing the job and saying, aren't you lucky you had an orgasm that lasted six months, if you follow me. So after the plot let me down, I'm not sure there's much to recommend close to the sun. I suppose it looks good and has some very nicely designed environments. Sometimes you can even see the fucking things through the spotty atmospheric lighting. So if you think man can live on a nice bit of visual atmosphere alone, go nuts. Frankly, I think close to the sun presents a cautionary tale. If you're going to knock something off, maybe pick something that isn't really good and made by more competent people than you. Why not try to make, say, Ride to Hell, but actually functional? and consequently infinitely less interesting, and then rename it something like Days Gone. Developers, blink twice if the post-apocalypse is forcing you to make games about it against your will. I mean, there has to be some explanation for why we seem to be constantly banging this extremely sweaty drum, and I doubt it's because there are still post-apocalypse stories that desperately need to be told. Help me out here, Bethesda, why does Rage 2 have to exist? Actually, before you answer that, remind me, why did Rage 1 have to exist? Because all Rage 1 was in retrospect was a rather unmemorable little sidetrack that meant we couldn't have Doom 2016 for another few years, like an extremely long queue outside a cake and blowjob shop. So Rage 1 was a puddingy fart in an overcrowded swimming pool, and Bethesda must have said to Id, alright fine, just make Doom. So they made Doom and it kicked ass, and then they were like, great, we've figured it out, now let's make another Rage. Why? Why are we still bothering with Rage? And why do you have a black eye? I walked into a door. I mean, because it's a post-apocalypse story that desperately needs to be told, that's why. Now let's make Rage 2, and they're definitely not making me say this. Well, let's give Rage 2 a chance. I mean, there might be a few things that a shooty, drivey, post-apocalypse sandbox can do with the colour magenta that Far Cry New Dawn didn't already do this year. In Rage 2, you're a ranger at a ranger summer camp or something, who is one of the few survivors when the authority attack. You remember the authority, they were the main villains in Rage 1 that the game eventually got around to introducing, after a not inconsiderable amount of fannying about, so you have to take the fight to them just as soon as you've met your own fannying about quota. The influence from Doom 2016 is obvious, because the combat has an emphasis on fast-paced double jumping around and upon death most enemies will vomit up the last few Mars bars they aid to keep your health ticking over, but as is so often the case when something that works well for a linear shooter is put in an open-world sandbox setting, Rage 2 has an issue with pacing, in the same way that I have an issue with my uncomfortably large 12-inch knob because Rage 2 doesn't have any fucking pacing. You start the game and the entire sandbox map is available from the word go. Granted our character is someone who is familiar with the world and has presumably been through all these places already when the ranger camp needed groceries and printer toner, but I never get a sense that the world is unfolding as we play, or that the game's scope is increasing, or that we're growing into the space. All the space just gets thrown at me at once like a wet poppadom to the mush. I mean the first vehicle you get is the best one in the game. It's got a mounted minigun, so you can clear out half of most bandit camps before you've even set foot in the place, like a psychotically determined Jehovah's Witness. And then you unlock a flying vehicle with precisely zero ceremony that you can infinitely spawn for roughly the cost of a Cornish pasty and chips apiece, and after you've got that, ascended to maximum height and gone, yep, that's a sandbox map alright, then all of that space in the sandbox map ceases to be an exciting land to explore where danger and adventure might lurk around every corner, but a series of indistinct smeary blurs that speed by as we zoom uncontested from one clearly marked objective to the next. Things liven up when we do get into combat, so I take on bandit camps 
just mainly just to keep myself amused. And is that really the attitude you want me to take? Combat being something I do not out of necessity or for challenge or self-improvement, but for the same reason I keep turning my dog upside down, because I find his futile attempts to bite my hands off hilarious. There are a bunch of different weapons to look for, but I'd say you can officially stop looking once you've got the shotgun, rifle and rocket launcher. There are some gimmick weapons, like the pistol whose bullets burst into flames when you snap your fingers, or the gravity gun that flings your targets towards a second target like the instant yo-yo gun from Red Faction Armageddon, but I think press the button and the thing dies is a model of efficiency that works pretty well for guns, whereas press the button then press another button to turn the bullet on sounds like a gun developed by whoever designed the current American healthcare system. And I barely used them, always swiftly returning to the prestigious law firm of shotgun, rifle and rocket launcher. Early in the game, when I still felt remotely challenged by the combat, I thought the pace issue was that after you've cleared out a bandit camp like a nitrous fueled Roomba, built up a 97 kill combo and made all your hood elements flash like a pinball machine in a rave, after everyone's dead the game goes, whoops this camp isn't finished yet, you haven't found all three hidden prize boxes. And then the pace would audibly screech to a halt as I went back and forth across the empty camp looking for the Christmas tree, occasionally fruitlessly swinging my rifle butt at the empty air directly above one of the ammo crates, because they're only just tall enough for you to melee without crouching as long as you tuck it between your testicles first. But as the game went on I began to ask myself, what do I expect to find in these prize boxes? Because unless they're stashing a properly structured plot and a general purpose in life in one of those, probably safe to leave it. It'll either be upgrade tokens or money for buying upgrade tokens, and I have so many bloody weapons and abilities to upgrade beyond a certain point it's just another squirt of piss in an industrial piss milking facility. Thanks partly to the increasingly popular shitty interface, I was all the way through to post-ending fuckabouts and industriously fucking about before I discovered that it was possible to upgrade your superpowers, which illustrates how necessary the upgrades are. You've got your super punch, your super stomp, your super dash, your super run that's faster than the normal run but not quite as fast as the super dash, and which I used less often than the fucking quit button. Then there's your health upgrades, and your weapon upgrades, and your grenade upnades, and your vehicle upgrades. That's a laugh, like I give a shit if my between fights commute mobile can go vroom more than it previously went vroom. If you want to focus on building the character's strength and ability to do stuff, fine, but it needs a suitable game world for that player to do stuff in. It needs a Breath of the Wild, something expansive and beautiful and hostile that takes more than four or five travel suites to get across. Ideally, one where the GPS navigator has the ability to warn you that a turn's coming up more than ten feet before you get to the fucking thing. By the end of Rage 2 I didn't feel like anything had truly threatened me. The main baddie shoots up my summer camp at the start and then proceeds to sit on his underground cyber toilet rubbing his hands in glee while I go to three old farts who say, oh yeah we totally knew the main baddie would come back and we've got a plan to kill him all set up already and all you need to do is fill out the shopping list. Seven or eight short missions later the plan goes off without a hitch and we utterly chump Mr Big Mouth Scary Trousers because he got inside a giant pile of spam whose unbeatable strategy was to slowly bring its fists down on the spot where I was three seconds ago and then pause for eight or nine minutes to get its breath back. Rage? I've been more enraged by my own trousers. But that's uncomfortably large 12 inch knobs for you. Let me guess, Devolver Digital, you paid for a fancy expensive filter that makes your graphics look like they're on an old video and now you're trying to convince your spouse that it wasn't a waste of money. Between this and Katana Zero you certainly seem to be working it like the last copy of Mayfair on an oil rig. You ever spare a thought for the underage sweatshop workers who put my huge modern TV together? And what they must think of making its output look like it came from a TV I bought from a storage locker auction in North Korea? When I say between this and Katana Zero, by this I of course mean observation, yet another story based horror adventure indie game that's exclusive to the Epic Store, but which in contrast to Close to the Sun is actually quite good, so at least the Epic Store is showing improvement in this one highly specific area. Although observations on PS4 as well, so never mind. Observation can best be summarised thusly. Imagine 2001 A Space Odyssey was a found footage horror film and you get to play as HAL 9000, complete with creepy reassuring voice that's kinda like the voice Hannibal Lecter would use while describing his favourite My Little Pony and the appropriate wine pairing. So you play as the onboard computer on an orbital space station where, to coin a phrase, shit seems to have got fucky. The station's not where it's supposed to be, you've lost access to most of your systems and memory, the lone survivor is still being broadly polite but her questions about where everyone is and what's going on 
are starting to sound a little pointed. Also, there's this mysterious alien intelligence that rings you up every now and again to yell incoherently, and you're pretty sure it's not complaining about the noise. So your brief, in brief, is to figure out what the fuck's going on, and what the secret agenda is. The one that you were following up to now, and possibly still are. First of all, Observation's atmosphere is the tops. The audio is an absolute peach, a severe industrial groany peach that perfectly encapsulates the sense of terrifying isolation in a vast emptiness one feels when all your friends got put into a pie besides you. The setup of only being able to view the station through mounted cameras that pan slower than an establishing shot of the Parisian skyline in a very boring art film lends an effective sort of Five Nights at Freddy's tension where you might switch to a new camera and discover that all along you were sharing the room with a giant cartoon duck with a switchblade and an erection. Of course that aspect sort of goes away the moment you start using the mobile camera drone, which is a bit of a cop-out, but hopefully by then all the nice intrigue the story's built up will be what's keeping you around. You might feel a little intimidated by observation as it throws the kind of complex interface full of mysterious icons and diagrams one might expect from a space station management simulator designed for emotionless computers, but a lot of this is smoke and mirrors. The game is structured around a strictly linear story and most of your abilities are locked out when not in service to whatever you're supposed to do next. In fact, one of my major criticisms for the game is that it feels less like an active situation and more like it's holding perfectly still, waiting for you to turn the page in the very interesting book it's trying to read to you. So early on, there's a bit where you have to help Lone Survivor Lady put out a fire, then she says, quick, turn on the vents before I choke to death, whereupon she fucking stands there, not talking and very conspicuously not choking to death for the ten minutes it took me to very slowly pan the camera around the room, trying to find whatever random wall panel she was blithering on about now. This comes to a head in an exciting climactic moment where you have to seal one of the baddies into a room and depressurize it, a baddie who makes absolutely no effort to leave as you slowly and laboriously close and lock all the doors one by one, although he does plead desperately for his life with the same tone of voice he'd used to complain that you left the toilet seat up. What's next on my list of niggles? Well, the game's environment is deliberately evoking contemporary real-life space stations and therefore looks like an elaborate children's play area themed around an aeroplane baggage compartment, and it's very confusing to get around, especially with the no gravity and constant changing of camera angles. It's like taking acid and losing your keys in a poorly maintained server room. But that's almost certainly intentional. You're supposed to be a malfunctioning computer. All the time the player spends confused about where they are or what they're doing is possibly supposed to represent when a computer stops responding and just shows the little beach ball icon going around and around. Then again, one of the things you're supposed to be doing is scanning all the random documents and audio logs, but what with the environment very immersively and accurately modelled after a real-life space station, and more to the point, a place where people live and work in cramped conditions, consequently it's practically fucking laminated in random documents and post-it notes, and the difference between the ones that are just background flavour and the ones that can be scanned for information boils down to lights up on HUD when you point to it. So you've just got to laboriously track your camera over all the walls, waiting for a blip, which I guess is representative of when you're trying to get your scanner to work during a brownout. I don't think the you are a malfunctioning computer excuse holds up universally is my point. Far too often in the game I was doing things to solve puzzles without having the slightest idea what I was doing, whether it was pointing at a perfectly fine looking part of the station's exterior, because every character and HUD readout in the game seems to think that it's visibly damaged, or brute forcing my way through a puzzle by entering every possible code because I didn't have a fucking clue what this circuit diagram was trying to tell me except that I didn't pay enough attention in physics. And all the while, the humans wait patiently when they should be panicking or debating over who's going to have to be eaten first, and the immersion takes a bit of a hit. And immersion is the main strength of a claustrophobic atmospheric horror game like this, and therefore it is worth mentioning, so there. Overall though, it's a neat and uniquely told little sci-fi horror yarn that hits just the right level of exposition that the science feels authentic, but not too much is given away to make the horror less mysterious, and I do recommend it, even if the actual gameplay descends far too often into linear instruction following. I'd have liked a little more time to mess around and freely explore the station's functions. And surely this isn't unreasonable. It's not like the game's set in fucking San Francisco and I'm asking for the freedom to examine every piece of homeless person's excrement. It's a fucking five-room space station. Just would have been nice to know that at any moment I could have blown the hatches and blasted everyone into space. Not that I would have done that. I'd have regretted it as soon as the orgasm had passed.
Innocence, a plague tale, or possibly a plague tale, innocence. I've seen both at different times and it hardly matters, just as long as you get the three key elements in there. Innocence, plagues, and is a story-focused action aventure where the dry heave is actually quite thematically relevant. It reminds me rather strongly of The Last of Us, popular tentpole of the serious hairy dad genre, but taken a step further, serious hairy dad the next generation, I suppose, where the usual subject of the serious hairy dad game, serious innocent daughter type girl, has to become the protagonist and pay it forward by escorting an even younger child. Serious dirty older sibling, perhaps. I I guess the next logical step for this would be a game where you play as the even younger child who has to escort a small bird or a hedgehog or something. In contrast to The Last of Us though, Innocence A Tale of Two Plagues is set in 14th century France rather than the post-apocalypse, difficult as it may be to distinguish those two things. I mean Christ, even today going to France is basically exactly the same as sticking your head in a huge bucket of turds that think they're better than you. But anyway, our protagonist is Amicia de Rune, and with a name like that they were only ever going to be one of two things, medieval French noblewoman, or someone who runs a blog talking about their life in the astral realms as a giant humanoid badger who dresses like they're in Final Fantasy IX. Amicia is living a carefree life in the French countryside with her serious hairy dad, skipping playfully through the manure and murdering the shit out of pigs, when something terrible encroaches upon their household and for once it's not the local cheese. Our entire household and serious hairy dad get slaughtered by a branch of the Inquisition whom we most certainly did not expect, and Amicia has to go on the run with her sickly little brother Hugo, who the Inquisition are desperate to get hold of because there's a weird supernatural connection between him and a plague of diseased rats that are terrorising the region with their very own spirited attempt at a pre-industrial grey goo scenario. Now, tail an innocent plague came out quite a few weeks back, but up till now I've never been able to get through the whole thing because something would always come up that I found vastly more interesting, like Observation, or a patch of grease in my driveway that looked a bit like Thomas Dolby. Because the fact is, original as the concept is, the railway children but set in medieval France during a rat-based apocalypse, there's something terribly uninspired about Innocent Until Proven Plague. Gameplay is a rather unfocused grab bag of elements that AAA audiences seem to like, so a lot of it is the usual stealth arrangement where you crouch behind breast-high walls flinging stones at noisy things to distract guards, but every now and again that gives way to flat-out action where our sling wheel 14-year-old girl protagonist has to take down armoured professional soldiers with a remarkable stone-cold brutal efficiency that makes one wonder why the entire French army hasn't been taken over by girl guide troops. Besides that, you've also got environmental puzzles based around using fire and bright light to create paths through rivers of rats, which is as original as things get. And then of course there's the usual fucking crafting. You have to craft all your ammo and Christ knows why. Ammo is required to solve most of the mandatory puzzles, so they plonk down creation materials every six fucking steps. Might as well have just given me infinite amounts of it rather than inexplicably carpet the game world in medieval children's chemistry sets. I tend to die a lot in an American tale, Fievel Goes Plague. Despite having the offensive capability of a military-grade sniper rifle with racial epithets tipexed along the barrel, Amicia is still a small, fragile European and doesn't have much defence, dying instantly from any attack or from accidentally stepping on a square foot of space that a rat whittled on at one point. That's what makes the stealth so annoying, that the slightest mistake sends your corpse cartwheeling merrily back to one of the just far enough apart to make it even more annoying save points. And with the linear map layout, there's not really anywhere to run to as the cock-ups begin to cascade. Counterintuitively, death can be bad for a horror game. I mean, it kind of needs to be there to threaten us, but the moment it actually happens, it kinda kills all the mystique. That's why Outlast 2 lost me in the first five minutes when I witnessed my John Thomas get converted into an unwanted second belly button. But now that I've mentioned that, it's made me wonder, is Plague in a sense a horror game? At first glance, it's hard to imagine what else it could be. An awful lot of people die horribly in it, and there's all the business with swarms of nightmare rats with glowing eyes, straight from the most harrowing therapy sessions of Winston Smith, highbrow gag. But a horror game needs to also in some way make me poo my pants if you'll forgive the dense academic jargon, and I was less scared or unnerved than I was mildly annoyed most of the time. Part of that was the frequent death, but the game also slips occasionally into an uncharted-y sort of tone, where we puzzle our way through some ancient machine or other, designed to funnel the rats like they're fucking light beams in a Zelda temple or something, all the while cheerfully snarking with our support characters, as slow horrific death by a thousand nibbles chitters monstrously scant feet away. See, it's not just the gameplay, the story somewhat loses focus as you go through as well. It starts with you and the little bastard on the run through hostile territory trying to reach some distant location on vague promises of safety, and eventually you get to an abandoned castle and things shift to let's just live here and assemble a miniature Avengers team from a bunch 
bunch of other orphans, each of whom in their own way also has the ability to overpower a fully armoured professional soldier, which again makes you wonder why medieval France bothers with armies at all, when a trip to the local orphanage would apparently yield the potential offensive power of a tactical nuclear strike. So then the story wibbles about for a bit, until finally the sprog in our charge runs away and gets captured by the enemy for no great reason, except they must have thought to themselves, well, no one else is going to get things moving towards a fucking conclusion anytime soon. But maybe I'm being too hard on innocency a plenty tensy. Maybe it's just all the Frenchness about it stirring up my English blood and making me seek vengeance for Agincourt. There are plenty worse games, it's functional, and the variety of gameplay means you certainly couldn't call it one note, but I struggle to summon enthusiasm for any of the notes it did play. I suppose if I had to pick one thing to praise about it, other than its evident ability to run without causing my PC to urinate coolant all over the office carpet, it'd be the rats. It is quite impressive, as new spins on the apocalypse go, seeing the game render hundreds of the little greasy cunts simultaneously, and not a little alarming the first time you see them bearing down on you in a tidal wave of little brown turds, like some kind of bleak metaphor for the first few years of parenthood. This was my first time attending an E3 in person, and as I sat down in the audience of the Microsoft presser I realised how much you miss watching these things online, as the camera swept across the rows of hooting paid fanboys in the front rows and very deliberately avoided tracking over the bored-looking media types that filled the other two-thirds of the room along with the scent of cheap cigarettes. Anyway, the big news is that the new Xbox, Project Scarlet Eater, isn't coming out till last quarter 2020, so back to sleep everyone, until the next E3 when they'll really bring the system sellers out and presumably come up with an even worse name for the fucking thing. Until then, all we have is that Halo Infinite is about Master Chief being found lost in space yet fucking game. They really need to put one of those GPS key finders on that green cunt, and Gears of War 5 will involve chest high walls and dudes with necks twice as thick as the tops of their heads. Scant mention of the story campaign, probably because it'll be the same boring shit as always, but I did get a chance to play the new escape multiplayer mode, enough to establish that it's just left for dead with Gears of War combat, set in a map so boring and labyrinthine I was astonished to learn it wasn't randomly generated. So what would you call it, Gear for Dead, or Left of War? Or does that sound too much like you're giving directions? As for streaming your games to your device wherever you are, who the fuck carries an Xbox controller everywhere they go, besides boomerang enthusiasts with very poor eyesight. What's more important is all these game subscription services, your Xbox Game Pass and your Uplay Plus, which I don't mind that much because in this age of Netflix the financial model for video games has to change at some point from its current state, the financial model of an abattoir built on the edge of a cliff, but in the end it's only the games that count and the Xbox briefing broke new records for sheer number of announced games whose titles I almost immediately forgot. I think there was an indie game with pastel colours and sad piano music at one point, and I think there was something involving guns and the colour magenta. Oh hang on, I don't have to rely upon half-remembered online clips this year because I actually played some of the thing I'm very naughtily pretending to forget was called Bleeding Edge, and I hereby declare that it's making a heroic effort to not immediately look like a copy of Overwatch. Yes, it's a team-based competitive hero shooter, but this one's focused on melee combat. Oh, it's all melee. Um, no, some characters are ranged. So like Overwatch then. Moving on. Wait, we gave everyone a surfboard! I already said moving on, Bleeding Edge! Funny, isn't it, how whenever a game talks about being over the top or tongue-in-cheek that always seems to mean the same thing these days, that it's going to look like an irresponsibly violent version of Jet Set Radio, probably cel-shaded, every character's introduced with a freeze-frame profile and dresses like a tank girl cosplayer with colour blindness, and a lot of things will be magenta. Oh yeah, and there'll be a panda for some reason. That was the case with Contra Rogue Core, which started with a crazy cutscene culminating in our main dude riding a missile into the level, spraying bullets like a giant incontinent doomcock, only for the gameplay to start and everything screeched to a halt as I moved sluggishly around the isometric level, spitting bullets from a gun that overheated faster than a former Trump associate in a police interview room, and took about as long to cool down as an impeachment proceeding. But let's get on to some of the bigger stuff, like for example the giant dribbling cock that Square Enix tripped and broke its nose on, the one with Avengers written along the side. With Avengers Endgame and the very distinct appearances of the main actors still fresh in public memory, wheeling out a game starring their stunt doubles left everyone a bit nonplussed at best. Oh come on Yards, the cost of the likeness rights for these people could have paid for four more years of mysteriously silent Final Fantasy VII development. Oh fair enough Square Enix, just show us how the Avengers game plays then. Mm, 
no. Between that being a blatant grab for some of the sweet cash that drools constantly from Marvel's cornucopic vagina, and everything else they had being one remade or re-released pretty anime sword boy game after another, the motto of Square Enix this year was, isn't not having to come up with ideas, great. Now then, my Bethesda booth visit was a rather strange adventure. I had one hour to see Wolfenstein Youngblood and Doom Eternal, and after 45 minutes of Wolfenstein's long, boring cutscenes, irritating bullet sponge combat, and further evidence for the truth of the old saying, crowbar in co-op enhances a previously single-player narrative-focused experience the way a handful of broken glass enhances cosmetic dentistry, our time was running a bit tight. Oh, well, I suppose I could switch you to Doom early. Wolfenstein did still have a whole other level to bore you to death with, but if you insist. So I switched to Doom, and Doom proceeded to kick whatever shredded remnants of arse remained unkicked from the last game. So altogether, the Bethesda hour was like opening a present that has been wrapped in ten layers of moist bog roll. Doom Eternal was how you fucking do an E3 demo. Hands-on, quick tutorial, straight into the primary loop to let it speak for itself in the voice of a very handsome man with a thick but somehow reassuring smell clinging to his body hair. Not like all those fucking hands-off demos. I still have no fucking clue if Dying Light 2 and Cyberpunk 2077 will still look impressive when being played by someone who isn't following the same rigidly choreographed script they've gone through 30 times today, who might inconveniently look in the wrong direction when something impressive happens, or want to operate on an actual fucking learning curve. Hey, maybe Cyberpunk could have had the money to get the game finished a little quicker if they'd just paid Keanu Reeves to come onto the Xbox conference and say nine words instead of ten. Wait a minute, everyone. Yati thought Doom Eternal looked good? Fuck, going to E3 has given him hype disease. Get him in quarantine before the infection spreads and he starts using the phrase, it could be interesting. Fine, you want cynicism? Pokemon Sword and Shield. Run out of colours and gemstones and chromosomes, it's down to weapons, soon household objects, and perhaps one day we'll get to live the dream of playing Pokemon Cock and Balls, but I digress. The full 3D look really isn't suiting Pokemon, everything looks so small in a huge empty world, and the animations and in-faces all come across as kind of stiff and awkward, and they've all had to hold a pose for just a little bit too long before the photo was taken. And as for a Zelda Breath of the Wild sequel, so much for the bold spirit of Back to Basics innovation that drove the first one, now it's straight back to endlessly stirring the fucking pot for Nintendo. Hence Link's Awakening being copy-pasted as a fucking Happy Meal toy, I suppose. Mind you, direct sequels to Zelda games doing their own thing now the tiresome save princess from Ganon formalities are out of the way, have historically been the breeding ground for some of the really good Zeldas like Link's Awakening or Majora's Mask, so actually a Breath of the Wild sequel could be inter- Alright, lock it down, containment bridge! Oh, you want a new video, do you? I don't suppose it matters to you that I couldn't play a new game last week because I was in Los Angeles working my little English muffins off at E3 so that you can all feel faintly superior about not giving as much of a shit about it. Have you ever been to Los Angeles? It's like a 7-Eleven with dodgy air conditioning multiplied into a city. And everyone drives like they learned on a pair of roller skates. So fuck it, I'm staying in bed this week. I'm just going to review the last thing I played on Steam, which happens to be Blood Fresh Supply, a recent port of Blood, the classic mid to late 90s build engine shooter with a title that cuts refreshingly to the nub of the matter, at least until they stuck that fresh supply bit on the end, that's not even a pun, is it? If they'd called it blood transfusion, you'd get the connection. But fresh supply could be applied just as easily to tissues or underpants. But anyway, let's talk about the build engine. The year is 1996. No, it isn't yards, it's 20. It was a retrospective device, you fuck! The year is 1996, and Duke Nukem 3D comes out, an FPS that threw out the mad idea that maybe it could design its levels to look like actual places that exist in real life. Now, maybe that sounds obvious to you youngsters who grew up throwing terrorists out of Burger Kings in the latest plodding snore fair, but this was coming off games like Doom and Quake 
like highly playable and important games, god bless them, but whose levels were all based around samey labyrinths and traps and more monster closets than an energy drink enthusiast's bedroom the morning after a major game convention. As tech improved, it was Duke Nukem 3D leading the charge for using the environment to set the story, to enhance the effect of gameplay by placing it somewhere familiar. Why not set a first-person shooter in a porn theatre, it asked, or in an adult bookstore, or a strip club, or a porn studio? Yes, said some other developers, and perhaps also some locations that aren't related to the sex industry. Oh, I don't think anyone would be interested in that, but you do you. One of those other developers was Monolith, who used the engine to make Blood, released the following year. Now playing this fresh supply version today, you'll probably have a jolly good laugh at the pre-rendered cinematics. Haha, <laughs> it looks like the preliminary storyboarding for an episode of Reboot. What were you using for graphics rendering, people of the 90s? A fucking bathroom scale. No, trust me, even at the time they looked like absolute shit. Still, they bring the story across. Caleb, 19th century gunslinger with a voice like Clint Eastwood if he made a living sucking gravel out of the assholes of bats, is trying to cozy up to the dark god Chernobog when Chernobog decides he doesn't quite like the colour of the sweater Caleb knitted for him and promptly murders Caleb and all of his mates. Caleb then basically angries himself back to life, climbs out of the grave with raging morning wood and vows to slaughter all of Chernobog's minions, put all their bits in a breakup box and shove it right up Chernobog's galactic arse. With this remit in mind, we proceed level by level through a series of horror-themed early 20th century environments, all mysteriously teeming with references to horror movies from 60 or 70 years in the future, but that's timeless deities for you. Compared to modern video game protagonists who are usually highly bland but with some attempt at moral complexity, Caleb is more or less the precise opposite. He's very unbland and very uncomplicated. He just wants everyone to die while he screams laughter at their fluttering remains. And you lot made me go to E3, so who are you to judge? Blood is a product of its time. It was originally shareware, so it has the usual shareware problem. All its good levels are in the first episode, and by the end it's one uninspired map full of reused assets probably mocked up with old cereal boxes after another. And playing two and a half D sprite shooters when you're used to the full-on photorealistic 3D models of today is like breaking up with your supermodel girlfriend and going back to wanking off over erotic puppet shows, but the 90s shooter is ever the place to go for a bit of uninterrupted, no-frills, satisfying combat. And Bloods is particularly visceral, which is just as well, because otherwise they might have had to change the name to Little Caleb's Adventures in Slumberland or something. One thing I really miss about shooters from this time is how the enemies actually had some readable emotion and personality in their appearance. It wasn't all faceless masks, skull face demons, or distant silhouettes peering out from behind chest-high walls. You can really get a feel for the indignation a cultist is feeling as you reduce the contents of their torso to shredded sauerkraut with both barrels. Blood also, to my mind, possesses the best person thrashing about on fire sprite of any game of its type, and would have swept the most likely to be blamed for an atrocity awards had such a thing existed. The sound design is a match too, I never get tired of the iconic jabbering of angry cultists transitioning into a powerful shotgun blast and then a prolonged scream so textured you could almost break it down and pinpoint the precise moments of regret he feels for his misspent life. On the whole, the core gameplay loop is great, the porridge only starts dribbling into the hairdryer when it comes to enemy AI. For a start, all the flying enemies have this weird habit of getting stuck on ceilings in large rooms and fighting them is like trying to recover your child's balloon from an overhead power line. But the real seam of bullshit running through blood like a chocolate brown skirting board is that I don't think the developers realised that the second enemy type in the first level is the hardest one in the game, because they've got hitscan weapons. In the days before anyone could be asked to calculate such trifles as bullet velocity, you'd just pull the trigger and as long as you have line of sight, the thing dies. And when enemies had such weapons, common courtesy dictated that they should at least cough or say, hello I'm about to shoot you before they shoot you, so the players got time to duck or kill them first. Blood's cultists never got that memo. Step into their line of sight and your vital parts will acquire holes like an argument for alternative medicine under any amount of scrutiny. And these motherfuckers are everywhere. In the higher difficulty settings, which as was usually the case in 90s shooters just meant same dudes were twice as many of the fuckers, one struggles to breathe in an atmosphere of 40% lead. Later on the game introduces new enemies that are clearly supposed to be tougher, like the gargoyles or the fat butchers with a weird resemblance to Henry Kissinger, but none of them have hitscan weapons, so you just circle strafe and shotgun and if anything fighting them is a lovely holiday, away from the twitchy zero quarter hitscan safari. I swear, increase the reaction time of the cultists by like half a second and Blood's overall difficulty drops like your mum's knickers in the 
the bathroom of a soup kitchen. But these were the days when the shooter was still young and the rules were still being defined, and blood wouldn't be the same if you fixed its adorable baby giraffe on the ice rink stumbling now. The time for fixing it would have been the sequel, but unfortunately Blood 2 came out in the early days of full 3D, and if the baby giraffe had been stumbling before, then early 3D made all its knees snap backwards as a lighting gantry electrocuted its face. Ah, uh, Castlevania, a series close to my heart for being an excellent series of challenging open-world gothic platformers and for providing an easy rhyme for Wrestlemania when I'm in a rap battle. And no Castlevania is remembered more fondly than Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Why are you bringing that up, Yard? The video title clearly states that this is a review of Bloodstained Ritual of the Night, which is an entirely separate thing with a whole two different words in the title. Oh, don't be coy. You know damn well this is the Mighty Number no. 9 thing again, where the original IP is being held prisoner by a parent company who are doing nothing but sitting on it letting off the occasional fart, having tried and failed to stick the series of a big hairy light god of war but. So the original creator behind the series' of success, in this case Koji Igarashi, broke off and went to Kickstarter saying, hey come and fund my new game. Wink. It's a totally new IP. Wink. And then of course it's the Castlevania Symphony of the Night remake with a finger under its nose going, I can't be Castlevania. Castlevania doesn't have a moustache. So Bloodstained briefly ties itself in knots, coming up with all new lore to explain why a magical demon hunter, or shardbinder in this case, needs to come fuck up a magically conjured castle full of monsters that isn't Dracula's castle, even though Dracula is public domain so surely it could have been, and after that things will quickly seem familiar. Yahtzee, don't you go giving this game no free ride just because you like Symphony of the Night, you fork-tongued sidewinder. Don't worry, passing cowboy, if Bloodstained were just Symphony with the serial numbers filed off, which it certainly looks like at times, I'd have had to dock points for it being less innovative new work than masturbation exercise, but actually Bloodstained is a supercut of all the good ideas in Igarashi's later Castlevanias as well. So from Aria of Sorrow, it takes the soul-collecting mechanic where every single monster grants a unique power or buff. In Aria, this was the kind of genius idea that was obvious in retrospect. Most Castlevania games have monster rosters you'd struggle to fit on an average CVS receipt in very small writing, and this gave us a gameplay reason to catalogue them. Later games tried and failed to improve on it, the glyph absorbing in Order of Ecclesia was just the same fucking thing with its arms and legs cut off, so fuck it, here it is again. And from Ecclesia, Bloodstained takes the helping out villagers side quests and several of the plot elements, such as a female main character who somehow manages to be simultaneously under and overdressed. I remember the first time I saw Miriam, Bloodstained's protagonist, my first thought was, are you fucking serious? Why is she wearing one third of a breastplate? The devil horns, the rose tattoos, the puffball miniskirt that's like one millimetre short of putting camel toe on full display like a frog's head peering over a log, the way she constantly poses like Betty Boop trying to stay upright in a strong wind. She looks like someone opened one of those incredibly pathetic anime girlfriend dress-up simulators and then sat on the keyboard. And it doesn't stop there. In Symphony of the Night, your equipment list could say that Alucard is wearing a coal miner's helmet and a handlebar moustache, but looking at him in-game, he'd still be his normal devastatingly handsome anime self, because it was all baked in sprites. Well, with the wonderful march of technology, Miriam can now be visibly wearing all those ridiculous accessories and there are officially no bricks on the looking completely stupid train. Kinda killed a dramatic cut scene when you rock up with bunny ears and a piece of bog roll sellotape to your nose. I think it's perfectly reasonable to not be 100% literal with the niceties of a game like this. I mean, when I pause the game and eat five curries in the middle of a tricky boss fight, this is on the assumption that when I unpause, Miriam won't have a tummy ache and basmati rice all down her front. On the whole, though, I don't know how many times I can rephrase, if you liked Koji Igarashi's Castlevania games, you'll like the shit out of this, because it's all of them smashed together with a very poorly dressed lady on the front. You go back and forth across not Dracula's castle in the usual way, growing in power as you kill endless streams of classic Castlevania monsters, all holding their fingers under their noses. Sometimes the critical path is a bit obscure. I'm ashamed to admit I had to look up the way forward more than once. But rest assured, I always made sure to compensate by punching myself in the testicles. Oh, I see, I was supposed to get a water traversal soul from this one random monster that only appears in one room and doesn't even drop it all the time. Oof, couldn't you even figure that out, you stupid swollen testicled fuck? But it was fairly smooth sailing on the whole.
The rest of my niggles are little niggles, the least little niggle being that I find the full 3D look to be kinda ugly in ways that crafted 2D pixel art can never be. I've never seen a pixel art stone wall with slightly misaligned and overstretched textures, or one that mysteriously turns into a barcode when a crack or blood splatter decal is applied to it. Also, I had recurring annoyances with the interface. Why does this game always find it so hard to believe that I want to skip a fucking cutscene? Why do I have to press the skip button like five times? This is my third attempt at this boss fight, I have established to my satisfaction that this ends now. I don't want to just skip the first bit of dialogue and get to the little animation that precedes the second and third bit of dialogue, I want to skip the whole thing, and get to the part where I start hitting them with sharp objects and the occasional magically conjured pig. Also, whenever I use the shortcut ability to switch to a normally unused but suddenly necessary traversal power, the game would unequip my weapon, but I hesitate to mention that because it's a bug, and games being what they are these days, it'll probably get patched out soon in order to make me look like a twat, and for no other reason. So that's some niggles, them aside, Bloodstained is the exceedingly rare, overfunded Kickstarter project that delivers on its promises. It's exactly what you wanted, it's Symphony of the Night again, but bigger and brought up to date without changing the fundamental thing that you liked about it, albeit with some portraits of very greasy people who ponied up extra cash dotted around the map, the occasional monster modelled after their pet dog, and a special thanks section in the credits that goes on for three fucking hours. So I hope Bloodstained realises what it has done. All we needed was a few more disappointing fuck-ups, a few more Mighty Number no. 9s, ukuleles, broken ages, and maybe we could have all been completely soured to the kickstarted retro callback. Oh, maybe it isn't healthy to never want to leave our youthful comfort zones, we could have all said. Maybe we should be open to new thoughts and ideas, for just as the gene pool requires variance, so too does art need a diversity of new concepts to avoid stagnation and producing nothing but the cultural equivalent of hair lips and webbed toes. And you fucked that up, Bloodstained, by proving the system can actually work. Now it's going to be kickstarted remakes of Custer's Revenge as far as the eye can see. If you want a picture of the future, imagine General Custer's lovingly rendered shiny bellend slapping a human face forever. The Yakuza series is officially over, and Kazuma Kiryu has disco stomped his last jawbone into rice pudding, but how could the adventure ever truly be over in Kamarocho, the city whose most famous local dish is the knuckle sandwich, whose streets are covered with so many shards of broken teeth the district is frequently mistaken for a zen garden. Judgment is the new Yakuza spin-off with all new characters and all new shitty title. And look, Sega, speaking as someone who dry heaves when they see unnecessary colons, in this case no one would have minded if you'd called it Yakuza Judgment. What with it playing exactly like most Yakuza games, a bizarre mix of sightseeing, restaurant patronage, and massively overblown bicycle fencing contests over the slightest miscommunication. I worry that most casual Yakuza fans wouldn't even realise that it's the new Yakuza game just from looking at the title, although they might have a little argument over whether or not you're supposed to spell it with an E. Oh, but we couldn't have called it Yatsu Yakuza, I mean Yakuza Yatsu. We're telling an all new story with all new characters and the protagonist isn't a Yakuza at all. True, but in fairness his best pal is a Yakuza and so is one of his father figures and he spends most of his time hanging around Yakuza and can't walk 50 yards without having to beat up another clutch of the fuckers. I'm guessing this is what they call a gradual weaning process. It's true though, the main character, Takeyuki Yagami, is not a Yakuza, he doesn't even wear a disco suit, he wears a leather jacket and the world's least comfortable looking jeans. But I'm pretty sure that the only reason he isn't a Yakuza is because he couldn't fit it in alongside his 16 other jobs. He's a private detective, right, who is also a lawyer, and at various other times works as a bodyguard, a locksmith, and a food critic. That last one because most of the side content revolves around making friends with as many random people around Camarocho as you can, and Camarocho seems to be almost exclusively populated by restaurant employees. Oh yes, and he's also a kung fu master, but that's not really worth mentioning. In Camarocho, if you can't kick with the force of a pneumatic hammer, you officially qualify to use the disabled parking spaces. So yeah, probably wasn't possible to squeeze Yakuza duties in between his 19 community college courses. The emphasis is on private detective. Yagami's leaning into that stereotype like an inflatable tube man in a strong wind. He's forever short on cash, lives in his back alley office, and walks the mean streets monologuing to himself, although this is still a Yakuza game. So instead of being seduced by mysterious hotties, he takes giggly teenagers to the arcade to play on the UFO catchers. And in his capacity as a detective, he gets drawn into a larger intrigue by a series of mysterious murders that appear to be targeting the Yakuza, although it could be a coincidence because this is 
Camarocho and you can't fucking turn around without scuffing up a Yakuza's trouser leg and subsequently getting your internal organs punched out your mouth. Yagami's backstory involves carrying around a big pile of guilt for getting someone off a murder charge who later did murder for realsies, but apparently it wasn't the murdering in itself that shocked him, going by the way he does combat. Yes, it's the familiar, delirious union of face and convenient nearby solid objects that you've come to expect from Yakuza combat, just as high energy and blatantly unsurvivable as ever. So those people at Sega who said the gameplay was going to be different now were talking out of their implied second buttholes. I mean, it's even got the switching between different fighting styles from Yakuza 0, but only two instead of three. As any mathematician will tell you that one fewer than zero goes into negatives, but I guess they didn't mean combat when they said all new gameplay. Yakuza combat is more like a convenient fun dispenser the games keep around for when it thinks you're getting too bored with the torgy bits. The actual new gameplay is the various private detective minigames. So there's tailing people, in which our six foot bad hair having detective hero dressed like he tried to put on his kid's costume for the school production of Grease gets to try to go unnoticed, and there's a thing where we track our gaze across a crime scene looking for pieces of evidence, and a thing where we have to pick the right bit of evidence to prove whatever point we're trying to make. It's all very Phoenix Wright inspired in that neither property has the slightest idea how legal defence actually works. And there's even a couple of bits where Judgment directly references Phoenix Wright, possibly in an attempt to play the it's a homage not a ripoff card. I already said Judgment sells itself short with its title, but Yakuza games always sell themselves short. I enjoy sticking a gumball machine up a well-dressed man's nose, but my live-in gimp doesn't. They enjoy completionist side-questing and dating simulators, and might have enjoyed those parts of Judgment if it weren't for all the gumball machine nasal surgery getting in the way. And while the bizarre mix of tones and gameplay styles is part of the quirky identity of the Yakuza series, it also means that none of the individual mechanics have room to grow. The detective mechanics just don't have enough depth for my liking. Tailing? Yeah, you just duck behind something every time your target stops. Get the fuck out of here with this Assassin's Creed 3 shit. I'm an expert. And as for the Phoenix Wright stuff, it only seems to happen once in a blue moon, and when they do, they don't make me feel clever the way detective bits should. Hmm, which of these pieces of evidence indicates that the victim was felt up by Noel Edmonds in a lift? Yagami asks himself. And there's only three choices. A receipt, a photo of a surprised dog, and a piece of paper saying, I felt up the victim in a lift, signed Noel Edmonds. Maybe it gets deeper towards the end of the game. I wouldn't know. I kind of stopped before then. The side stuff had distracted me even more than it usually does in Yakuza games because I just wasn't that interested in the main plot. Played one Yakuza main plot, played them all. I'm going to assume that the innocent young person we're defending for the sake of justice will turn out to be the victim of a conspiracy orchestrated by a very smug older man, but it won't be the kind of villainy that can't eventually be sorted out with a massive great fist fight on the Millennium Tower. I think what I'm finding in this post-Kazuma Kiryu world is that Yakuza kinda needs him, or somebody like him, someone who can be effortlessly cool just by standing there with his retro suit and his face like the front of a parked Securicore van. He was the anchor that a game like Yakuza needs, with all its insane combat twisting plot and wacky side content, he stood in the middle of it like a brick wall in a raging stream, one that's not above occasionally prancing around with a ukulele in a karaoke video to amuse the children. In contrast, Yagami feels inconsistent and too much like he's trying too hard to project an image of coolness that a middle-aged dad pictures in their mind's eye as they walk around a consumer electronics shop. Well, forcibly marry me off to a fish if it isn't a second Lovecraft-themed detective game by an ambitious mid-range developer in as many years. One where the main character is a generic detective even more generic and detective-y than the one from Dark Corners of the Earth, and the intention is not to adapt any specific Lovecraft work, but mash them all together into a big ball of tentacles and faint undercurrents of conservative social anxiety. But will The Sinking City be an improvement on Call of Cthulhu? Well, it's by Frogwares, who since 2002 have been utterly cornering the market on slightly janky Sherlock Holmes adventure games. Remember Creepy Watson? Yeah, that was these lads. So imagine what they can achieve now they're deliberately trying to be creepy. It's nice to see Frogwares finally managing to step outside their comfort zone of developing detective games based on late 19th century literature, and instead develop a detective game based on early 20th century literature. And it only took them 17 fucking years to make the jump. Outstanding. At this rate they'll be adapting modern literature roughly around the time of the heat death of the universe. This week's haunted detective protagonist is Charles Reed, who is drawn to the titular sinking city so that he might understand his strange visions of vast apocalyptic horrors beneath the sea, unsatisfied by the explanation of too much convenience store sushi on an empty stomach, and quickly finds himself tasked to investigate various crimes and disappearances 
appearances surrounding the apparent fulfilment of a doomsday prophecy. Now the thing about Lovecraft's particular brand of horror is that it doesn't really translate to modern attitudes, even without the racism stuff. Cosmic horror was all about challenging humanity's self-importance, the horror of Cthulhu lay not in Cthulhu wanting to nibble off our knackers, but in the fact that Cthulhu doesn't really give a shit. He was around before humanity, will be around long after, and spares us no more thought than he would the dust mites in his bathroom carpet. But that horror doesn't work so well in the modern age, when we only need open a web browser to be reminded that humanity is pointless and deserves to die out and leave naught but cheap plastic Spider-Man Halloween costumes for the archaeologists of future races to puzzle over. So Lovecraftian horror requires a different approach to be effective these days, and whatever the ideal approach is, it isn't whatever the fuck Sinking City is doing. You know how in the shadow of Rinsmouth the fact that the townspeople worship Dagon are turning into fishmen and routinely knob deep ones was the big horrifying revelation that drove the narrator mad? Well, Innsmouthers show up in this game, someone points them out and says, they look weird, don't they? It's because they worship Dagon and are turning into fish. Besides that, they're alright lads, but I wish they'd stop flooding the local economy with all that gold they get from those deep ones they're always knobbing. It just throws me how everyone, including the protagonist, takes all this in their stride. The game has a rather insipid combat element as partial justification for the open world, so every now and again we get attacked by reject Silent Hill homecoming monsters in a basement, and no one seems to give a shit. Yeah, pesky buggers, aren't they? We kinda got used to them after we barricaded off the seven or eight streets they hang out on. I'm sorry, how many streets? What are the fucking cops doing? Shooting at me, apparently, because I got confused and briefly pointed my gun at a deranged, heavily tattooed Deep One cultist as he walked nonchalantly down the street to the chemist. There's something very surreal about Sinking City. That's the point, Yards. I mean, surreal more in a janky design than a horrific way. Let's get that out of the way now. It's not scary. It has more the vibe of a noir thriller about organised crime, where all the factions are based around Lovecraftian monster cults, which rather undermines the inevitable Lovecraft game's sanity meter. We lose sanity as we fight off a basement full of spindly monsters, but not when we go report back to the mutant fish man who gave us the quest, as he gurgles, Damn it, I keep telling those cultists next door to stop leaving their interdimensional harmonizers on. Not that the sanity mechanic makes perfect sense otherwise, if it gets too low we get attacked by delusional monsters, fine. But it comes back by itself so fast it hardly matters. I just make Charles Reed stare at the nearest wall for the ten seconds it takes for him to come to terms with humanity's place in the universe. As I say, it's a very janky game, made jankier by the attempted open world gameplay. Random NPCs appear in the streets, as in literally materialise before your eyes, occasionally hovering a foot off the ground, and taking a mysterious interest in blank walls, perhaps I'm not the only one with a sanity meter, and the open world sandbox has the usual bad sandbox issue in that it's mostly there to pad out the game with extra travel time when nothing much happens and the environments aren't varied enough to make it interesting. There's a lot of copy-pasting going on, especially with the interiors. Think we won't notice if you just move the furniture around, do you, Sinking City? Well, making more than three sofas might have helped. Having said that, I do like that location markers for places of interest aren't added automatically and that you have to add them yourself from vague street directions. In fact, I generally like the detective mechanics overall. You can tell this is the comfort zone of Frog, Sherlock Holmes vs Megatron wares. The stories are nicely worked out, I like the way we physically combine facts to draw conclusions in the memory palace, grand a title as that might be for a boxy menu screen. I could make a fucking text window in Microsoft Access and call it Alibaba's Cave of Wonders, but I'd only be fooling myself. And I like how we have to research cases at the library or the newspaper office to fill in important details, cause that's, you know, what an actual detective does. I just wonder why the newspaper office is still running, when half the city is underwater and the other half is reenacting the mist. The game I'm most reminded of is Silent Hill Downpour, for it too made the fatal mistake of trying to do psychological horror in an open world with side quests, when in doing so they relinquish control of the pacing, and pacing is what a horror story lives or dies on. Sinking City just doesn't grasp pacing at all. There's a bit where you put on a diving suit and descend into the depths beneath the city, arriving in a surreal world of twisted alien ruins where krakens as big as conservatively sized office buildings drift by in the background. This, Sinking City, is the sort of thing you do at the end of the game, as we discover the full extent of what lurks beneath. But this is in the first fucking chapter, and afterwards we just pop straight back up to the city going, blimey, bit weird down there, isn't it? And we go back like five more times over the course of the plot just to completely demystify it, because the first time I was like, oh shit it's a kraken, there'll be no salvaging these underpants, and by the end I'm like, hello Mr Kraken, don't mind me, just 
just cutting through your yard again. Oh, here's your Tupperware back. Thanks again for the cupcakes. How do you get them so moist? Actually, don't answer that. It's taken slightly longer than usual to have to do an indie double bill. Normally the drought period sets in pretty quickly after E3. Thanks, games industry. Now let's work on the constantly trying to steal money from children and vulnerable people thing. And then who knows, perhaps even get you released from that contract with Satan. Anyway, my friend Pedro is a 2.5D platform shooter I feel like I've been hearing about for ages now, which is the classic example of a game that has put a sterling amount of effort into its core second-by-second -second gameplay and bugger all else. The core gameplay is super acrobatic gun combat where you use slow motion to flip and jump all over the place getting insane kill combos and everything else seems to have been worked out in five minutes by someone who goofs off work all day watching old Homestar Runner videos. So the main character is some dude, in a gas mask, and he shoots people wearing Christmas sweaters, and his best friend is, I don't know, a banana with a smiley face. It's random, the internet loves that shit. Except speaking as an internet comedy grandee, bananas are pretty old hat as random humour goes. My grandma uses bananas in her random word association jokes, these days all the cool kids use durians and acai berries. I want to emphasise though that the core combat is really good. I smash through a window on a skateboard, kick the same skateboard into somebody's eye socket, backflip over his friend shooting two guys at once, kick a frying pan into the air and shoot at it so the bullets ricochet to three other guys who were in cover and had apparently latched onto some mad idea that it was in their power to stop me, and then for the first time since initially entering the room, I touched the floor. None of this is pre-animated, it's all within standard game physics, so I can feel like I'm accomplishing something impressive for once in my miserable life, it's got the easy to learn, hard to master thing. I particularly liked the ability to aim at two things at once while dual wielding. Once you get the dual Uzis, it becomes easy to learn, hardly need to master, as the entire world disappears into smoke and blood splatter decals. So in the second half of the game, when you get a bunch of two-handed weapons, too powerful to not use, and the split kill feature all but quietly disappears, like a socially awkward person leaving a party, it's disappointing, because it was the combat's most unique feature. It's like cutting the armpit fuck session short to have more time for the fucking missionary position. But my friend Pedro is a bag of potato chips, you'll appreciate them as they go into your fat disgusting mouth, but once they're gone you'll never think about them again, or write a rave review for Greasy Snacks Digest. All the stuff that makes a game memorable, context, story moments, they're all lost in this dreary attempt at effortless humour that reminds me unpleasantly of Sunset Overdrive, except where that felt like the result of a room full of 35 year olds endlessly workshopping what the kids find amusing these days, my friend Pedro feels like it reaches the same place just by being too lazy to put much thought into it. It even does the same thing where one of the enemy factions is nerdy gamers, not cool gamers like what you, the player, presumably are, and it still comes across as obnoxiously aloof. It also does the thing where it goes, oh look a sewer level, how original, roll eyes, and then proceeds to unironically have a sewer level that goes on way too fucking long. If you know it's bad, why are you doing it? Surely the comedic subversive thing to do would be to pretend we're having a sewer level and then go, oh bollocks to this hackneyed shit, let's have a level where you ride an ostrich through a bouncy castle. That's about it, so let's move on to our next game, Sea of Solitude, an EA original, part of EA's plan to redeem themselves in the eyes of the world, occasionally withdraw their fist from the butthole of their terrified employees, and pat an indie developer on the head with a hand still slick with anxious liquid shit. But why judge? Sea of Solitude is a… what the fuck are you, Sea of Solitude? Exploration game? Go to the thing the game tells you to go to and press a button game? In which you play a girl named Kay adrift in a vast sea full of monsters and flooded buildings, many of which appear to represent people and events from Kay's life, and when I say appear to, I mean totally do, because she keeps reminding us they do. It's one of those games like Gree, aiming to fast-track themselves into the sphere of indie critical darlings by being all sad and metaphorical and about mental health, but has zero subtlety and isn't actually saying anything of interest. It's just got one hand flat against its forehead in exaggerated angst and the other hand outstretched to collect all the best art direction prizes. What I dislike about games like this and Grey is that they're trying to affect the appearance of meaningfulness without actually having any depth. If you look at, say, Moby Dick, it can be interpreted as a metaphor for a lot of things, man versus nature, order versus chaos, the struggle to clean semen out of the bathroom rug before your mum gets home, but on the surface level it's an adventure story about 
about a white whale and a dude with a narcon, and if you prefer it that way then that's all it need be. Great. And Sea of Solitude have no surface level. It's all symbolism all the time, but at least has its characters keep their fucking mouths shut so it's open to interpretation. Sea of Solitude has no such patience, and Kay's narration is constantly laying everything bare. Look, there's a thing, it represents thing, isn't that clever? The game would benefit enormously from an edit, if not total removal of all spoken dialogue, and I'm not just saying that because of the voice acting. The game officially lost me the first time I heard a monster speak in the voice of a normal person putting on a stupid monster voice. Rawr, Kay, you never do anything right. I'm one of your inner demons, have we made that obvious enough yet? Rawr. I noted in the credits that Kay's voice actor was also the lead animator for the project, how relieving it was to hear she hadn't given up the day job. Sea of Solitude is one of those games that's either going to really speak to you or completely leave you cold. It'll all depend on whether you personally relate to Kay or not, and the more I played the more I disliked her. Not because she was an inattentive sister or any of the other reasons the game gives for why she's tormenting herself like this, it's because she's such a fucking self-absorbed drama queen she'll craft a grand operatic scenario out of her interpersonal relationship issues. Oh no, I didn't give my depressed boyfriend enough space, verily must I be clothed in the raiments of the traitor and banish myself to the wine-dark seas of nothingness to dwell forevermore. Just stop texting him so much, you dippy moo! And I wouldn't be so harsh, but I don't even have a decent game to frame it around. Don't code that swimming in the sea where the monster lurks is bad and dangerous if swimming in the sea is the next thing we have to do to progress, for fuck's sake. Unless this is another metaphor. Ooh, the darkness that shrouds the way forward represents the darkness that Kay saw after her head disappeared up her own ass. Let's all laugh at an industry that never learns anything, tee hee hee. So far, the Zero Punctuation Occasional Guide to R-Word Moments in G-Word H-Word has covered publishers with bad ideas, developers with bad hairdos, exclusivity deals, graphical quantum leaps, and moral panics. But how could I have overlooked the one aspect of the games industry that is the most prodigious seam of R-Wordation of them all? Marketing. Maybe it's because the industry is still relatively young, but the shittiness of misguided video game marketing is a particularly rich shade of creamy brown. Whether it be John Romero proudly informing the magazine reading public that he was going to make them all into institutional rape victims, or Sony parading a dead goat around at the God of War 3 launch party. No, really, they did that, a misguided video game PR stunt can never just put its foot in it. It has to put both feet in it and rub it in its eyes and call everyone else a pussy for not being as into it. But there was one company whose feet were rarely out of it in the last few years before their bankruptcy in the mid-2000s and whose story is worth preserving, partly because it's hilarious, partly so that if any other publishers start showing the same symptoms we can save time and take them behind the woodshed now. Acclaim Entertainment was founded in 1987 by some former Activision lads and deliberately chose its name to be above Activision on an alphabetized list, which was a tactic Activision itself used when splitting from Atari. With this in mind, I checked, and no, nobody registered Aardvark Entertainment, which feels like a missed opportunity. Acclaim did good work for a while, particularly with the home console ports of Mortal Kombat and games like Turok Dinosaur Hunter, but things started going downhill in the late 90s. Partly because a lot of their games were rushed out licensed garbage, partly because they were attracting lawsuits from former partners the way Piers Morgan's face attracts scrotums. It might be quicker to list all the entities that weren't suing Acclaim at one point or another. Even the Olsen twins were getting in on some wholesome, apple-cheeked, all-American kicks to the bollocks. But this is just why Acclaim went bankrupt. It doesn't explain why towards the end Acclaim was a joke in the eyes of gamers and gaming media, with a name that had become as tragically ironic as when I in my mid-twenties called myself Mr. Regular Sex because Acclaim was what they weren't getting. See, towards the end Acclaim topped itself again and again with mystifyingly bad ideas for PR stunts. One PR backfire is understandable in the heady, excitable times of a game release, but the same guys doing it over and over again and learning fun all takes a special kind of obliviousness. It started in 2002, when in the run-up to the release of horror-themed action-adventure Shadowman 2, Acclaim announced that they would pay the funeral costs of anyone willing to put a Shadowman 2 advert on the headstone of a deceased relative, prompting public outcry and the Church of England basically telling them to piss off. Yes, Church of Tea and Crumpets with the Vicar England. Takes a lot to upset those lads, they don't even hate gays that much. Now in my research, the name Steve Perry came up a lot, apparently he was the executive coming up with these ideas, but I find it hard to believe that one person could be entirely to blame. Sure, I can see one executive 
executive descending from a cocaine-induced trance to announce, hey, I know what demographic we should target, the recently bereaved. What I have trouble picturing is the room full of colleagues that then replied, yes, we agree. What a good idea, let's action it, without subsequently making hasty, sarcastic eye rolls at whoever was keeping the minutes. Later the same year, Acclaim promoted the resoundingly mediocre Turok evolution by offering a sack of cash to anyone who was willing to christen their newborn baby Turok, apparently shifting their demographic focus to the other end of the scale. Now, one might reasonably say at this point, surely it wasn't a serious offer to let new parents cash in on their future bullying victims, surely these were just shock tactics to grab headlines, the way a graffiti artist just wants attention and doesn't literally want to fuck the police. I mean, be serious, there aren't enough hours in the day. Well, Acclaim would always insist these were genuine offers when pressed, and therefore they must have been by the universal law of no-take-backsies, but they also claimed that the baby name idea was taken from a marketing expert named Simeon Cantrell, who it turned out didn't exist, who wrote a book whose ISBN number in truth belonged to a book of children's knock-knock jokes. All of which indicates that at least one person at Acclaim was treating this as a big ironic gag that would send them laughing all the way to the bank, but Acclaim was still losing money so it was more like a forced chuckle all the way to the dole office. Besides, if the intent was to shock, it failed, the tone of the media coverage was more mocking than mind-blown, and some of their other stunts, the bus shelter advert that oozed blood, painting Virtua Tennis logos onto the wings of pigeons, were hardly noticed, all of which is probably why Acclaim felt the need to push their luck even further with their misguided PR stunt for Burnout 2, in which, continuing the free cash for self-abuse pattern, they offered to pay the speeding fines of any driver caught by cameras on the day the game came out. Yes, having targeted the newly born and the recently dead, Acclaim were making the logical step of reaching out to the soon-to-be-dead. Obviously this offer was pulled when it was pointed out they were all but inciting a motorised version of The Purge, but to my mind Acclaim's most egregious PR stunt was the PR stunt that was also a game. Namely, BMX Triple X. A room full of executives passed around the nitrous oxide and reached the conclusion that the next logical step for the popular Dave Mirror freestyle BMX series was to have a version of the game where everyone had their tits and bums hanging out. It was a staggeringly cheap and awful concept, and upon getting wind of it Dave Mirror paused briefly between one-handers to firmly request that his name be taken off. Acclaim then went, well he said that, but maybe if we kept him in the game anyway he'd realise that we just want to include him in our good-natured knockabout funfest, and come around to our mission to delight the tit and bum loving children of the world. And you know what, Dave Mirror's heart grew three sizes that day. Nah, I'm just kidding, he sued their bollocks off. Acclaim's terrible ideas collectively feel like a test of the old adage that there's no such thing as bad publicity. They were certainly getting the headlines and exposure they wanted, but I think the lesson to be learned by the marketers of video games today, as they rent out entire car parks worth of space at E3 and manufacture Ghost Recon branded contraceptives, is that it only works if the product is good. Maybe a bad PR stunt could ultimately push a good game into the exposure it deserves, but Acclaim weren't making good games. They were making rushed out innovationless plop, and their headline grabbing shenanigans that would have made them seem like endearing cheeky pranksters in the name of a quality product were simply turning a bunch of rushed-out innovationless plot peddlers into insane rushed-out innovationless plot peddlers. You can put all the marketing in the world behind a great big turd, but it won't make it not a turd, no matter how many people you pay to tattoo the logo just above their assholes. We, people who like single-player narrative-based video games, really are the fucking disgruntled older siblings of this industry, aren't we? Nothing is ours forever. Alright, you've had enough fun with your new Wolfenstein series, give it up now so we can let your hyperactive little cunt of a younger brother have it. Oh, he doesn't like it so much, so we're gonna break its kneecaps and make it multiplayer-focused. You were done with it, right? Why can't we just have something that's ours. Why does everything we have eventually get handed to Timmy Cuntface? You know he fucks the dog, right? Well, maybe if you bought a loot box now and then, we'd overlook you molesting the pets too. On the whole, it wasn't our most productive family therapy session. So here's Wolfenstein Youngblood. It's Neo Wolfenstein, but co-op focused. I can count on the fingers of one hand the number of narrative-based franchises that have been improved by making the latest instalment co-op focused, and I don't have any fingers on my hand because it's a featureless white circle. Kind of surprised it took you this long to notice. Set 20 years after the notably shit ending of Wolfenstein the New Colossus, America has been liberated from the Nazis, and B.J. Blazkowicz the 
stale corn dog that walks like a man, is living on a farm with his wife and teenage daughters. Long story short, or rather short story even shorter, BJ up and pisses off one day and his daughters head to occupied Paris to look for him. Now regular viewers will know I already hold a grudge against this game after E3, when I had to play it for three quarters of my hour with Bethesda and it would have gone on longer if I hadn't insisted on switching to Doom, but it turns out I was wise to do that because if I hadn't I'd have ended up playing 90% of the fucking plot right there. I assumed the extreme patchiness of the story was due to it being an E3 demo, but no, that was the finished version. Girl 1 and Girl 2 expressed desire to find their dad, smash cut to them meeting the resistance in occupied Paris, having apparently encountered zero difficulties entering a major city controlled by a fascist techno-Nazi oppressor and contacting the underground. Also they have super suits because their support character brought two along precisely in their size despite having no prior knowledge that they'd be going on this trip. Where did you get them? Ask our heroines. The writers didn't care and neither should you, comes the essential reply. After this we get one more introductory cutscene in which Girl and Girl have a Tomb Raider reboot style case of the Wibblies as they score their first kill, and then away we go to start chalking up Nazis like we're raking the fucking lawn. It all goes towards making the main characters virtually impossible to like, as victories and super suits are simply scattered before them like rose petals, experiencing zero adversity as they go about their desperate rescue mission to a country occupied by a highly advanced army of brutal fanatics with the air of a pair of college girls guffawing their way to spring break, where they will gigglingly dare each other to drink entire half pints of 5% cider, making rather a stark contrast to BJ's never-ending stream of hardship in his last few games, during which the only reason he wasn't constantly sobbing in futile rage is because scar tissue had welded his tear ducts shut. I place the blame for all of this squarely on the co-op focus. Can't waste any fucking time establishing characters, Timmy cunt face might be getting distracted by thoughts of juice boxes or Samurai Jack. And the bitterest pill to swallow is that this co-op gameplay upon whose altar Wolfenstein has gutted itself didn't even need to be co-op at all. That's obvious from the start when it asks, which sister do you want to play as? Don't worry, they have exactly the same abilities and would be equally intolerable if you were sitting next to them at a wedding. What that says to me is that this is the kind of co-op shooter that's basically just a boring single player shooter with an increased number of bullet sponge enemies and a lot of the prerequisite very heavy doors, and lots of rooms with two switches on opposite walls, never so far away that they couldn't easily have been one switch. And for the sake of this, and this alone, we are forced to put up with the trappings of co-op even when playing offline. The inability to pause, only being able to track one mission at a time, unless we forget having to drag a permanent AI partner around that sticks to you like a genital ward and won't go away no matter how hard you windmill. An AI partner with a scrappy-do level of appreciation for their own ability and to whom you have to give constant healing fist bumps lest they steal all your lives. Oh yeah, let's add a nice big black mark for that, a brown mark smeared on with a white-knuckled fistful of turd. There's a live system that you and the old ball and chain have to share. Run out and you have to start the mission all over again. Oh, did you originally go into the mission with three lives? Well now you have to restart it with one, fuck you. But why, Wolfenstein Youngblood? Because we hate you, player. We hate that you exist. Because by existing you prove that there's an audience for this tosh, forcing us to make it when none of us give much of a shit about it and would much rather be, say, working on the new Doom or picking biscuit crumbs out of our belly hair. So let's be scientific about this, how much does Wolfenstein Youngblood not care? Well it's a pseudo-open world with multiple separated hub maps for side questing which prompts a little blip on the give a shitometer, but your final objectives are basically given to you at the start and all you need to do is grind up samey side quests until your level is high enough to do them, and that's the entire game structure right there, shit's given 0.0. And then there's the enemy variety, or absence of same, ranging from armoured Nazi to larger armoured Nazi, but it's the enemy placement that makes the arrow on the give a shitometer start burrowing into the floor. I'm in one of many samey urban environments, my attempt at stealth inevitably fails when my AI partner is caught doing chalk drawings on the pavement, I gun down a horde of screaming bullet sponges with bullets and explosives, then pass through one flimsy gate and find another unit of Nazis completely oblivious to what I was doing next door, and then I go back through the gate and all the previous dudes have respawned. So all in all I'm having as much impact on the world as my teeth have on a brass bollard. I have to pass through the underground tunnels again where it's pitch black and I can't use any gun without a flashlight, and they're full of the same Nazis as always, how can they fucking see? How can their exploding kamikaze dogs see? Serious Sam gets away with exploding kamikazes because you find them in open areas. In claustrophobic tunnels they're basically, we're taking your health now, fuck you. So in conclusion Wolfenstein Youngblood gives so little shit it is actively removing shit from the universe. Put that on your blurb Bethesda, the video game equivalent of a 
colonic irrigation. Well, as Mrs Hitler must have thought as she fucked up her first attempt to shoot herself, you'd think I'd be used to disappointment by now. As a game critic who, despite the industry's best efforts, maliciously and persistently remembers when games were good, not about fully embodying the concept of the banality of evil, disappointment strew my path like a shiny carpet made of every condom that was ever over-optimistically stored in a wallet and eventually had to be thrown out when they went a bit manky. But this was a week for new flavours of disappointments. My attention was drawn to a new indie game and shortly after I started playing I was hooked by its unique charm and the staggering amount of effort that must have gone into it. I couldn't understand why the game didn't have more exposure. Yes, it was swimming in the eternal ocean-sized grease trap that is the Steam indie game market, but the really interesting new titles usually find a way to break surface. Maybe I could be the one to bring it the exposure it deserves and then all the little indie game developing pixies will carry me shoulder high and finally acknowledge me as their god. That was day one. After two weeks I still hadn't finished the game and had realised that I completely didn't want to play any more of the bloody thing, which if all you future game critics are taking notes is what we professionals call a con. So the game we're talking about is Horace, just in case you got to this video by randomly clicking the screen or some other method that precludes reading the fucking title, and of all the games on Steam that carry the user tag Story Rich, Horace is one of the few that deserves it. It's riding a fucking story limo down Story Street, braying with laughter and flicking crumpled dollar bills to the story crack whores. The story concerns, predictably enough, Horace, a sentient robot who is raised by an eccentric English scientist, and for the first part of the game we watch them develop from trembling newborn to beloved family member through strategic use of pixel art platforming, the effect being somewhere between Bicentennial Man and Fantasy World Dizzy. Horace bears something of a resemblance to Fantasy World Dizzy, which might have been what made the game speak to me so much, that and the dense number of references to retro British television, which might make it a bit niche. I appreciate the now feeders ain't pet reference, but I wonder how much of the Steam user base would. Anyway, Horace's life with his family is just a touch too harmonious, so obviously disaster strikes, Horace is shut down and wakes up years later to find everyone gone in the country a war-torn dystopia, and from here the combination of retro British quaintness and harsh violent cynicism lends an almost Kubrickian, clockwork orangey sort of vibe to proceedings, all seen through the filter of Horace's childlike naivete, as he narrates everything with a synthesised voice reminiscent of a ten-year-old reading aloud their deconstructive essay on the very hungry caterpillar, and it only makes the shiny little bastard more endearing. So the all-important question, having gotten me on board, how does Horace fuck it up? Well, mainly in the gameplay, as the same care with which the story and cutscenes were crafted is not reflected in the structuring of the platforming challenges. The story can be as good as it wants, but without a good structure it's like a statue being mounted on a huge pile of broken matchsticks or a painting framed with a taped-together Weetabixes. First of all, the jumping doesn't feel great. If you're not holding down the run button, Horace can barely clear a drawing pin. Furthermore, the game aspires to a level of Super Meat Boy difficulty, comparable to steering a motorised skateboard through a hedge maze constructed entirely from the rare electrified whirring saw blade bush. So this causes a catastrophically loud grinding of gears when it intersects with the very strong context the story has established. One might reasonably wonder why everyone has a gauntlet of whirring saw blades and exposed sparking wires in their house and or workplace. If security was the concern they could have locked the fucking door. After a while I had to consciously will myself to keep playing rather than spend the afternoon immersing my hands in bags of rice instead. There's not much sense of challenge ramping up, unless the north face of the Eiger counts as a ramp now. It felt like the game would introduce a hazard and then immediately start using it to make things as hard as possible. Yes, it never dwells on failure and you can restart in seconds, but after a while perfectly getting past a room full of whirring egg whisks and vats of corrosive Fanta, only to die at the last moment because your toe lightly brushed a cornflake on landing, well it wears me down. I try to suck it up and enjoy the story, but it's like trying to hold a conversation with someone who alternates between encouraging nods and smiles and ringing smacks to the head. But even the story fails to live up to the promise of the beginning once things get going, the main issue is consistency. I honestly don't know if Horace is post-apocalyptic or not. Right after you wake up, everything's in ruins, and apparently evil robots killed the vast majority of humanity, and then you hop on a train to a nice sunny town, where everything's lovely and you take a part-time job washing dishes in a tea shop, complete with slightly annoying fiddly mini-game just so you don't get too relaxed and think the smacks to the head have stopped. Various attempts at broader themes are made, but swiftly glossed over and forgotten about. There might be an oppressive government in power, it's hard to tell, we occasionally have to rescue someone being held in some secure facility or other, but they also might have deserved it or been there willingly, it's all very confusing. Even more so for the one chapter where we go on a time travel adventure to ancient history out of fucking nowhere, fight a giant Egyptian robot and then come right back to the present and never mention it again, except as a diverting anecdote to tell the old ladies in the tea shop, and I think that was where I realised what Horace was. Horace was somebody's baby, presumably the same somebody whose name appears in massive letters with a musical sting 
thing on the first ident screen. A game they were probably working on for ages, long enough to get bored and need to distract themselves with time travel adventures and weirdly elaborate mini-games that could have been serviceable core mechanics in themselves, but were overindulgently thrown into Darling Baby as an aside, and the result of overindulgence is Bloated Baby. No 2D pixel art game should be a 14 gig download for fuck's sake. Throwing more stuff into Baby's trough was clearly more important than testing or refining what was in there, keeping the apple sauce separate from the bacon grease. Perhaps they gotta fix some of the bugs, like the one that made me stop playing. At the point when the game gets bored again and decides it's going to be a Metroidvania for a bit, which made the platforming even more demoralising because now I didn't know if it was even taking me the right fucking way, I accidentally glitched through a puzzle I didn't have the means to solve and softlocked my whole fucking run. And I was sad, viewer, because I still think Horace is worth a chance. In contrast to AAA games, there's clearly actual love in it, but there's such a thing as too much love, as my ex once told me as I wanked off into the trival. Back before Mass Effect finished itself off with all the grace and elegance of the last season of Game of Thrones wanking into a bin, whenever I played one of those games it always struck me how you only ever saw that universe from the top of the social heap, from the perspective of a universally famous and respected galactic saviour who can swan about on the best ship ever, decking journalists with impunity and being extremely flighty about what his favourite store in the Citadel is. I always wondered what the Mass Effect universe was like to the average fuck, just about qualified to reverse their space van out of their own space driveway and deliver crates of flavourless nutrient paste to the worker cubes. How did they feel about Commander Shepard? Were they happy with the flavour of ice cream they got at the end of Mass Effect 3? Well I guess we'll never know now, since after Mass Effect Andromeda more Mass Effect is about as hotly demanded as the Jeffrey Epstein bumper fun activity book for kids, but don't pout cause Rebel Galaxy Outlaw is here, a game in the tradition of Wing Commander Privateer about being an average fuck flying a great big skip around the sci-fi future with only two major concerns, one staying alive and two not being dead. Rebel Galaxy Outlaw is set in a sci-fi universe with a frontier western vibe to it which I preferred when it was called Borderlands, which I preferred when it was called Firefly, which I preferred when it was called Cowboy Bebop, delete according to generation. Actually the main character, whose name stubbornly refused to adhere to my memory like a post-it note covered in dog hair, kind of resembles the main bloke from Firefly if they'd been played by Jamie Lee Curtis. What with the game flying the sandbox space sim standard, her job and moral code depend largely on you. By profession she's either a freelance law enforcer, pirate, bounty hunter, trader or perplexingly heavily armed postal worker. You can even have a go at being a pool hustler if you want, although I'd wonder why you bought an exciting space dogfight game to do so. Pools, slot machines, dice, all these little mini-games you can play when you saunter into a space saloon for a glass of pickled brine are like a water slide attendant wanting to show you how fast he can solve a Rubik's Cube. Yes, it's sort of impressive that he put the effort into learning, but I only need to see it once and then I'd really just like to focus on going down this water slide, thanks man. The water slide in this metaphor representing the exciting space flight sim that is the core of the game, one that I wish I'd indulged in a bit more player training. I was eight fucking hours in before I figured out how to stop. I was holding down the brake button, you see. Turns out I was supposed to press it repeatedly to bring down my target speed one chunk at a time. My target speed being the little random number buried in all the other random unlabeled readouts on the screen that could have been my fucking Cadbury's cream egg inventory for all I knew. Still, this is the sort of thing that's expected of a space sim cockpit game. There's something inherently appealing about sitting at a ridiculously complicated control bank. Brings back nostalgic memories of visiting your dad at the building site and wanting to have a go on the wrecking ball. The same reason Steel Battalion used to be sold with a controller resembling the mixing desk of a very stubborn and pretentious DJ who knows full well that he could just use a laptop these days but looks down on people who do. And Outlaw Galaxy Rebels controls stop being intimidating very quickly when you realise that the core gameplay mostly boils down to point to the thing and go to the thing. You're probably wondering how I was able to get by for eight hours without knowing how to stop. Surely I would have needed to stop at outposts, to trade cargo, take bounties, sell crystal meth to local high schoolers depending on the path I was trying to forge. Well all you have to do is fly close to an outpost, or indeed aim your nose cone squarely at the outpost's biggest and most solid looking exterior wall and fly full steam ahead, and you'll get auto-docked, fading out and fading up on the landing pad, which is a little disappointing. The fiddly nuts and bolts of takeoff and landing in games like Elite Dangerous aren't exactly glamorous but they add to the immersion, and sometimes after I left a station I'd drift too close to it while lining up my next navigation point and get sucked into auto-dock again, for a Columbo-style just one more thing. Blimey, you kids go through crystal meth fucking quick. There's altogether a bit too much fading out and fading up in Galaxy Outlaw Rebel, it's also how the autopilot works. Point to the second star on the right, click to get your ruby slippers, fade out and fade up. Your playable universe is already completely 
comparatively titchy, I wouldn't be trying to make it feel even smaller, lads. But I'm assuming the intention was to cut out all the boring bits, the way you break up a long road trip by drinking from a thermos flask full of absinthe until you strategically black out. Bubble Bollocksy Boutlaw clearly has a very specific tone in mind, judging by the way your ship's radio is constantly blaring all the young people's rock music that the crew too didn't already license, and how all the pirates you dogfight do the Borderlands thing where they constantly spout jokey dialogue in overdone comedy accents like it's open mic night on the original series Enterprise. All hallmarks of what I have come to call the magenta games genre, but while Burble Burble Burblaw has a couple of magenta knickers hidden in its sock drawer, it lacks the slightly desperate air of projected self-awareness that characterises the true magenta game. In fact, I think my main problem with it is that it fails to go all the way in any particular area. See, a game like this is either going to be a frantic high-energy dogfight sim, or a nice, calm, meditative experience about getting crates of flavourless nutri-paste to where they need to be, like Elite Dangerous, the whole space trucking thing that I occasionally like to pair with a nice podcast for an afternoon's unwinding, and Double Bubble Bobble's attempts to balance the two falls short. For all its loud music, quirky tone and snipped out boring travel bits, the energy level just can't be sustained. And before long out came the podcast menu and down came the volume sliders. I tried to prioritise the story missions, but they very quickly started taking me into higher threat areas than my ship could handle, so I had to stop and grind up cash for a while with repetitive random crystal meth selling missions to buy a better ship. And that's not making it easy to stay engaged with the story. What were we doing again? Oh yeah, dedicating our life for revenge on the evil space pirate who killed our husband or goldfish or something. Sorry, I forgot, it was a while back. I've been clearing minefields and trading and listening to true stories from American history for the last six hours. Even the battling with space pirates got dull, since either I'd win from holding down the auto-pursue button for long enough, or I'd get sodomised into space dust because I was foolish enough to take a mission with a threat level higher than mild. So in the end, I'd say Robble Gobble Wobble lacks both the energy for short-term fun and the depth for long-term fun. Play it for a precisely middling amount of time for a middling amount of entertainment, and then go eat a bag of plain crisps while sitting on the middle path of a seesaw. Control, besides being a very obnoxious title to search for, I mean I typed in Control Cover and Google seemed to think I was looking to accessorise my light switches, is a new game by Remedy Entertainment, and you know what, viewers, blinded though I may be by carelessly flung knickers and solvent abuse, I'm pretty sure I could have guessed it was a Remedy game. It's got all the hallmarks from their last two games, Alan Wake and Quantum Break, although I'm disappointed that the rhyming scheme has ended. Unless we're on the third line of the limerick now, first Remedy made Alan Wake, and followed it with Quantum Break, and then came Control, all penned to a soul by a squinty young man named Sam Lake. Those hallmarks being a dense and somewhat inscrutable plot, a fondness for live-action video segments, and a consideration to core gameplay roughly equivalent to the consideration one gives to what shade of beige to paint the downstairs loo. I'd almost consider Control a direct follow-up to Alan Wake as it covers very similar themes, a secret occult world lurking beneath reality, the juxtaposition of the horrific against the crushingly mundane. The main difference is that Sam Lake has apparently moved on from Stephen King books and now gets his ideas from binge-reading the SCP wiki. Control entirely takes place within the headquarters of the Federal Bureau of Control, a mysterious inscrutable government agency tasked with the securing, containing, and you guessed it, protection of mundane objects that have acquired mysterious inscrutable properties, like a bread bin that inscrutably turns sourdough into multigrain, or a Netflix true crime documentary that mysteriously isn't massively over-sensationalised. Our protagonist, Jesse surname, arrives at the front door of the FBC offices looking for her missing brother, who was taken away by the FBC when they were kids after a major paranormal fuster cluck in their hometown. But as she arrives, the FBC is under attack by a mysterious inscrutable faceless force that I don't think is the same one from Alan Wake, but is probably at least on nodding terms with it because it does all of the same shit. Warp reality, and turn humans into violent corrupted versions of themselves, still weirdly capable of holding and firing guns, which is jolly convenient if one happens to be, say, casting them as enemies in a slightly annoying third-person shooter. But more on that later. Anyway, the FBC director gets murder-sided, and Jesse becomes the new director by virtue of being quite near the corpse, for the mysterious and inscrutable nature of the FBC extends even to its hiring policies. Jessie's a strange character, she comes across as rather emotionally guarded, perhaps understandable since she originally came here to start a prison riot or something, so to make her motivations clear the game has her narrate her inmost thoughts in voiceover, often just before she talks to someone, which can sometimes come across like we've turned on subtitles for the attention deficit. I should talk to this person about my missing brother. Hey, did I mention that my brother went missing? But what throws me is that she never seems particularly troubled or challenged by anything that goes on, she literally acquires 
requires the ability to fly at one point and just shruggingly files it alongside her other superpowers, like a quarterly bank statement. In this way she reflects her environment, I suppose, this clean mundane corporate office building that harbours mysterious inscrutable secrets and the occasional superpowered monster fight, but it does make it hard to relate to her. Personally I'd react a bit more strongly to suddenly being able to fly. I'd be all like, fucking sweet, the squirrels in my garden have imposed upon their last bird feeder. Control is sort of an open world in the System Shock style where you can go back to previous levels of the building and random side quests occasionally pop up to give you a reason to do so, although I always ignored them because having to do more of the combat without the motivation of the main plot felt like putting clothes pegs on my nipples outside of a masturbation context. Remedy games always have this infuriating problem where they put a huge emphasis on storytelling but have no interest whatsoever in exploring how gameplay can be part of that. We're making an intrigue about a complex character having to face interpersonal issues against the background of a mysterious and indeed inscrutable breakdown of reality. Sounds good, Remedy. What sort of gameplay will it have? Gameplay? Pfft, I don't know. Shoot dudes with a gun. Will that be enough for you little snot rags, or would you like us to provide you with a nice shiny ball to bounce as well? So for much of the runtime you are indeed shooting an endless stream of dudes with a gun, then you acquire the telekinesis power and alternate between shooting dudes with gun and blatting dudes with chunks of floor, which is functionally identical except you don't have to aim and it's quite a bit funnier. Meanwhile the story is largely established with cutscenes, random logs and audio documents and the Remedy trademark live action videos, and to fully absorb them we have to stop whatever gameplay we're doing, park our bums down and listen enraptured with our fists held beneath our chins. So once again a Remedy story and its token gameplay live in separate bedrooms like a pair of mismatched housemates too sullen and passive aggressive to get into a proper argument. There's a tonal clash as well, the static and emotionally cold tone of the story doesn't match the frantic running, gunning and showering in physics objects and particle effects, but taking the combat by itself it's more frustrating than cathartic. I'm sure these deep atmospheric shadows look nice when the screenshots are riding the media merry-go-round, but it makes it hard to tell what the fuck's going on, especially when chunks of floor are flying. More than once I got killed out of fucking nowhere because what I took to be a random spark or passing raver turned out to be an incoming missile, moving with the approximate speed at which a middle class person passes through a low income neighbourhood. So back to another overlong loading screen to contemplate my error. Incidentally I was playing the PS4 version which appears to be about as well optimised as a pile of chunky dog vomit on a shag pile carpet. The frame rate gargles gravel the moment the action heats up and the PS4's fan noise provided a suitable backing track to my weary size. But maybe I'm being too harsh on Control because it's named after the thing I don't have on my life. I liked it enough to finish it. Remedies let's diplomatically call it detached attitude to gameplay works better in this pseudo open world setting than it did in Alan Brake or Quantum Wake which would just interrupt their strictly linear narratives with contrived gunfights every five minutes like you're trying to read a book while the family dog is trying to chew your feet off. Even if I didn't get what was going on at times, the story was interesting enough just by the way it explored its ideas, and sometimes that's enough even without fully grasping the precise nuts and bolts of the plot. Side note, always seek consent before grasping someone's nuts. But the format demands that the story end on a weak source now finish all the side quest notes, so I'm not prepared to say the story ends at all on any satisfying level. In summary then, Control is intriguing enough with its mysterious inscrutable stuff, but the combat is cloying and about as annoying as a limerick that doesn't end properly. Now I'm not in favour of putting labels on everything per se, unless I'm looking for my lunch in a workplace fridge, but on the other hand I do support putting bells around the necks of people with incurable infectious diseases and that's how I think of a lot of my work. There are a couple of particularly loud and clangy bells dangling from this week's subject which is fitting because all of its characters are bellends. The phrase interactive movie has always been a warning sign, quite a vintage one too, like the skull and crossbones they put on first world war minefields, usually means you're in for an experience that can be recreated with basically any movie on a player with pause and skip buttons, but the other slightly larger alarm bell hanging off Man of Medan is a newer one, labelled multiplayer focused storytelling. Oh boy, we're going to have to learn this lesson again, aren't we? A story is an inherently personal experience, you do it no favours by obliging me to experience it alongside other people, or having to listen to them talk and get exposed to their hideous diseases. Man of Maiden comes to us from the creators of Until Dawn, which wasn't awful as far as interactive movies go, but that's like being the least painful as far as horse chestnuts in my jockstrap go. But apparently Supermassive Games think they fucking nailed it, because now they're committing to something called The Dark Pictures Anthology, of which Man of Maiden is but the first, a series of branching narrative horror stories with gameplay identical to Until Dawn, hosted Crypt Keeper style by a very smug British man, who feels he has to interrupt every now and again to smug off about how much we're fucking things up, like he's 
commentating on the snooker tournament he mistakenly dressed up for. But about that multiplayer, the game makes a big thing of its movie night mode, where up to five people on a couch can enjoy the story together. You know, the kind of thing you do when you suspect it's going to be really bad and want someone to take the piss out of it with. Turns out the movie night mode is just the single player, but every now and again a message pops up saying pass the controller to such and such, and I'm pretty sure I could have created this mode myself with literally any single player game, or indeed any DVD with pause and skip functions. There's also online multiplayer where players can interact with each other as the characters at various points in the plot, but I question its worth since the gameplay is just a patchwork of binary choices that funnel you down rigidly defined paths, so another player isn't contributing much more than a random number generator would, until Dawn had its problems and they've mostly been transplanted directly across to this. I hate that examining a fucking piece of paper on a desk has to be such an arcane process, involving one button press, two button holds, and a brief sacrifice to the god of transcribed handwriting. I hate how the mere act of moving around a room is like trying to steer a frightened overweight pig onto a slaughterhouse conveyor belt, apparently in the name of cinematic walking animations that very realistically depict people who have debilitating strokes whenever they attempt to pass through doorways, and the very cinematic arty camera angles with thick black bars at the top and bottom make it virtually impossible to figure out what is and what is not a doorway without rubbing yourself against every wall like you've got two broken arms and really itchy nipples. My point is, perhaps the Until Dawn formula could have been iterated a bit before we jumped all the way to adding groundbreaking multiplayer or throwing words like anthology around. So that's the technical side, let's settle into a nice hot bath of diarrhoea and complain about the plot. Man of Medan is about five really quite spectacularly awful people who go on a diving holiday in the South Pacific, only to get drawn into a sort of extremely gritty episode of Scooby-Doo, involving pirates and an abandoned ghost ship about 35-40% as horrible as they deserve. And the only reason I can't summarise each personality in one word, like I could with Until Dawn, is because I have to stick the word annoying on the front of them all. Annoying jock. Annoying nerd. Annoying rich girl. Annoying sex pest. Oh Yahtzee, you talk like you've never watched a Jason film, and cheered as a complex sentient being, established in two minutes of screen time to have some abrasive qualities, gets his scrotum bisected with a lawn edger. It's a horror story, you're supposed to hate the cast so you can enjoy their comeuppance. Two problems with that. First, they don't decide to go to the ghost ship, the pirates take them there, so it's not exactly poetic justice, and second, on my first run through all of them survived, so apparently it's not hard to do so. Although I am unusually good at quick time events. I learned how to react quickly in my time as chief skirting board cleaner at the hospital for compulsive buggerers. I'll give Supermassive Games credit, although they seem to have taken quite enough of it in their fucking name. The stories do branch. It's not like a telltale game where your choices at most determine whether character A angrily sucks off a lemur or joyfully sucks off a lemur. Characters and entire plot threads live and die on your actions. But not just your obvious choices, and I'm a little iffy about tying plot branches to skill challenges like quick time events that you can win or lose. That implies that there is a good path and a bad path. And no path could be bad if it ends with Mr. A.S. Pest getting his face bitten off as he sputters indignantly at the gall of these frigid peasants. Also, having a plot branch depend on something like whether or not we examine and the giant golden clitoris in the sex museum, when interacting with it is the only thing you can do in the sex museum, and approximately 99% of players will do so, and the remaining 1% only didn't because they were killed by a rogue sniper. That's the sort of thing that gets annoying when you're on the achievement hunt looking for all the paths. One thing I find worth mentioning is that when annoying sex pest sex pesters annoying judgmental captain lady, in one version of events she rightly shuts him the fuck down and later on he might get his knackers minced in the workings of a grandfather clock, but there's an equally valid timeline where she is successfully romanced by his horrible attitude, and he rides off into the sunset arm in arm with his future acrimonious divorce. And I think this illustrates an inherent issue with branching narrative, that it means the story can't take any kind of firm philosophical stance, like don't be a sex pest. But even if the cast had been Bruce Campbell multiplied five times, the several variants of every scene and dialogue line means the stitching at the joints is often painfully obvious, awkward pauses, weirdly timed reaction shots, a character's attitude or physical position mysteriously changing from one line to the next. It pulls me right out of the story, unless we forget we're still aspiring to no higher model than shitty teen horror films, so expect cheap jump scares like you're watching your kids use a suspiciously inexpensive second-hand trampoline. So I can't say I was engaged. I would recommend the movie night mode, if you're bad at cooking and you want your dinner party guests to get used to being underwhelmed. Remnant? 
You know, I'm torn on doing a dry heave here. I always dry heave when a new game tries to have a colon to double title for the sake of the dream of larger franchising that odds are good will remain naught but a glint in the publisher's eye, but if you took the colon out of Remnant from the Ashes, it would work perfectly well as a single title. Remnant from the Ashes. Sure, a remnant is a logical thing to find in some ashes. If you're finding, say, bread bins or lollipop ladies in the ashes, that might be a cause for concern or a sign you need to buy a hotter oven, but remnants? Sure, ashes are loaded with the fuckers. But then again, the point is to dry heave at unnecessary colons, and by any metric that's what this is, so sorry fellas, rules are rules. Remnant from the Ashes is a third-person action adventure with a grim tone set in a dying world. It's a Dark Souls clone, isn't it? Yes, Yahtzee, that's why we thought you'd like it. Since you feel about Dark Souls the way a starving tiger feels about something tigers particularly enjoy eating. Yeah, but it feels like half the original IPs these days are Dark Souls clones. You're like grandparents, you are. I show up to your house in orange trousers one fucking time, and now you get me a new pair of orange trousers every fucking Christmas. So come on then, what's this one's gimmick? Well, it's Dark Souls, but with guns. So Bloodborne then. No, shut up. It's Dark Souls but a full-on third-person shooter, over-the-shoulder iron sights the whole steaming cow path. So it's Dark Souls but combined with the other 50% of every game that comes out these days. I suppose you could also say it's Dark Souls but co-op, even though Dark Souls is already my perfect co-op game in that other people mostly leave me the fuck alone, but I can grudgingly call them in to help out if a boss is really kicking my ass and afterwards they immediately fuck off. The point being that the environments and challenges of Dark Souls are not obviously designed around co-op multiplayer whereas Remnants most certainly are, meaning long repetitive dungeon crawls full of streams of copy-pasted baddies and every fucking boss fight has the boss call in his fucking Alcoholics Anonymous support group for your theoretical tag-alongs to help deal with. There's one boss that is two bosses that both stay either side of the narrow bridge the player's on, so for solo players it's literally impossible to keep track of both at once unless you happen to be an owl, and it won't be less frustrating because the controller will keep falling out of your majestic talons. So Breadbin from the Ashes didn't make a good first impression. I know, because I have to talk about the plot at some point and I've been stalling as I can't remember what it fucking was. It's post-apocalyptic, naturally. Civilization has collapsed after an invasion by a strange mystical alien threat called The Root, a name that presumably was not suggested by an Australian. We play a lone survivor who's trying to get somewhere. I seem to remember a lighthouse being mentioned at the start. Maybe we were late for our audition to be the protagonist in a Bioshock game. Whatever, we shack up with a pocket of human survivors in a bunker, and that becomes our staging post from which to embark upon the usual Souls-like routine. Go out into the world, unlock new bonfires, I mean... I fucking forgot what they renamed the bonfires to as well. Bonfires. Find loot, upgrade your stats and weapons, die and die and die like First World War soldiers who've just been told that a new trench foot clinic has opened in the middle of no man's land. But here comes the second act twist, listeners. Remnant is doing something right, because after a while I was getting into it. That's why I'm annoyed I can't remember how the plot started. See, I fell into a trance early on, going through ruined sewer after ruined sewer in a boring Darksiders-esque apocalyptic city, but I awoke from my trance several hours later to find myself going through a bunch of stargates following some kind of interdimensional Dr. Livingston on safari through a multi of radioactive desert worlds and jungle planets, where enigmatic creatures offered alliances and less enigmatic but considerably more numerous creatures offered a variety of primitive bladed weapons off the rusty periscope, and I'd kind of like to remember how the fuck I got there. Somewhere along the way, resignedly trudging through the game for work had transmuted into engagedly playing through it for fun, and I'm not sure where the line was crossed. Not that it's a spellbinding game, the combat and environment switch up the bare minimum amount of times to keep things interesting, and there's still enough repetition that I had to have my podcasts on lest my brain turn into a great big needed eraser, but I think the game benefits from a strong core gameplay loop. It is hard to fuck up over-the-shoulder shooting, it is the beans on toast of gameplay mechanics, but Remnant from the Arses manages to balance standard combat to be simultaneously challenging and not so bullet-spongy that mowing everyone down stops being cathartic. Now there's a sentence that'll get me flanked on a database somewhere. Even playing single-player in my stubbornly obstinate way, the entourage boss fights were never so frustrating that they didn't feel quite doable after a handful of attempts. The all-purpose top tip for dealing with bosses with minions is focus on the minions first, because you can't miss the boss as they waddle around the arena under the weight of their chemically enhanced balls, it's the little sneaky 
knives up the gravy trumpet you need to worry about. Still, I have gripes. When I find a new extremely repetitive maze-like dungeon, it would be nice to know if this is one of the repetitive days-like dungeons that will progress me in the game, or if it's one of the optional depreciative raise-like luncheons that will just give me a new weapon or piece of armour at the end, and then look offended when I don't seem appreciative. Cause Remnant has the Dark Souls problem where whenever you find a new weapon, if you're lucky it'll only need about 12 levels of upgrades before it can compete with your starting weapons you've been upgrading all this time. The ones you've gotten used to over the last 12 podcasts worth of repetitive combat, so most new weapons go right in the rumpus room cupboard forever cause I don't feel like kneecapping my effectiveness just for the sake of a newer model. A good lesson for everyday life, especially if you have a job developing new updates for Windows 10. In summary, Remnant starts on a poor note but with time upgrades to a solid basically okay, but I hope you'll indulge me as I take a little philosophical curve now. Throughout history, gamers and gaming correspondents have always divided games into the worthies and the unworthies, and this dichotomy has taken many forms. PC versus consoles, hardcore versus casual, mobile versus everything else, but for me the split has always been thus. Games that make you feel versus games that make you numb. Some games challenge and energise your emotions and give you ideas and inspiration, whereas other games seek only to massage your rodent brain with repetitive pats to the head so you don't think dangerous thoughts, like I wish my landlord wouldn't keep coming into my house and eating all my family's pies. And if I occasionally seem contemptuous of multiplayer focused games it's because they're almost always the latter. Run around the same maps, shooting the same dudes, day in day out, until you run out of subscription money and then go sell your body to a young conservatives organisation. Remnant is a numbing game, but for what it's worth it's on the more positive side of the numbing coin. Occasional nice scenery and story moments and a functional gameplay loop that gives your hands something to do while you listen to the Communist Manifesto on audiobook. We're doing another round of limited ZP merchandise with SharkRobot.com. We got t-shirts, hoodies, long sleeve shirts and hats, free shipping in the US for orders over 60 bucks in international over 100 and they're all going away on October 2nd. Jesus Christ, why are you still here? Oh right, the video. It's often the case that truly great horror plays upon primal universal anxieties, often the sort of things our parents warned us about as children, and Blair Witch is a prime example. Now listen here, little Yati, my father used to say to me, before you go out tonight, remember, never, ever expect much from any horror franchise that's more than 15 years old and only ever really had one decent film in it. But daddy, I quite liked Freddy vs Jason. Ah, but son, you mustn't forget that while the crossover was certainly gratifying, it's difficult for modern viewers to get past the dated CG gore effects. Now run along and play, and if those rowdy boys next door dare you to go into the haunted forest again, remember, nobody likes a pussy. So Blair Witch is a new first person psychological horror game based on the Blair Witch Mythos. Oh piss off Lionsgate Entertainment, what the fuck is the Blair Witch Mythos? It's a spooky forest that kids go missing in. If that's copyrightable now, you'd better get busy suing the Brothers Grimm, and literally everyone who's told a campfire story. Blair Witch could easily be an adaptation of any story about a troubled protagonist in a spooky forest, meaning 90% of walking simulators. Speaking of which… Speaking of Blair Witch, it's developed by Bloober Team, the lads behind Observer and Layers of Fear, and it's been pretty heartbreaking watching their progress these last few years, as they fall off the walking simulator wagon again and again. They knew they had a problem after Layers of Fear, so Observer tried to pace itself by breaking up the long walking simulator binges with the occasional puzzle, then there was a second Layers of Fear game, so I guess they felt they'd earned a cheat day, but now with Blair Witch it looked like they were really making a go at creating a game that you can't just get through by holding down the W key. There's puzzles and mechanics centred around your doggy friend, and it's even got something one could slightly interpretively call combat. For a while it seemed like Bloober Team were making so much progress, but then I guess the pressure of it all got to them and they ended up calling on one of their enablers and collapsing onto a bare mattress to huff on a great big bag of walking simulator for the last hour or two of the game. Oh blooper team, you've let me down, you've let yourself down. All this walking just isn't healthy. You need to win yourself off it with some lazy gratuitous violence. Anyway, in Blair Witch the game, we step into the shoes of original character Do Not Steal, Jonathan J. Generic Man, as he enters the spooky forest of Burkittsville to help look for a missing child, but complications arise because it turns out he's a war veteran with PTSD, and the Blair Witch apparently wants to get some use out of the correspondence course she took with Silent Hill and turn his own inner demons against him. To help him along, Jerome K. Normal Bloke is a sort of therapy support dog thingy following him around named Bullet. Now, I'm no psychologist, but if you're training up a therapy dog specifically for helping a traumatised war veteran who tends to have PTSD flashbacks when reminded of violence, naming him Bullet seems a bit counterproductive to me. It's either very misguided or the work of a very devious therapist trying to ensure a guaranteed source of income. What's your dog's name? 
Bullet. Did you say bullet? What? Where? Where? Anyway, Jeremy Q. Average ventures into the forest, swiftly loses touch with the rest of the search party, and finds himself lost and alone in a terrifying odyssey of self-reflection and spooky set pieces, with nothing to help him but a dodgy camcorder and a dog named after a murder weapon. So gameplay begins with us wandering around a rather nice-looking forest, waiting for the game to explain what the flaming urethra we're supposed to be doing next. We can tell IED the wonder dog to seek, but most of the time he can just about manage to find his own balls. Blair Witch is taking on the last guardian burden of having the gameplay heavily reliant on the actions of an NPC animal character who technically does does what we tell him to, but also has their own agenda, filled with interesting buttholes to smell. So I hope you weren't planning to speedrun this. Anyway, after a lot of stumbling around, we make the discoveries that progress the plot, and soon enough night falls and we have to get our spooky flashlight out, so I turned it on and said, No, seriously now, Blooper Team, where's my real flashlight? You're not trying to tell me that Jimmy Wingnut here ventured into the forest with nothing but the light up eyes on an old Thundercats toy. Blimey, I was going to say that at least Blooper Team does some pretty nice environment design, but it hardly counts when I'm basically looking at it through a hole the size of a tea bag. This takes on new dimensions of irritation when the, I hesitate to call it, combat combat that I mentioned gets introduced. It's Alan Wake-ish in that you have to fend off flickering horrors in the dark by shining your light on them, except your flashlight is to Alan Wake's flashlight what a spaghetti hoop is to a steel cock ring. So the resultant gameplay feels like someone pulled a bag over our head and pushed us into a rowdy frat party where we stumble around confused for a while as guffawing strangers give us atomic wedgies. The idea is you're supposed to watch White Phosphorus the dog and point your light in the direction of whatever he's barking at, but visibility is so poor that you'll have just about enough time to find a brief glimpse of his little doggy bum before the monster switches position again and smears another coating of raspberry jam onto your spectacles. Oh, but I'm sure this particular gripe will come back from the QA department with a big fat working as intended sticker on it. You're supposed to be confused and disoriented and scraping through the combat with barely a single square inch of your cotton Y fronts left unbesmirched, which may or may not succeed, but this has the Alan Wake shattered memories problem in that the gameplay demands the horror can only happen to you under specific circumstances, when it's pitch dark and while the dog's with you. So if either of those aren't the case, then you can skip unconcerned through the forest picking flowers, or more likely disinterestedly holding down the W key. One could hardly call the combat or the puzzles core mechanics, though, not when spoiler alert Gulf War Syndrome, the dog does get taken away, and there's still about two hours of game left, which is largely spent going through yet another of Bloober Team's trademark, ooh isn't it a shame Silent Hills got cancelled, push W to power the ghost train walking simulator wagon fall-off sequences, tracking through the same rooms of the Blair Witch House over and over again with the details slightly changing, but I think what really kills my recommendation is the ending. I got a bad ending, this not being the sort of game that ends with a pizza party and the Wizard of Oz finally granting the main character a personality, but then I discovered that there was also a good ending, so I looked up what you need to do to get the good ending, and apparently it involves not killing the monsters with your flashlight. Oh sorry, kind of thought I should defend myself against the flickering screeching thing that kept running up in the dark and kicking me in the balls as scary music played, but apparently I was supposed to be the bigger man. Get the bogeyman around the negotiating table, see if he'll compromise and just bite off the kidnapped child's legs. Obviously we expect you to defend yourself, Yards, you're supposed to get the bad ending on your first run, it's for replay value. Oh well in that case, up yours Blair Witch, I'd rather replay my last prostate exam. Today is the last day SharkRobot.com are selling their limited run of exclusive ZP shirts, hoodies and hats, so you'd better snap them up, unless you're not watching this the day it comes out, in which case, hey, remember that great ZP merch you could have bought? Maybe missing out on that was when your life started going downhill. Well, I have successfully navigated Gears of War 5's story campaign, the way a Taco Bell family platter navigates its way out of a desperately clenched sphincter, and now I have to give my impressions by spontaneously dropping dead like a coalmine canary. Oh wait, sorry, it's not Gears of War 5, it's just Gears 5 now. Microsoft having apparently abandoned the idea of getting the target audience to internalise more than two words at a time. I don't think they thought ahead, what will they call the next one? Gears 6? Sounds too much like Gear 6, like it's a label in a technical manual. No, obviously the next one they're just gonna call Gears, and the one after that, Gh. But I digress. Gears 5, despite being a traditionally Xbox exclusive franchise, came out on both Xbox and Steam, which I found suspiciously convenient. What are you up to, Microsoft and Valve? Is this a sign of battle lines being drawn for the upcoming subscription service Civil War? Or have the two of you realised you had more in common than you thought? Wow, I thought I was the only one who liked squatting over the balcony and disgorging torrents of warm diarrhoea onto the peasants below, and then wiping my asshole with fistfuls of blood-stained money. Well, anyway. 
Anyway, the war against the Locust, I mean the Lambent, I mean the Swarm, I mean actually I think it's the Locust again now, continues, and is showing no sign of clearing up because this game ends on an unsatisfying cliffhanger. I guess Microsoft are still paying off the Death Ray satellite. Again, the war has to be fought through a never-ending stream of cover battles in now-ruined but once pristine urban environments, but you expected that, that's the cylinder of minced-up pork scrotums that make up the core of the sausage roll. What's different this time is that the plot mainly centres around one of those willowy ladies the franchise keeps around to juxtapose against the way every single male character is built like a Quake 1 ogre cosplaying as an electric stove. I wonder if this is a smart move from Microsoft's perspective though, since the usual target audience of Gears of War thinks that girls are icky and have cooties, but I can reassure you that main character Kate can very much keep up with the boys when it comes to completely irresponsible decision making, moving like she's running through a scrapyard with an electromagnet attached to her genitals, and participating in a constant show how unrattled you are by making glib remarks contest for very insecure people. Want to know how to do a Gears of War witticism? Step 1, say something relevant but completely obvious to stir the players from the latest trance the combat put them into. Step 2, continue talking uselessly until I hate you. We need to go over there, and by over there I mean towards that big scary building full of enemies. Oh great, so what's the good news? Well the good news is that I'm very handsome and glib and SHUT THE FUCK UP! Okay, but by shut the fuck up do you mean- OH MY GOD! Why can't you just accept that Joss Whedon will never hire you? Oh come on Yard, so far this is all par for the course in Gears of War and if we're five games in it must be doing something right. Okay, shit knows McGee, let's talk about the new things that Gears 5 brings to the formula. For one thing, RPG style character upgrades, except not for you, hands off, greedy. They're only for the little robot that follows you around. But effectively they're just another of the constant entourage of NPCs we're dragging along into every battle, why can't we upgrade anyone else's level of armour or damage output? I can't get a feel for if my robot pal needs an armour upgrade, not being able to monitor their battle prowess much, concerned as I usually am with keeping myself and my six ton clip piercing away from enemy fire. The other new thing is open world gameplay where you travel around in a wind powered skiff, but before you all sit up and wag your tails, here comes a shower of qualifications like there was an explosion at the degree mill. It's only for two of the chapters, there's a maximum of about two side quests per sandbox, and combat never happens in the sandbox. I thought it was a bit suspicious that every time we arrived at a mission area we were obliged to get out of the vehicle and essentially pass through a fucking turnstile before enemies start showing up again. I'm thinking that the skiff and the enemies can't be in the same place at once because they never program the necessary interactions i.e. the ability to plough through them and send their scattered body parts raining down like there was an explosion at the body part mill, either because of budget, scheduling, or an orgasm denial fetish. And the end result is two great big maps full of bugger all, the classic example of the open world that adds nothing but a commute. Just that and more opportunities for characters to make glib remarks. But you know what, the sandbox maps do provide a convenient metaphor for my feelings about Gears of War as a whole, because it is a massive blank space that doesn't go anywhere and contains nothing, except glib remarks. If I played every Gears of War game back to back I probably couldn't tell you where one ends and another begins, although partly because I'd eventually lose the power of speech. All this grand environment design and set pieces serving mind-numbingly repetitive combat is like a magnum condom on a two-inch dick. There's one set piece early in Gears Gyve that's an extended reference to the musical Hamilton of all things, when you find yourself on stage at a theatre with a monstrosity, spotlights come on and jazzy music plays as you fight it, and as is often the case when a game starts singing at you this could have been quite a highlight, like the ashtray maze in Control, or that number the Joker does in Arkham Knight, or the wonderful musical sound that Wolfenstein Youngblood makes when you smash it with a hockey stick. But in this case it just stops after a bit and we get hustled along the next set piece. Just another grape lowered into the mouth of a fat hedonistic emperor. But for all its grand set pieces and constant violence, Gears of War just doesn't feel like a living world to me. It's the way every character freezes in place the moment the combat or set piece for the current area is over, waiting for you to move to the next environment like undercover cops trying to look nonchalant until the moment that money changes hands. Eventually you get past enough delaying tactics that the plot makes a significant turn that probably won't hold up to analysis. Oh no, the locusts have a queen again, now they will become really violent and attack our cities, in stark contrast to what they've been doing up to now. 
well, mostly basket weaving and five-a-side football. Oh yes, and every now and again a named character dies, and the tone awkwardly shifts to mawkish melancholy brooding in a way that I'd be slightly offended by if I were one of the hundreds of implied background characters dying by the second that the main cast never bat an eyelid about. Somehow these quake one ogres wearing dustbins have engaged in ground warfare their entire lives but never learned to deal with the deaths of people they know. They're like eight-year-olds swaggering around pretending to be superheroes after one of them gets cracked in the eye with a rock and starts crying and everything has to stop so they can be persuaded not to tell their mum. That's the level that Gears of War operates on, but with so much bombast and pretension and enough constant fucking heroic orchestral music to make Saving Private Ryan advise it to turn it down a notch that in the end all I can do is laugh and then spit and then laugh again because there's spit all over it. As of September 26th, 2019, my latest audiobook, Will Destroy the Galaxy for Cash, will be available from Audible.com. It's a sequel to Will Save the Galaxy for Food, in which our down-on-his-luck space hero protagonist returns to make an exciting new batch of hilariously bad decisions. Not that I want to sound like a professional ice cream taster complaining about a headache, but did we have a shorter drought period than usual? I ask because my cup has been running over and it's been hard to pick a review subject. I tried Borderlands 3, but I lost a little more will to live with every dialogue line that was about nine times longer than it needed to be in the name of somehow eventually sounding witty, possibly in accordance with the Infinite Monkeys principle. Oh, and by the way, at the risk of sounding unwoke, making 95% of your game's characters hot badass ladies in tight pants and low-cut belly shirts is when you start to drift into the realms of fetishistic. I think that's called the sucker punch effect. I also tried out The Surge 2, and Blasphemous, but frankly I'm holding off on the Souls likes for a while until I offend Mother again and need to self-flagellate. Then there are these two Switch games everyone kept banging on at me to try. Ooh, play the new Fire Emblem, Yahtzee. It's really anime, you'll hate it. So I did, but I didn't really hate it. I just got bored of it the second time I was obliged to run around an entire school patting every anime person on the head in turn like I was playing a game of tag that nobody else knew about. So that left the other Switch game, Astral Chain, which I did kinda get into, so let's talk about that. It's still anime, but slightly more restrained with it in that I only noticed one character with visibly bouncing tits. In the future of Astral Chain, most of Earth has had its shit ruined by monsters from another dimension and the last remnants of humanity survive in a small isolated high-tech nation. I feel like I've seen this premise before in the animes, I wonder if Japan is trying to tell us something. Our character, or characters, we pick whether to play the male or female half of a pair of twins, but the only real difference it makes is whether or not we're allowed to wear hot pants, are members of an elite police unit who defend humanity from the interdimensional monsters through the use of tame interdimensional monsters of their own, permanently connected to their wrists by a chain of the astral variety. So essentially it's a supercharged anime dog-walking simulator, but if you're thinking the monsters with chains around their necks forced to battle their own kind don't look super thrilled with the idea you might be right, because after an inciting incident early on, the pet monsters rebel and everyone loses theirs except you. You're special because the pet monsters respect your noble bearing and kibble purchasing decisions. Astral Chain comes to us from Platinum Games, most recently known for Near Automata, but also responsible for Bayonetta and some other games with combat reminiscent of a handful of lit sparklers in a candy floss machine. And as such, you should expect fast combat, high difficulty, and every enemy monster being introduced with a freeze frame profile like their characters in a Guy Ritchie film. The central gimmick with this one is your little interdimensional pound puppy on a chain, who you move around independently with the second analogue stick. And it's quite an interesting gimmick as they go, because you use the titular astral chain in combat as a tripwire or to tie up enemies, annoying as it always is when the right analogue stick goes back and forth between controlling the camera and something else, because suddenly I can't use the camera to see where I'm moving my murder dog to in a crucial moment when I really need him to accurately shit on the paper. This was the game that finally made me fork out for a Switch Pro controller, by the way, because if I went through a whole Platinum game with those tiny Joy-Con analogue nipples, my phalanges would have burst out the backs of my thumbs like little extruding surrender flags. Astral Chain's combat based around exotic yo-yoing techniques reminds me oddly of Platinum's own The Wonderful 101, the action of guiding Genocide the Wonder Dog around the arena isn't a million miles away from drawing circles and shapes that turn into weapons, and the results can be just as fiddly and disappointing as my flaccid attempts at straight lines. Wonderful 101, however, was spectacularly over the top in the traditional rather than the magenta sense, while Astral Chain comes off as somewhat more restrained. Restrained? Chains? This is all starting to sound a bit kinky. But no, it's the bad kind of restraint. Something seems to have happened to Platinum Games around the time it was making Near Automata. These were the lads who brought us Bayonetta and Metal Gear Rising Revengeance, in which a bespectacled muscular senator power bombs the hero while lecturing him about his favourite Neo 
conservative policies with a relish that stops just short of bursting into song. But Nier Automata was somewhat muted, tonally, at least as far as any game with such lovingly rendered buttocks can be, and I see a lot of its influence on Astral Chain, especially the music. I was mentally back in Nier Automata every time I went to the Astral Realm and heard the sound of distant choral voices singing a song inspired by a dial-up modem. Unlike Nier Automata though, Astral Chain isn't really saying anything philosophically. The setting, story and characters are all rather shallow, bog-standard anime stuff, especially the monster design. Your leashed-up pedigree chums all look like Eva Unit 1 knocked up Metal Gear Rex in some no doubt unimaginably destructive way, and the one form that literally is supposed to be a dog looks exactly like the robot dog from Revengeance but without the personality. If anything's going to sell this game, assuming you're not the kind of person who just buys anything with anime on it, because you're convinced that this meaningful relationships with other human beings thing is a passing fad, it'll be the unique combat mechanics with your faithful ducky on a string. Shame it's kind of buried amid so much other stuff, like the one student in the school photo who ended up under a staple. For one thing, it's possible to get by without it. Your dude or hot-panted dudette can light attack, heavy attack and dodge with the best of them by themselves. So if anything, going out of your way to bind the enemies as well almost feels like overkill. And this is only when you are in combat. Back when they were fun, Platinum would usually fully centralise their idiosyncratic high-octane combat, but now it seems we can't have our pudding till we eat our vegetables, so there's also a focus on being respectable police officers, exploring crime scenes, gathering clues, presenting the correct clue when asked in an anemic Phoenix Wrighty sort of way. There's a stealth section at one point that, like all forced stealth in action games, is about as welcome as a slug in a garden salad and about as much fun to get through. A lot of side quests that throw you unexpectedly into incredibly banal mini-games where you have to balance boxes, do a sliding tile puzzle or hand out balloons, and then eventually you're allowed back into the astral realm for a bit of combat and a bit of platforming where your biggest threat is getting knocked off a ledge by your own fucking dope on a rope because you slightly misjudged the yank jump. Variety is nice, but this feels more like throwing a speed trap in front of my tyres to delay me getting to the next interesting bit, and even with all this variety, things start to feel a bit routine. Hang out at police HQ, go to the city, do some side quests, go to the astral realm, come back, sandwiches. The astral realm is initially impressive, if weirdly reminiscent of the one in Control, but that's lost when you're in and out of it every five minutes, like you're popping into the office over the weekend to pick up some files. Still, routine sort of makes sense for a police game. <coughs> Attention all officers, a giant armoured gorilla is flinging exploding turds around city centre. <coughs> you mean a 2218? <coughs> no, it's a 2219 because he's wearing a sombrero. As of September 26th, 2019, my latest audiobook, Will Destroy the Galaxy for Cash, will be available from Audible.com. It's a sequel to Will Save the Galaxy for Food, in which our down-on-his-luck space hero protagonist returns to make an exciting new batch of hilariously bad decisions. The last limited sale of ZP shirts and hats did so well, Shark Robot's doing another one with some new spooky designs, all going away October 23rd, and in the first 48 hours you can use coupon code SPOOKYZP for 10% off, so don't miss out. Look, this one glows in the dark. Ooh. Ah, nothing quite like an unambiguously shit game to brighten a critic's week. It's like standing under an elephant on a hot summer day and taking a long, relaxing stream of piss to the face. Konami are fucking unstoppable. Every single thing people used to like them for, all lined up by the shallow grave one by one and popped off with a systematic coldness that would trouble Heinrich Himmler. Castlevania, pow, God of War rip off. Metal Gear Solid, pow, Zombie Survival. Silent Hill, pow, Homecoming, pow, Shattered Memories, pow, Downpour, pow, Cancel Silent Hills. I think it's dead now, Konami. Are you sure? That bit just twitched. Pow, Pachinko Machine. And now it's Contra's turn. What have you got in store for this one, Uber Sturm Führer Konami, you fucking monster? Why a Diablo-y, gauntlet-esque looter shooter, of course, although I also get a bit of a Smash TV vibe because after playing it for six hours that's precisely what I wanted to do. You may recall I had a bad feeling about this one after its E3 presentation. The first warning sign was that they gave us all a Contra-branded hip flask when we came in, which in retrospect might have been an oblique hint as to what the game will eventually drive us to. And then I actually played it and things swiftly went downhill. For crikey this one's a stinker listeners, and it says something when you can tell that from the E3 demo, when the game is supposed to be pared down to its best bits and tarted up as much as possible to wow the media. Goes to show, you can put a giant turd in fishnet tights but all you'll get out of it is a lot of very small cube-shaped turds. Anyway, set after the Alien Wars, depicted in the Retro Contras, Contra Rogue Corps is concerned with a mysterious alien city that rises from the ruins, which is supposed to be full of treasure that we assuredly want, but doesn't seem to be doing anything besides sitting there having treasure and 
monsters, which is a classic example of a non-plot, a depressingly common setting for live service and multiplayer video games, a plot with no active villain or ticking clock or clear solution, just an environment with a generic sense of permanent non-specific peril that can never change or develop for fear that XX knob chops XX might stop his grindy 8 hour quest to make themselves able to grind 1.8% more efficiently. But never mind, we play as one of four crazy mercenaries, there's standard contra dude with standard allergy to shirts and gun the size of an industrial lathe, and then there's three other twats that you'll try out once each and then go back to the standard contra McRib that walks like a man because at least A I understand how his special power works, and B it isn't fucking useless, and C he doesn't seem to be trying so hard to be quirky and interesting that his dealy boppers are about to explode with the effort. The other three are an alien with a posh accent who throws a sort of black hole grenade with the suction power of a handheld vacuum whose filter hasn't been cleaned since the 70s, there's a giant vicious panda, pandas being the fucking spirit animal of the quirky magenta game, who has the power to drop stationary turrets that can't rotate and which as such the enemy can outwit by moving slightly to the left, and there's the token hot lady who's a gender swapped version of Krang from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles with a katana buried in her stomach orifice, where do you fucking start with this one, and who ostensibly gains power when she pulls the sword out. Not sure how though, as far as I could tell it mainly just makes her faster, which admittedly is a pretty special power in this fucking game where by default every character moves like someone filled their shoes with depleted uranium lego. The contrast between the tone as set by the story and the tone and pace of the gameplay is startling. We kick off with a fucking Saturday morning cartoon showing our heroes leaping into action with football rattles sticking out the ends of their excited stiffies, and then the instant their feet touch the ground is like someone fired the starting pistol and the gates open to reveal eleven old ladies with zimmer frames, shuffling forward lest their sagging knickers drift any further down their veiny thighs. You move slow, your gun overheats if you fire it for longer than it takes to say Contra Rogue Corps can eat my briny piss, every mission is a tedious death march through the same environments fighting the same enemies, regularly broken up with a larger mini-boss enemy where the strategy is always to get it to charge, nonchalantly old ladies shuffle out of the way of the charge, and then shoot it in the bum, repeat twenty billion times. After five or six missions along these lines you are graciously permitted to fight a unique boss fight that has another two hundred billion hit points on top of the usual twenty. All in all, it's as much fun as redecorating a dentist's waiting room, but the biggest and sweatiest bubbles in the wallpaper are thus. Firstly there's a live system, and if you run out you have to start the current grindy repetitive mission all over again and that's another ten wasted minutes hacked out of your limited time on earth that could have been spent on education or half an episode of Arrested Development, and secondly it's co-op focused so you can't fucking pause in single player. So at one point the aliens apparently forged a sinister alliance with my orthopaedic surgeon, and my attempt to beat a difficult mission halfway through the game was foiled at the last moment when she rang up to confirm my appointment. I think whoever was in charge of the wacky story must have seduced the daughter of whoever was designing the gameplay so they took revenge by never missing an opportunity to make things slow and boring. Between missions we go back to home base and have to deal with the looty half of looty shooty, by laboriously sorting through our latest crop of equips and weapon add-ons that apply completely mystifying upgrades, plus five percent defence against generic damage, what the fuck is generic damage? Damage that basically does the job but isn't focused on innovating at this time? At first I thought the game just flat out didn't have any plot after the intro cartoon, like that was the lure to get us into the tedious grind, the glowy light on the front of a deep sea anglerfish, the advert for a retirement home that shows old people smiling. But no, the plot does continue, there's a new cartoon after every chapter, the game just doesn't fucking show you them. You have to go to the profile menu to watch them from the video archive, and why would I ever go to the profile menu, what's likely to be on there? My current level, number of hours played, that would only depress me. There's no rational reason not to just automatically show the cartoon after you beat the chapter, it's got to be daughter seduction. So was there anything you liked about Contra Rogue Core, Yahtzee? Man, even the fucking title sounds like a grandparent falling down a staircase. Well I did kinda like how on the menu instead of saying quit the game, it says terminate the game. That language is a lot more in line with my feelings after I've played Contra Rogue Core for any length of time. Yes, please terminate this fucking tosh, please murder it, if only there was an option for ejecting it from my hard drive with a fucking clay pigeon launcher. Isn't it a shame in today's economy that the average age of retirement keeps getting later and later, poor old Tom Clancy's been dead for six years and he still has to show up for work. What, has the rent on his grave gone up? Does it cost a lot to run the sound system that constantly blares stars and stripes forever into his casket? As someone who fondly remembers a time when there was still auteurism in mainstream gaming, American McGee's Alice, Clive Jericho's Barker and all that, the Ubisoft swarm continuing to slap the name of a corpse onto its hideous hyper
hyper capitalist live service garbage feels like a move specifically designed to annoy me. Surely it's eventually got to occur to one of those duplicated Sorcerer's Apprentice broomsticks at Ubisoft that putting the name of a literal corpse on a game implying that the game was solely authored and directed by an immobile, mindless, stinking corpse might not be the greatest sales pitch. Although I'll grant you I can't fault it for honest advertising. After having played A Stinking Corpse's Ghost Recon Breakpoint and realised that it is officially the game in which the A Stinking Corpse Ubisoft sandbox finally dropped all pretense. I know I said something similar about A Stinking Corpse's Ghost Recon Wildlands, but I guess I underestimated just how many layers of frilly pretenses A Stinking Corpse was wearing under his funeral suit. I think he's finally dropped his last pair of pretenses though. Ghost Recon Break Wind. Have I used that one? Feels like I've used that one. Starts with our protagonist soldier with the customizable face but non-customizable very growly voice and grumpy attitude arriving at a hostile territory by helicopter. The helicopter is shot down but our protagonist survives. And that's all the setup you're getting. Except a few background story points established in a fucking white on black text screen beforehand. This is how I'd start a modern shooter if I were trying to take the piss out of modern shooters. Start game helicopter crash. It would only have been more on the nose if there'd been an unrecognisable voiceover by a film actor slumming it. So we survive the crash and are lost and helpless behind enemy lines for about nine seconds before we stumble upon a convenient fully stocked military camp full of friendly NPCs from which to stage permanent warfare against the unspecific numberless force of generic enemy soldiers. See this is what I mean by dropping all pretense of this being an original work designed by a visionary to enrich your senses rather than another fucking hacked out looter shooter designed by a corpse to enrich the shareholders. Who are we? Doesn't matter. Where are we? Who cares? How'd we get here? Helicopter crash, the usual way. Stop asking questions and get addicted to the level up sound effect you fucking whale. More plot does show up once you get into things, turns out you're on the island of nerds, where all the nerds came to start their own clubhouse where they can play D&D and design consumer electronics in peace, but then a bunch of jocks invaded, gave all the nerds wedgies and forced them to make weapons and football trophies instead. So now it's up to you, as one of the nice jocks who doesn't actively bully nerds and actually quite liked the Christopher Nolan Batman films, to teach the bad jocks a lesson. Kinda plays like a reject Far Cry plot with all the quirkiness sucked out, but it turns out the main villain is one of your old comrades, which is more of a Call of Duty plot device I think. In Call of Duty the growly American soldier protagonist is basically a superhero, so they always do the standard superhero plot, where the villain has all the hero's powers but uses them for evil, like Venom to Spider-Man, or Ramiro to Carmack. Ghost Recon Breakdance doesn't play terribly well in the core loop, for starters. The camera feels a bit too close to my burly buttocks, you use grenades and healing items with the same fucking button, so you'd better remember what you've got equipped, lest you desperately fling a handful of band-aids at an entrenched foe before diving into cover and rubbing a smoke grenade on your leg. And we continue this bizarre AAA game obsession with requiring us to hold down a button every time we do a contextual action in a way that always makes things feel clunky, like we're figuring out how to record on an ancient VCR. But on one hand there are things we do, and on the other there is the world in which we do it, and Ghost Recon Nervous Breakdown's sandbox is a monument to lack of effort. Before a pack of rabid sleep-deprived QA testers declared jihad on me for saying that, what I mean is there's no creativity behind it. There's nothing to discover from exploring it, unless you're really into leaves or modern architecture. And that's probably why they give you infinite respawning helicopters right off the bat. There are fast travel points you have to physically visit to unlock, but you can claim it as yours despite flying low enough in the helicopter to gob out the window. Enemy bases and strongholds dot the map like genital warts, each one a thoughtless sprawl of buildings sprinkled with generic baddies you are under no obligation to clear out, so most of the time I just make a beeline for the objective and hide under a desk until my any alerted enemies got bored and went back to counting their eyeballs. Sometimes it wasn't quite that easy though, when a whole pack of the bastards would corner me, so I'd have to wait just inside a doorway for the enemy to go through their usual battle strategy. Enter door in single file, wade through increasingly large sea of bodies, get shot in face, while friendly nerd hostages stand around indifferently, chewing Japanese confectionery with their mouths open just for an extra touch of the surreal. So it's a poor showing for AI across the board. Lucky this isn't trying to be a tactical shooter or anything. I don't know what it's trying to do, just as Ubisoft flinches in terror now if you make the slightest suggestion that their stories have a political stance, they now seem frightened even of giving us the merest hint of a gameplay obligation. Hey, do this mission! Or don't. Either's fine. Well done. Here's your reward. A rifle identical to your current one but with a green number on it. There's no ambition to innovate or challenge here. No ideology, nothing to do and nothing to say. Well I suppose it's saying one thing, please give us all your money. The reaction to this game has been encouraging, the general public are a jaded and beaten down flock of meat animals, but at least there's still some level of bullshit that will provoke a kick from the high
hind legs. But let me emphasize as hard as I can that this shit has gotten completely fucking mental. The in-game store of Ghost Recon Break-Even is bigger than my local Whole Foods. Guns, upgrades, hats, trousers, emotes, icons, icons? Who on this good green earth has ever glanced at someone else's custom multiplayer icon for more than a fucking nanosecond and said, ooh, here's someone I need to take seriously? And let's not forget you can buy what's termed time savers. So first we buy your game, Ubisoft, and then you charge us more money to not have to play it. If I paid double price up front, would you just not give it to me at all? Take a step back, people, because this has all gotten way too fucking normalised. When you charge money for something you can produce infinitely at zero cost, like in-game currency, that's not a service. That is the fucking death of economics as a concept. How the fuck did we get here from basic principles of trade? It's like walking up to a dude in the stocks in the village square and saying, if you give me three turnips, I'll spit in your face. Just because we're in the midst of shooter season doesn't mean I can't take a break from all the fucking modern recons and ghost duties to have a look at an indie game that engages my interest now and again. It's like how the TV news usually ends with a heartwarming story about a cat that looks like Daniel Day-Lewis in the vain hope of stopping the viewers from angrily dashing their brains out on the nearest solid object after all the horrible infuriating things the rest of the news told them about. There are only so many ways I can talk about the grace and deficiency with which bullets go into the dudes I'm pointing at before it starts to feel less like an overused game mechanic and more like a suggestion for an invigorating Saturday afternoon. So I played Indivisible this week, which isn't a shooter, although it might be every other bloody genre. Get this, it's a metroidvania platformer with a twist on JRPG-style active time battling that plays a bit like a fighting game, which might sound like a breakfast scramble made of eggs, twiglets and pushpins, but I have to say it works. Or rather, it worked for a while. Tease of eventual opinion deployed, execute backtrack, initiate waffle. Indivisible comes to us from Lab Zero, the developers of Skullgirls, and as might be expected is absolutely gorgeously animated in their characteristic western anime style, or wanname as I like to call it. I say absolutely, the cast of characters is positively elephantine, so there are a few designs and animations here and there where it seems the enthusiasm might have been waning a bit, possibly being hurriedly polished off on a Friday afternoon even as the tops were being popped off the box of wine coolers. The plot concerns the infuriatingly awkwardly spelled Arjna, a spunky teenage girl in a Nino Cooney-esque dog's breakfast fantasy world where forest villages and steampunk cities rub shoulders like slightly acquainted colleagues in an undersized lift, who has been trained as a fighter from birth by her stern dad, and has only just established her protagonist credentials when she returns to her forest village to find it being forest pillaged by an imperialist army of baddies and her stern dad has been made stone dead. Yeah, I'm guessing you weren't shooting for the creative writing prize, were you, Labs? Zero. Shall I put us down for standard RPG fantasy package A12 then? Please direct me to the first of the several teenagers we will be enlisting to aid us in murdering God. Still, we're thrown a bit of a curveball early on when, while fighting the imperial soldier who stone dead our stern dad, said soldier inexplicably turns into a spirit and is absorbed by Arjna's consciousness. Because it turns out Arjna has secret god power that lets her draw people into herself and then get them to fight for her, sort of like Pokemon but with human beings and therefore somehow even more ethically questionable. What this is in truth is the standard RPG metaphorical device where you ostensibly have a party with you but only the protagonist is visible the other party members only popping miraculously out of your infinite butthole for battles and cutscenes. It's that, but tortuously squeezed into the mechanics of the plot. And aside from the fact it explains how an elderly bent old witch can keep up with Arjuna as she dashes and wall jumps her way through a round of platforming challenges, they needn't have fucking bothered. The plot would work perfectly well without this element, or perhaps I should say the plot wouldn't work any worse without it. Second tease of eventual opinion deployed, shift gears, backtrack again. So about that combat. Touch an enemy in the platform world and you go into a Final Fantasy-esque team battle where characters can only attack when their action bar is full, but with each party member assigned to one of the face buttons and their attacks cracking off quickly enough that it feels more like inputting combos in Marvel vs Capcom, or Skullgirls I suppose. Or perhaps keepy uppy, because extending your combo as long as you can typically involves juggling the enemy like you're a very old fashioned patriarch and the ground is your virginal daughter. And this worked for me, I found it a refreshing take on turn based JRPG battling that throws out the menus and plays up the smacking shit up like it's feces volleyball, with the pace and animation making it all kinds of juicy. The problem is, there's a moment in the game, and it's remarkable how finely I can pinpoint it, where an invisible lever gets thrown and the bottom drops out and it stops being fun. It's about the point when you meet 
meet the pirate lesbian and the world opens up. And you know we're in trouble when a pirate lesbian marks anything but an upturn in events. The problem is in the numbers. I don't know if they were originally making another fighting game and just got bored, but that might explain the ridiculous number of party members you get. This is some Chrono Cross level shit. The primest real estate in the world is a teenage girl's noggin apparently, and Arjuna's beating the tenants off with a stick. But the combat isn't very deep, and all that really matters is doing the most damage as fast as you can, so you might as well just find four guys you like and stick with them. And post-pirate lesbian something goes horribly wrong with the enemy stats. I'd enter battle with a small unassuming frog, bum bounce them between my four lads for 20 minutes, then in that awkward post coital cigarette break while I wait for everyone's bars to refill, I'd notice the frog still had nine tenths of their health bar left. I hit that frog 400 times. In a sane world it would no longer have more than one dimension, let alone health points, and it couldn't do much damage to me either, so now I'm just disinterestedly doing my super combo six times to kill one fucking frog. I feel like Rachmaninoff playing for pocket change in a dive bar and the crowd won't stop requesting Freebird. This really did kill the game for me, since the combat was the only really interesting one out of the several unrelated gameplay mechanics stitched clumsily together here. The platforming's generic at best, and if you forget to press dash before you press jump, then Arjuna's standard jump can just about clear half a fucking drainage ditch. But it's the story that really ices my sticky underfolds. There's something unpleasantly freedom planety about Arjuna the spunky wonder teen, around whom the whole world revolves. Every party member she meets blurts out their entire backstory and motivation like they're on a fucking speed date, but is then content to put their entire life and character development on hold so they can hang around Arjuna's brain, passing the blunt around, and help out with whatever she wants to do. It's writing on a level slightly below bottom tier anime and slightly above first time webcomic. About the only one with any depth is the bloke who killed Arjuna's stern dad, something she gets over like a mild footballing injury, incidentally, which could have been an interesting dynamic. Arjuna and her mortal enemy forced to be magically bound together, but all it means in practical terms is that he still goes along with whatever she wants to do but with a grumpy face. And then every other character constantly dunks on him for not being in Arjuna's best friends club and treats him like the whiny teenager on a family road trip, rather than say a proven and potentially dangerous hostile. So in summary, Indivisible, here's a trophy for the animation and a trophy for the bold spirit of core gameplay innovation, and now for everything else, here's 16 punches to the throat. Obsidian, the developer, not the igneous rock, have a weird relationship with the other veteran Western RPG developers. Bethesda, the developer, not the pool of water in Jerusalem, thanks Wikipedia, put out Fallout 3 and everyone complains it just doesn't have the depth of the classic Fallout, so Obsidian tootles by and goes, hey, here's Fallout New Vegas, ain't no biggie, just basically what you did but with the depth put back in. Got any bottoms you'd like daddy to wipe while we're here? And then Bioware, the developer, not the where, makes Mass Effect Andromeda, a sci-fi RPG about a struggling human colony in distant space, which is generally received like two pints of cold stick in a leaky bag, and Obsidian's like, what was that? We were just making a sci-fi RPG about a struggling human colony in distant space that's got depth and a sense of humour and a retro-futurist theme and shit. They're like the one smarmy asshole on The Price is Right who bids one dollar below the last guy and goes home with the big prize. Retro-futurism again, is it, Yards? Yes it is, Yards, but you know I can't fault it for being nostalgic, for basically any time period other than the current one, in which half of us will die in climate disasters and the other half will get bombed by foreign despots because they called up the president and asked him nicely if they could. Fallout's pretty retro-futurist, isn't it, Yards? How correct and handsome of you to bring that up, Yards. Yes, if the air raid warning has just sounded and you can't watch the rest of this video, The Outer Worlds is, in brief, a Fallout game in space! We emerge from our vault, I mean colony ship, and have to go out into a big unfamiliar wasteland broken up with settlements, I mean star system consisting of several wastelands broken up with settlements, dealing with warring factions and killing radioactive mutants, I mean alien wildlife, ultimately in order to save all the other people in your vault, I mean colony ship, I mean oh just admit it, vault with thrusters. Also, all the technology looks like it was built by a jukebox designer trapped in a warehouse full of plumbing supplies. The only real difference is the colour scheme, which puts me in mind of No Man's Sky vomiting on Edgar Rice Burroughs. Anyway, the colony is being monopolised by bureaucratic corporations who are gradually bleeding it dry for the sake of maintaining the ultra-capitalist status quo, in a rather on-the-nose metaphor for the current state of the media. What sort of character will you be role-playing as you take on the system? A ruthless warrior who shoots people with a gun? A stealthy thief who shoots people with a gun? Or a silver-tongued manipulative social engineer who shoots people with a gun? Yeah, let's be realistic. You can put points in leadership and persuasion all you want, but there's no pacifying a giant 
Dantalian scorpion with promises and gift bouquets. Fallout's characteristic Vats aim assist is replaced rather middleman cutting outingly with a basic slow motion power that the plot can barely summon the effort to explain. It's a side effect of, I don't know, being chronically frozen next to the rocket ship ice lollies. And while you can specialise in melee rather than ranged combat, the slow motion ability is a hell of a lot more useful for a gun user. You're almost always fighting multiple targets, so I could just hit slow-mo, pop them all once in the eyeballs, and then dive back into cover while they're readjusting their contact lenses. Aside from that, the Obsidian brand depth of player choices here. You can even side with the corporations if you want, but they are both evil and failing horribly, so it's like betting on the Nazis to win World War II, even as Magda Goebbels is biting down on her suicide pill. These kinds of RPGs only ever have two gears. Calm, boggling, fixed eye contact conversations, and overblown combat where no one has any concept of self-preservation. It's always a slightly bizarre clash of tones when one flips to the other. One minute we're all standing straight and defiant, mouthing stiff bravados at each other, the next everyone's shuffling around the room holding their guns out and screaming. The NPC AI can never seem to think of anything to do except run right up to their target, firing their gun like a child anxious for their parent to look at the incredibly dangerous object they just found. And the same is true of your NPC assistants. I was trying to sneak through one mission with all those stealth points I insisted on getting and was about halfway through when I felt the need to try to take down a guard with a stealth attack. But the moment I did so, my AI assistant screamed, IT'S A FIGHT! and ran back into the room I just snuck through to pick a fight with all the dudes in it. Now I did notice after this point that I could change their AI from aggressive to defensive mode, but then I forgot to change it back and would be in the middle of a pitched gun battle later only to turn around and see the pair of them standing there, tanking bullets, staring at me like a pair of fucking dogs who were confused as to why I won't hit them up on the couch. Sorry, who are you people again? I don't feel invested in my party members as characters, because all of them feel like random dudes who invited themselves onto my crew one day. I didn't see any of them do anything that marked them as exceptional, largely because no one can do anything, at least not in front of you. As I said, the game can only show you people talking while standing stiff as boards, or fighting to the death, like a theatre that mistakenly double-booked a Greek drama alongside a kickboxing tournament. So all that they can do to establish character is verbally explain their personalities. You could almost not bother with party members, Yarts. What, and lose my plus ten bonus to engineering skill checks? I talk shit, but I did willingly finish the game. I prefer the game world being divided into multiple planets to the one big wasteland sandbox. It meant that the environment can unfold alongside the plot, and I don't feel overwhelmed by it all being dropped on me at once like a marshmallow duvet. I can report to all those Fallout fans who consider it important that yes, there's an epilogue that explains what happens to all the lives you saved stroke ruined, and yes, you can murder absolutely any NPC you can physically reach, and then the plot will clutch its temples for a few moments before finding a way to struggle on regardless. Which is only fair, because engaging with the plot was a bit of a struggle for me, too, even besides all the telling without showing. Unfreezing all my fellow vault dwellers is the initial overarching goal, but I failed to see how having 500 more whimsical murderers around would help anything. Eventually it turns out that the system is unsustainable and the corporations are going to bureaucracy the whole colony to death, but what the fuck am I supposed to do? I'm a freelance adventurer! Come back when there's a threat that I can have a sword fight with! Essentially, the game has to pull a big villain out of its arse in the last hour or so for the sake of a final boss fight. Maybe it was a mistake to try to gel the dashing space captain thing with the on-the-nose societal commentary thing. Clash Gordon crash lands on an alien planet because he got shot down by villains, not because the insurance company kept contesting his maintenance costs. It was nice to see Call of Duty making the important first step of realising it had a problem. I mean, I could and indeed did point this out around the time they were hiring Kit Harrington to play a space terrorist from Mars. No offence, Kit Harrington, I'm sure you're a perfectly decent fellow, it's just that your presence often seems to be an omen of ill fortune. You're like a banshee, but with mouth breathing instead of shrieking. So Call of Duty put on its thinking cap and went, there's gotta be somewhere we can get back to the times where people like us and give us lots of money, and that's when they realised the solution was staring them in the face. Of course, redo Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, but different. And then title it Call of Duty Modern Warfare. Wow, that is different, you took an entire numeral out of the original title. Better slow down your revolutionary zeal before you start decapitating French monarchs, Activision. No, but really, we're updating Modern Warfare to more reflect the shape of international conflict today rather than how it was in 2007. Oh, okay. So the plot will mainly be about burly professional American soldiers getting pulled out of the Middle East because a dictator rang up the president and the president didn't want to look lame in front of the cool kids. No, of course it bloody won't. It'll be Middle Eastern terrorists and evil Russians, again. Except with a new mealy-mouthed Ubisoft-esque aversion to taking political stances, so characters 
characters will occasionally look to camera and go, boy, it's a shame how all these unflinchingly Saturday morning cartoon villainous Russians are reflecting badly on all those nice non-Skeletor-like Russians, none of whom we are showing you but do assuredly exist. Don't be fooled. This whole exercise is just an attempt at a second dip in the trough, marginally more sophisticated than the last attempt, the re-release of Call of Duty 4 but trussed up with micropayments and dangled from the ceiling like a party gimp. All talk of updating the franchise and bringing it to new heights was bold-faced porky pies because Activision know that the true audience for this game doesn't actually want innovation. They want the scene that happens at the end of the campaign where Captain Price, the amazing human Weetabix, literally reads off a list of named characters from previous modern warfare games, then winks to camera as if to say you may now soil yourselves in excitement. As for the gameplay, pick up the gun and shooty shooty, constant chaos, spunk goggle wee wee, ooh why won't those meddling politicians let us murder foreigners as we see fit, wanky wanky, spy on your neighbours, patriot act, racism… have they gone yet? Have the Call of Duty fans heard enough and fucked off to buy it in droves yet? Right, serious question for the rest of you. Why are you here? Why are any of us here? Did you really expect to hear something interesting about the new fucking Call of Duty? It's like going to a baseball game and saying, yeah, all the hitting balls and running around a diamond is kind of boring, but maybe they'll do something different with it this time. I'm sick of talking about it. But now that you are here, expecting your Modern Warfare review, let's talk about Disco Elysium instead. That's right, stealth indie review. You just got lured into a shadow by a thrown object and contextual button neck snapped, motherfucker. You, the people watching sweary reviews about Call of Duty, are exactly the kind of people who need to hear about games like this, so listen up. In contrast to what you might think Disco Elysium is from the title, and what would that be, Yarts? Well anyway, it's an isometric RPG in the Planescape Torment sort of mould about a dishevelled detective in an alternative dystopian world who's been sent to investigate a murder. But the murder investigation isn't the plot so much as the quiet, fastidious housemate of the plot that stays in its room most of the time and sits in the corner reading its phone during parties. Solving the murder is just a thing on your to-do list, given no more emphasis than your intention to find a cigarette or scratch your ass. It's actually a story about a man who burned out, drank himself into oblivion, and must now rebuild his entire identity from scratch. You don't even know about the investigation at first, you don't find out your fucking name for the first couple of days. You start off in a trashed hotel room with no memory, having to pass skill checks to look at yourself in the mirror and get your tie down from a ceiling fan. So in brief, it's Planescape Torment meets Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And when I say skill checks, I don't mean rolling for strength or lockpicking. Where the fuck do you think you are, Gimli son of Gloin? Instead, you put points into rhetoric, conceptualization, savoir faire, and various other aspects of personality, all of which have their own distinct voice in your head, ensuring that the main character has as much dialogue with himself as he does with other characters. And two times shitloads is a lot of shitloads, buddy. Yes, I should stress that if if you're scared off by too much reading then you'd better move along and get back to shooting scary foreigners because Disco Elysium is wordier than an Ayn Rand monologue in a dumpster full of refrigerator poetry kits. Which is normally something that turns me off and my eyes were glazing over as I skimmed through the 14th political debate with a passing milkman, but this might have been my fault for trying to see every dialogue for completeness's sake. Disco Elysium is a game that requires a shift in attitude. My usual instinct is to focus squarely on the main goal because I've got deadlines to meet and puerile euphemisms to concoct, but this is a game for meandering and letting the pieces fall as they may. No following icons on mini-maps here, now it's all check out the building behind the crime scene, and there's like five buildings that that could mean so all you can do is bumble around. Sure you could ask the suspects direct questions about the murder and listen to them recite their carefully rehearsed statements, but it's more fun to ask them how they know that physical reality exists, or what it is that makes the stars turn on at night and watch them get completely thrown for a loop. So I eventually got into the spirit of things, spending my evenings drinking methylated spirits and arguing with road signs, in the game I mean, and found myself getting quite absorbed. It's a densely, fiercely intelligently written game, but the humour and weird tangents make it fascinatingly accessible. 
I won't call it my game of the year. There's a lot that niggles me. The isometric world is very confusingly laid out and only becomes more of a slog to navigate as it expands. The way different clothing items affect your stats drags me back down to video game land. When I find I can pause the conversation when I see a skill check coming up, put on a Hawaiian shirt, Wellington boots and a coolie hat, and maximise my stat bonus. But these niggles are pointless because Disco Elysium is a bona fide work of art that elevates the medium of video games. No, it's not for everyone, but making games as broad as possible has long been the major part of the fucking problem. The reason why following mainstream releases is like watching a sausage making machine filling condoms with glue. Speaking of which, better get back on topic in case any Call of Duty fans decided to skip to the end. Ooh, pick up that grenade, ratatat ratatat, strawberry jam on the glasses, Bay of Pigs, Iran Condra, 70% on Metacritic, etc, etc, stick it up your fucking bum, Activision. Now I'm not one to nitpick unless it's before 9pm and I'm capable of breathing in and out, but I'm concerned about the increasing dishonesty in high-level game releases. Look at this, the first Luigi's Mansion on the GameCube was about a mansion over which Luigi could reasonably claim ownership. Luigi's Mansion. Perfect title. Luigi's Mansion 2 was still about mansions, they weren't strictly Luigi's, but he at least had more claim to them than Tom Clancy had over the last Ghost Recon game, but now in Luigi's Mansion 3, Luigi doesn't own it and it's not even a fucking mansion, it's a high-rise hotel. A mansion is a residence, no one permanently resides in a luxury hotel except Russian oligarchs and former child stars with no financial savvy. Be careful, Nintendo little white lies mount up and you start believing your own bullshit, saying things like there are people who want to play Overwatch on the Switch. Anyway, welcome to still waiting on my copy of Death Stranding week. No, that's the wrong attitude. After all, I liked Luigi's Mansion too. It combined three of my favourite things in life. Luigi, nozzles, and sucking. And now I can have all of that on something other than a 3DS that has a screen larger than Callista Flockhart's left buttock. It's almost impressive the way Nintendo franchises stubbornly stick to the same plot, game in, game out. At least there's some stability in this crazy world, and we can take comfort knowing that Bowser will still be kidnapping Princess Peach even after civilization collapses and Nintendo's next console is a cardboard box with some finger puppets in it, but it does paint a sorry picture of pattern recognition skills among Mushroom Kingdom residents. Luigi gets anonymously invited to an isolated luxury residence and doesn't immediately twig that King Boo wants to put him in a painting, as was the case the last two times this happened. No, he merrily shows up with his pussy patrol, three toads, his brother Mario, and that girl Mario seems to like but Luigi doesn't really know how to act around, and he's pretty sure she drank his last Stella but he didn't bring it up and now he's just quietly stewing in passive-aggressive resentment because he's afraid of seeming uptight. Shortly, stone the crows! Turns out the hotel's haunted and Luigi must rescue everyone else by systematically ascending the tower with his nozzle hanging out so he can suck off all the ghosts, gibbering with Italian-accented fear the whole way. Why? By this point he's sucked off more ghosts than your mum at a Call of Duty fan convention. And it's not like they're much of a threat to him, since they've apparently been informed that there's a casting director in the audience and they have to milk the fuck out of their performance before they can even try to attack. Plus, one of Luigi's new abilities is that he can pound ghosts into the floor while he's sucking them off, and while the direction he pounds them in you don't so much control as offer casual suggestions for, you can fairly reliably pound any ghost standing behind you, and this cancels out just about the only way standard ghosts have of threatening you, creeping up and taking you in the rear while you're busy sucking off their friends. Besides that, only two other things threaten Luigi, new traps and boss monsters in the two minutes before you figure out which of your four or five nozzle settings is the one you're supposed to be using this time, and Luigi's chronic inability to keep a firm grip on important objects, just as the game is wondering if it needs to pad the current level out by 20 or 30 minutes. Have you considered taking off the white gloves, Luigi? I mean, what's with those anyway? You Princess Peach's sommelier now. See, the goal of each floor is to find the elevator button for the next floor, and more often than not Luigi finds it, then gets spooked by the boss of the floor and drops it again. If only he had some kind of high-powered suction device close to hand to avoid situations like this, but whatever, you have to introduce the boss somehow. But then on one level, I suck off the boss, get the button back to the elevator, and a fucking cat steals it, and I'm obliged to backtrack through the level and the previous one looking for where the cat hid, so it can run off and hide somewhere else. This continues until the game's invisible let's fuck the player about meter is filled and the cat arbitrarily fights you instead of hiding again. What was that, Yahtzee? I said this whole cat business feels like arbitrarily fucking the player about to pad out the runtime, Nintendo. Well, we can't have that. I know, let's have it happen a second time. 
time, changing nothing. That way it will be recurringly fucking the player about. Luigi's Mansion 3's problem is that it has simultaneously too many and not enough ideas. Smug look to camera, launch into explanation. There are 15 floors that each have a unique boss fight, which sounds like a lot, but they're all a bit pokey. Some of them are just boss fight, three feet of corridor and a vending machine. So some of these unique bosses come and go so quickly it's almost a waste of creativity. But meanwhile, on the gameplay side of things, all of Luigi's mechanics are unlocked by about level 3, and the gameplay doesn't evolve at all after that. It's always just going through the same motions. Suck, blow, flashlight, UV light, plunger, do that weird farty bounce thing, and if all else fails, spawn Luigi's doppelganger and spit roast the situation from both ends. Then about halfway through, a scrotum of possibility gets dangled before our eyes in the form of a vacuum cleaner upgrade, which we have to backtrack through a previous level to get, natch, but after that particular round of arbitrary fucking about, turns out it's an upgrade you use precisely once, in one room, to open one door. Why didn't you just make it a fucking key hunt? Oh, but we already have so many key hunts, Yahtzee, we'd hate people to think we're one note. Some RPG mechanics wouldn't have gone amiss, some power upgrades for the vacuum, or perhaps some unicorn stickers to put on the backpack. You know, give us something to spend all this fucking money on. If you're wondering why everyone in this hotel is dead and a ghost, it might be because the builders used sacks of money and gold instead of things like plumbing and wall insulation. You are constantly showered with cash as you systematically hoover up the furniture. The game is like an incredibly socially awkward billionaire. Whenever it's not sure how to respond to your interactions, it flings money and hopes you go away. Oh, you figured out how to pull a painting off the wall? Here's $17,000 in used bills. Sucking up money is closer to the primary gameplay loop than sucking off ghosts, so why isn't there anything to fucking spend it on? Tell a lie, you can buy extra lives or maps to hidden collectibles that only show you the room they're in and most levels have small numbers of rooms so you could just be systematic and not need them at all. And what do you get from finding all the hidden collectibles, you ask? A thing pops up saying you found all the hidden collectibles. And then I guess you print it off for your mum to stick to the fridge. I wouldn't say I hated Luigi's Mansion 3, it just felt kind of routine and kind of hollow, and I'll probably never think about it again unless the power goes down and I really need a wank. So what you're saying, Yahtzee, is that this game about clearing rooms with a vacuum cleaner felt like a bit of a chore. Well, I've got bugger all else for the closing gag. I was watching a digital Norman Reedus piss into a toilet, and when the toilet presented me a new piss grenade to throw at ghosts during my next hiking trip, I thought the piss looked a bit dark and orange, which in reality would be a sign of dehydration. I wondered if the game darkens Norman Reedus's piss if he doesn't hydrate often enough. I then further wondered if there was any game developer on this planet who could leave me genuinely uncertain as to whether or not their game has a year-end coloration algorithm besides Hideo Kojima. Perhaps that alone is what makes him worth celebrating, even if his new game is more weird and boring than getting cornered by a caffeinated anime fan who wants to talk about his crossover fanfic between between Attack on Titan and Last of the Summer Wine. It's funny how Death Stranding can be simultaneously very weird and very boring. Kojima is a man of contrasts, I had no idea what to expect from Death Stranding, but at the same time there was a lot that I could predict. I knew it was going to be very polished, with an eye for detail, overwritten with a lot of grandiose if emotionally awkward storytelling, and it would swiftly get very creepy every time a woman came on screen. I think I've nailed the running theme between Kojima's female characters, they all have perfect beautiful faces, but something has made the rest of their bodies horribly fucked up in some way. Like Kojima's ideal woman is a mannequin head on top of a woman-shaped pile of expired dog food. Damn, I wish he had made that Silent Hill game, it would have given me the most ambivalent erection of my life. Anyway, the premise of Death Stranding is that an apocalyptic event has blurred the world of the living and the dead. America is swarming with angry ghosts and the destruction of the country's infrastructure has made it impossible to stockpile the power pills necessary for Pac-Man to eat them all. The population is holed up in isolated bunkers and couriers are now the only line of communication between them, one of whom is our hero, Sam Porter Bridges, who carries around a magic baby that allows him to see the angry ghosts, and has some condition that means angry ghosts hate the taste of his piss. Oh yeah, and every now and again a magic rain that causes things to prematurely age falls from the sky. Don't you all feel silly I spent all that time stressing over nuclear holocaust? The lore and backstory behind the setting Hideo Kojima will happily deliver if you let him and don't have a ball gag close to hand, but let's focus on what's actually relevant to the gameplay. To wit, you deliver things to places, angry ghosts try to stop you, and you fling your piss at them. Death Stranding can stand alongside Postal 2 and Okami in the criminally underpopulated subgenre Games with a Dedicated Urinate button, but at its core it's a hiking simulator. You strap the package to be delivered and as much equipment as you think you'll need to your body, and then, looking for all the world like an astronaut on moving 
day, you have to figure out how you're going to totter your way through two miles of rocky terrain, over three rivers and up the side of an abandoned Ikea to the package's destination. And the level of detail in the carrying stuff physics is where the core gameplay lands. You have to make sure the load is properly balanced, because otherwise you might topple over while descending a slope, damage the goods and end up lying on your back kicking your legs, like the baby you currently have immersed in the jar of cloudy apple juice strapped to your nipples. These are the brief stimulating moments of action and drama in between vast swathes of holding down forwards and waiting. That's probably why people have been down on Death Stranding. It employs a core gameplay loop other than generic combat or stealth, and isn't a non-stop rollercoaster ride of noise and sparkly objects to distract us from the nightmare web of uncertainty and disenfranchisement that is our lives. But I kinda like its meditative quality. Isolation is a very deliberate theme, even when Sam is in a city there's never anyone else around, and he only interacts with the hologram at the front door who says, oh yeah, this small box of medicine will be a big help for all these other people that definitely live here. And he might be sitting alone in the bunker rubbing insulin into his nipples for all we know. But the lengthy trudges through majestic terrain can be uniquely serene and contemplative, although obviously I had my podcasts on the whole way, the same way I play games like Elite Dangerous or Euro Truck Simulator, when I need to zone out for an afternoon and the liquor store's closed. I think Hideo 45-minute codec conversation Kojima Mr. Trick here, he could have included a boring game and a podcast in one convenient package, but no. The usual excessive dialogue is mostly relegated to cutscenes, or while you're forced to stand perfectly still in front of a hologram phone picking Norman Reedus's digital underpants out of his bum crack. Not that Death Stranding doesn't have enemies or combat, obviously it has the ghosts that are pissy in every sense of the word, but there are also the prerequisite open world bandit camps, and the game supplies you with plenty of weapons, it's just there's absolutely no incentive to not run away or avoid them altogether. You can't carry much ammo, the enemy aren't very good at chasing you, and even though they drop loot, one more briefcase might be the straw that breaks Norman Reedus's back, which makes it all the more of a lurch whenever we get locked into a boss fight during the course of the plot. It's odd when a game that's mostly been based around encouraging players to find their own way to transport a corpse across two square miles of the surface of Mars, suddenly won't let you press on until you've shown you can fling a blood grenade at an octopus 19 times, or shoot Mads Mikkelsen. These aren't the skills you've been training me in, Hideo Kojima. I'm a hiker postman. My skills are delivering stuff and complaining that my ladder's too short. That mission in the mountains where I had an hour's time limit to fetch medical supplies felt more like a boss fight that would fit this gameplay core, but by then I'd unlocked the ability to build zip lines, which are fucking broken, frankly. Turned an hour's trudge through hostile mountainous terrain into a five-minute Disneyland ride. Death Stranding is like an anxious postgraduate at the optician because it desperately needs to focus on something. But if you have enough podcasts and or head injuries to sustain you through the slow periods, then you might find it an interesting enough alternative to the usual AAA tribe, or AAA. Kojima's story writing always comes across like he's only ever experienced human emotion from the far side of a thick layer of protective glass, but maybe we need someone like Kojima to shake us out of old set-in notions about gameplay loops, or boss fights, or the interface needing to not suck hairy Swedish meatballs. The one ghost I can't hurl my piss at is the spectre of having to hold down buttons to confirm things. If I go into my inventory, I have to do it like four times to so much as adjust my bow tie. Sure, any game that tries to balance combat, stealth, hiking, package transport, and urination is going to be a controller mapping nightmare, but there had to be a more efficient way to calm down a jar full of baby than four different button presses plus waving the controller around like you're inventing a new sign language word for disinterested hand job. Somewhere along the line, the reaction to AAA hype drifted from ooh, I'm excited for this, to ooh, it's not immediately obvious how they're going to fuck this one up, such was the case with Jedi Fallen Order. EA brings out a new Star Wars game, and after Battlefront 2, I cringe like an abused dog expecting another newspaper across the snout, because I expect them to charge micropayments for Yoda's every last misarranged sentence. But no, for once AAA is using its powers for good. By powers I mean enormous wealth, but hey, it's never made a difference to Batman. They made a good old-fashioned single-player action adventure cobbled together from good ideas cribbed from other single-player action adventures that people seem to like, and the result is a perfectly solid, if somewhat unoriginal game that people seem to like that they barely even tried to wring out for maximum cash. Although I'm sure the only reason EA were willing to take the risk is because it's Star Wars. It could never have turned a profit otherwise, since publishers continue to insist it's standard practice that AAA games be developed on solid gold desks, with computers liquid-cooled by the semen of prize-winning stallions. The story of Jedi Fallen Orlan concerns Cal Kestis, hitherto unknown non-Luke Skywalker human Jedi-type fellow and radioactive 
Ginge, not to be confused with Kyle Katarn, non-Luke Skywalker human Jedi-type fellow from the Dark Forces games amongst others. Thus Disney's sinister scheme is laid bare, scrap the Star Wars expanded universe then replace it with something exactly like it but just distinct enough that they can claim ownership, thus successfully achieving what the evil Empire never could, if only Palpatine had thought to buy out the Jedi's parent companies instead of purging them. Anyway, Cal is forced to come out of hiding and embark upon an odyssey across the galaxy to find an archive of potential future Jedis that might spell the rebirth of the Jedi Order. Although since this game takes place between episodes 3 and 4 we know right up front that things aren't going to work out like that. Since episode 4 was called A New Hope, not another hope to add to the pile, Cal, who seems to have a problem with his jaw that makes it constantly jut forwards like he's trying to bite his own nose off, bears a number of suspicious parallels with other Star Wars protagonists. Humble starting point, secret force powers, has a robot pal who talks like Stephen Hawking learning to whistle, but Luke Skywalker was always a direct copy-paste of the standard heroic monomyth, so when I imply that Cal is cribbing him off what I mean is that all the characters and story arcs in this game are tired and obvious tropes. The haunted mentor, the roguish captain with a heart of gold, we've even got our very own custom Darth Vader, a Lady Vader no less, Darth Lader, who has the very own identity reveal twist that for the record I called about two hours beforehand. Nothing wrong with falling back on hero with a thousand faces as long as we have some decent sword fights, Yahtzee, if you say so, but sometimes it feels like fallen hors d'oeuvre is trying to hit the checkpoints on the story arcs without putting in the legwork, if you see what I mean. Like when our mentor sits us down mid-fast travel for some character building and goes, I know you don't trust me anymore, and I'm like, I don't? News to me. I've just been going up and down zip lines for the last two hours. And then there's the bit on the fourth planet where we're literally outside the boss fight and the game slams the door in our face and says, where do you think you're going? You have to be at your lowest emotional point before the final act. Kapow, you are now sad. Go to this whole other fucking planet for a vision quest and don't come back till you've had an epiphany, asshole. As for gameplay, it has been seduced by the dark side of the souls. So you know the drill, exploration, difficult combat, enemies respawn when you use checkpoints, and they don't even try to explain why that happens in context. I guess while we're napping, the Empire just dispatches more soldiers to stand exactly where the previous ones were to try and figure out what went wrong with the faultless logic of a true middle manager. I went for the second highest of the four difficulty settings to find the balance between a dark salty level of challenge and actually getting through the fucking thing over the weekend, and can report that it felt perfectly satisfactory. Fighting some of the melee enemies can be frustrating when they keep blocking your attacks, not because of the physics of the situation but because nuh-uh, everything proves shield, but two realisations eventually made the combat click, first that the focus is on blocking and parrying rather than dodging, and secondly you're a fucking space wizard, use space magic to cheat. Force push does a lot to counteract everything proof shields, and if you get bored of parrying standard enemies, a force pull and a stab will one-shot most of them. Probably not a strictly light side of the force sort of technique, making someone helpless and flash searing their pancreas, but fuck it, the game doesn't judge. In fact, besides a couple of moments where Cal I play Kaplunk with human torsos, Kestis has the balls to call out other people for doing dark sidey things, the whole light side dark side thing isn't really present as a theme. Cal doesn't come across as either noble or tempted by evil, he mostly comes across like a cardboard box with an underbite. I struggle to think of any theme the plot could be said to have. I wonder if this is related to the increasing AAA aversion to taking political stances for maximum broad appeal. We'd hate to alienate all the potential buyers who think nailing helpless people to notice boards is the tops. Anyway, the gameplay also features climbing traversal in the Prince of Uncharted Persia zone, which is executed well enough I can't even nitpick, whereas the 3D map and exploration reminds me pleasantly of Metroid Prime. It's got something Dark Souls has always needed, a device that clearly indicates what is and is not an exit from the room so I don't miss out on entire zones because I forgot to check behind a decorative hedge. You get abilities that open new areas as you go along, Metroidvania style, but it's the bad Metroidvania thing where the different zones don't interconnect, so you rarely have a chance to pass through old areas picking up newly accessible items on your way to the next point in the critical path. You have to go out of your way to collect optional items, and then 90% of them turn out to just be fucking cosmetics for your lightsaber. Oh, praise the bloated neck folds of George Lucas, I can replace the bit on my lightsaber that looks like a harmonica with another bit that looks like a duck. Never mind that in general gameplay it's about three pixels across and mostly concealed by Cal's fat sweaty mitts. This is my motivation to engage with the optional exploring, is it, Jedi Fallen Order? What's wrong with a nice concept art gallery? Or unlockable heart pattern boxer shorts costume. So that covers my main gripes, but in my trademark backhanded freewheeling infuriatingly hard to pin down editorial style, I'm now going to recommend Jedi Border Collie. It hasn't an original 
bone in its body, but it has mashed together several ideas from prior classics in a technically original combination and produced the expected result of a perfectly fine game. Looks nice, plays nice, a story like stale loaf of wonder bread on a silver platter, but that's about as good as AAA can manage these days. Good storytelling, after all, requires a soul, not the rotting corpse of a canary in a tiny cage made of share certificates. Shenmue is a franchise beginning on the Sega Dreamcast with a cult following that I am fairly certain exists as an elaborate, decade-spanning practical joke, and after this review, if you choose to buy Shenmue 3, I will group you alongside someone who continues to try to sniff a clown's lapel flower after the third squirt of water to the face. Come on now, guys, I mean, this used to be funny, back when we were all pretending that Shenmue was a pioneering classic of interactive narrative, and that we were all totally disappointed that it didn't get a third installment back in the day, but now the joke's getting cruel. I know the modern world has been almost totally infected by the fog of irony that the internet generates the way a Renaissance-era European port city generates the Black Death, but let's at least try to put that aside. Straight talk only, okay? Shenmue is and always was a terrible, terrible game, and I refuse to accept that any of you seriously believe otherwise. And if I sound particularly mad about it, it's because I literally just got too angry to keep playing and I'm making sure to write this down now before I encounter a small animal and have to use up all this useful energy kicking it to death. I wonder if the Shenmue fanbase only exists because of its close ties to the Dreamcast. Like all less than successful retro consoles, there will always be a base of dedicated fans complaining to this day that it would have been so much more competitive if only it had had the games. Yes, probably, and I could have been an Olympic sprinter if only my legs weren't tiny malformed stumps jutting from my pelvis like the last pair of wings in the KFC bargain bucket. So the Dreamcast fans will probably appreciate Shenmue 3 because it still looks like it belongs on the Dreamcast. If anything, a higher resolution has only further emphasised the way all the characters look and act like Captain Scarlet puppets. Anyway, the story so far. Ryu Hazuki, a man with a permanent band-aid on his face that covers up the knot's hole, giving away that he is made entirely out of wood, has sworn revenge on his father's murderer and has chosen to pursue it by the principle of brownie in motion, leaving his house and then waiting for the natural ebb and flow of random particles to push him to his destiny. And by this crushingly long process, he has now arrived at a rural province of China to learn the truth behind the ancient mirrors that his father was killed for. The creator of Shenmue, Yu Suzuki, famously doesn't play video games in spite of the fact that he makes them for a living, and by Christ does it show. So before I started Shenmue 3, I appreciated Shenmue almost as a piece of outsider art, which is essential in any medium for getting us to think beyond the standard established methods and routines. Is it really necessary to use oil paints on a canvas when we could use, say, ground-up teeth mixed with pus? The game boots up and I'm greeted with a beautiful title screen that some artist must have been very proud of, and then the words PRESS START appear across it in massive plain white aerial font, and then you press start, as instructed, and the fucking title menu is in plain impact. See, these are the little things that a person might pick up from actually playing a video game now and then, that doing your title menus with overused default fonts make them look like they were made in Windows Movie Maker. Ah, but this is my point about outsider art, isn't it? It's because I'm so mired in the establishment that I'm getting sniffy about the fucking font choice of all things. I need games like Shenmue to remind me of what's important and bring me back up to real street, man. Unfortunately, one of the things that is actually important in video games is that they not bore the tits off me. It doesn't take long for Shenmue to settle into what might as well be its core gameplay loop, wandering around bugging random passers-by about whatever tangent Ryo's currently indelibly focused on, like a cat to a laser pointer. He brought up his obsessive quest for revenge against his father's murderer maybe once that I can recall, and everything else was related to looking for the missing father of the main female character, this girl who got teased as important right from the beginning of Shenmue 1, and with whom Ryo has all the chemistry of two unacquainted co-workers in a malfunctioning lift. Conversations in Shenmue are always a fucking surreal experience. As before, every line sounds like it was recorded in a vacuum, and most of the voice actors massively overact, with the significant exception of Ryo Hazuki himself, who needs a few hours work on a lathe just to raise his eyebrows. The end result is that most conversations sound like two poorly trained undercover police officers trying to sound nonchalant while keeping one eye on a suspected drug deal. Hello, Mr. Hazuki. Hello. Do you know where to find inexpensive prostitutes? 
Hmm, I think you can find some man- Alright, he took the money, go, go, go! Let me talk you through the process that led to me descending the slopes of Mount Ragequid. After considerable bumbling, the plot led eventually to the inevitable gang of local scoundrels, which meant I was going to have to deal with the fucking combat. And the combat in Shenmue is like a wasp locked in your bathroom. You can get through most of the day without having to worry about it, but you're gonna have to face it eventually if you ever hope to defecate with peace of mind. And like a wasp, it's best dealt with by flailing madly at the controls. So I get to a plot mandatory fight with the gang leader, and naturally he hydrates his lawn with Ryo Hazuki's tear ducts, because Shenmue 3 up to this point had mostly been picking flowers and humouring old people. But not to worry, because one of the old people I can humour has a secret martial arts technique they will teach me if I beat up all the monks in the local dojo and bring him expensive presents. And there is nothing in Shenmue that cannot be achieved as long as you're willing to grind horrible mini-games. Beating up all the monks wasn't too hard, after I spent several days grinding up my defence and attack stats by repeatedly punching a tree, practising each combo a hundred times, and having Ryo stand like he's about to do squats and then mash a button to make him very emphatically not do squats. Making money was the real pain in the arse. I thought I'd figured it out. Go to the fortune teller, ask which turtle's gonna win the turtle race and bet the farm on it, although you still have to mash like a bastard to sing songs of encouragement. Trust me, it sounds a lot more interesting than it is. This worked three times in a row, but then on the fourth, I mashed hard enough to spark a very awkward conversation with my orthopaedic specialist and lost everything. Fuck me, at least Leisure Suit Larry gave you a quick save. Ended up having to grind up the money chopping wood, which pays worse than giving hand jobs to church mice, but finally I did it. I ground up enough time in annoying minigames to learn the secret technique, and then I marched confidently up to the gang leader who'd been courteous enough not to move, and he proceeded to hydrate his lawn with Ryo Hazuki's tear ducts again. And that's where I said, fuck it. Whatever it is you want from me, Shenmue 3, I've decided you can't have it, as it's probably one of the few remaining things holding back the massacre. Oh, Shenmue fans, do remember to post lots of comments advising me on what I should have done. I'm going to need a lot of kindling to start the bonfire. The process of choosing games to review here at Zero Punctuation involves several factors, the existing profile of the game, whether or not I got through it before the edibles kicked in, etc, but there are many games that failed to meet the cut just because I didn't have much to say. Well, since we're coming up on the end of the year, I thought gathering a whole bunch of such games from 2019 into one video and swearing at them en masse would be both efficient and fun. Cunningly, this means they will all magically become eligible for the year-end Best Worst and Blandest awards. Not that this year's Blandest Games list needed much fucking padding. The Surge 2. Deck 13 Sci-Fi Dark Souls with Industrial Lifting Equipment returns, with better parrying mechanics and not so much cripple torture porn, finally raising the series to the dizzy heights of basically okay. I think I'm already seeing the inherent issue with this video's premise, most games that I didn't feel like reviewing when they came out were just fine. It's hard to get your bile churning about something that's fine, but I'll give it a go. Ugh, The Surge 2, your level design is so fucking mildly confusing it makes me want to vomit diarrhea out of my nose. And oh god, if I have to fight another fucking generic dude with misplaced IKEA parts glued to their armpits, I'm going to... Uh, shit earwax out of my piss hole. Code vein. Jedi Fallen Order being a Souls-like probably indicates that Souls-likes are officially overdone. I mean, that's like when your dad starts getting into your new favourite band. Code Vein is another Souls-like, with combat that's generally fine and boring level design, but it has one thing that makes it notable, it's the most anime game I've ever played. This is a game where the character customizer has 90 billion hairdos and two noses. A game where one of the facilities in your home base is a hot spring, and if you get in it, female characters will show up in skimpy towels. This is a thing that happens. It built a fanservice Hot Springs episode into its fucking mechanics, and after the second main boss in a row was a giant demonic stripper with their juicy jugs flapping about, I made the decision to stop playing, before my Amazon recommendations became too embarrassing. Blasphemous. Yeah, let's get all the fucking Souls-likes out of the way first. Blasphemous is another attempt at 2D Souls-liking with a striking theme. The premise is that all of the Catholic guilt in medieval Europe has somehow manifested physically, and the result is about what you'd expect. Blimey, if you thought Dark Souls was grim, this is Dark Souls getting dragged off by the Cenobites to listen to Norwegian black metal for eternity. But then the platforming feels like something from a 16-bit game about a furry animal with a cool attitude, complete with collapsing and returning ledges, and pipes that regularly drip snot, and the whole thing starts to feel a bit silly. Untitled Goose Game. 
Oh, we love our fucking memes, don't we? Can't just enjoy a charming little game about a rascally goose getting up to Beano Comics level mischief. No, we haven't enjoyed it properly until we've put it next to a picture of an angry cat and confused our grandparents with it on social media. It remains impossible to predict what does and does not have meme appeal. It's an amusing enough little game, but I have now established to my satisfaction what it looks like when the old man falls on his bum, and frankly I see no need to revisit it. Not exactly a cultural touchstone. Not yet, anyway. Maybe one more photoshop of a goose standing next to Hitler will make all the difference. Terminator Resistance Another game made awkward to talk about by its resounding fineness, and it's a shame because I sought it out really thinking it would suck. I mean, come on! A licensed Terminator game by a sub-mid-range developer previously best known for games like Florist Shop for the Nintendo DS and 101 Pony Pets 3D? That's not a recipe for disaster, that's the fucking anarchist's cookbook, but no, it's a generic grey apocalyptic shooter with RPG elements and it just about manages. I heard some people say it was surprisingly good, and I suppose it is a bit surprising that pressing shoot makes your gun shoot rather than whittle on your shoes. Final score, fine out of ten. Moons of Madness. From the opposite end of the scale, something that I thought would be good but was actually just fine. A sci-fi Lovecraftian survival horror adventure about a dude going insane on Mars. I mean, going insane in, say, Sacramento takes some doing, but Mars, isolated, mysterious, alien, should have been a slam dunk. But while it's nicely paced at the start, it loses its way by the end with too many weird tangential flashbacks and conspiracies. Also, it feels oddly small-scale for a Lovecrafty game set on another planet. I think there are times when it makes sense to be less coy with your giant monsters, and this was one of them. The other is Gonzo Porn. Sniper Ghost Warrior Contracts After Sniper Ghost Warrior 3 was an embarrassing dribble in the great pissing contest of life, the solution for fixing it was apparently to nick some ideas from the Hitman series, including a lot of the visual design and one of the subtitles. So the foot is off the story pedal and now it's just here's an enclosed map, here's the person whose face needs a new nostril, away you go. And it is an improvement, but lacking quick saves it suffers all the more from Hitman's problem with Cock-Up Cascade. I lost interest in this one because after I spent 20 minutes sniping my way through a field of baddies I stepped out thinking it was finally safe and the game went LOOK OUT! Enemy sniper! Where? Behind that pixel! Which pixel? Too late, you're dead. Start again. John Wick Hex. Being designed by Mike Bithell, he of your Thomas was alone, gave this one enough pedigree to rise out of the movie tie-in Plague Pit, and while it is quite innovative with its vaguely super-hot-esque pause between each action turn-based except not really gunfights, the stiff hexadecimal movement means when you watch the recap at the end of each level it looks less like an exciting action movie gunfight than the movements of a confused Roomba with a highly interpretive idea of waste management. Oh, hexadecimal. Hex. I just got that. Out to Wilds. The funny thing about Outer Wilds is that, in theory, I really like it. It's a freeform narrative about a space explorer in a Groundhog Day time loop who must roam the star system trying to figure out why the universe keeps exploding after 20 minutes, full of discovery and neat concepts, but every time I try to play through it, I get bored. It very deliberately gives you no direction on where to go, and that's a double-ended dildo. It's nice when you're roaming the skies with a song in your heart, it's less nice when you're lost in an underground labyrinth trying to find that fucking outpost you found two loops ago but couldn't finish exploring because you misfired your jetpack, fell, broke both your legs and then the sun exploded. It's a game that can be simultaneously very chilled out and very demoralising. Like going bankrupt because you blew all your money on BBC nature documentaries. Borderlands 3 Oh yeah, I've got tons of things to say about Borderlands 3. Wait there, and I'll go get them.
Well, 2019's been a pretty poor showing for games, but there might still be one or two gold teeth floating around its piss-sodden ashes, so let's do one more indie double bill before 2020. And the running theme for these two games is games that are blatantly another game and cannot be asked to pretend otherwise. Starting with Phoenix Point, which I could call a hybrid strategy game pairing turn-based tactical squad combat with global exploration and base management, but I'm a busy man with a lot of ashes to urinate on, so let's just go with XCOM clone. Importantly though, it comes to us from the original creator of XCOM, Julian Gollop, who didn't work on the remake XCOM or XCOM 2, so now with the power of crowdfunding, Gollop can take the bloodstained Mighty Number no. 9 route to re-establish his original vision for the franchise, which it turns out ends up looking an awful lot like XCOM 2. In fact, if you have your own quantity of ashes that urgently need whittling on and can't stick around, I would summarise Phoenix Point as XCOM 2 but more complicated. Now more features and more complexity might appeal to you smarmy strategy game liking, university educated Warhammer enthusiasts, but us down-home regular science fiction novelists can be left a bit cold by it. In fact, it was the relative simplicity of the XCOM remake that gave it its appeal for generally non-strategy game playing me. Here come the alien monsters who want to kill all us humans, kill all the alien monsters. Phoenix Point has to go around the houses a bit to get to kill all the monsters, the human race threw one too many Capri Suns into the landfill and the Enviro-Holocaust happened, a bunch of people went paddling and came back as mutant crab monsters, you're part of a secret peacekeeping organisation that someone put in place ages ago because they ate too much sushi one day and had a prophetic vision of the crab monsters, now kill all the crab monsters. But do so while staying mindful of the three warring human factions who now run the world, some of whom are in on killing the crab monsters, but some of whom think mutations are the tops and we need to learn to coexist with the crab monsters hand in pincer. So now as well as the tactical missions and the globe exploring and the resource management, you have to worry about if your attitude to traditional marriage is offending the lobster fuckers. And then I saw a negative user review of Phoenix Point complaining about the lack of moustache variety in the soldier customization, and I wonder if Phoenix Point's complexity is missing the seafood restaurant for the California rolls, so to speak. I feel there are many features I wouldn't have missed if they'd left them out, like the Vats-esque targeting of specific body parts. I only ever want to do the thing that makes enough of an enemy's health go away that they stop trying to blow my best sniper's nads off, and whether or not I used body part targeting didn't seem to make much difference in that. Although it was instrumental in helping me figure out which bit of the visually disastrous seafood platter was the head and which the arse, I look at the various blurbs surrounding Phoenix Point and I see a lot of talk about the complex procedurally generated world and faction layout and the enemy evolution system that will make standard enemies spontaneously grow a third arse if you prove to be particularly afraid of arses, etc. And I wonder how much all the big talk about behind the scenes guff matters when weighed against my initial experience of the game, that is, I flew around Africa for a while and got into 8 or 9 protect the resources combat missions that all seem to be taking place in the exact same junkyard. Still, you probably already know if you're the sort of person who will buy Phoenix Point, you like complex strategy to the point of getting weirdly defensive about it, and you're not one of those people who shuns Epic Store exclusives because you've picked that as the arbitrary bridge too far for an industry that has been mired for years in anti-consumer practice so greasy that coin-up arcade game designers feel an urgent need to shower. So our second game this week is Bug Fables by Moonsprout Games, which is Paper Mario. There's no being coy about this one, it's a new game in the games exactly like Paper Mario genre. The main appreciable difference is that you're a party of insects adventuring in an insect kingdom. Ah, so would you say it's Paper Mario crossed with Hollow Knight, Yahtzee? No, I'd say it's Paper Mario crossed with Paper Mario. Same mix of puzzle platforming and turn-based combat where you press timed buttons to do the combat slightly more so. Same cartoony world, same menus, same badge system, same cooking system. It even does that thing where the characters spin on their axes to turn around like they're paper cutouts, even though they're not supposed to be two-dimensional in this context, unless they all recently escaped from a mad entomologist's book of pressings. But I'm sure pointing out the bug fables is Paper Mario would prompt the developer to say, yes, we know, that was the idea. The last official Paper Marios were a pair of dehydrated shitballs rolling out of Nintendo's loose, uninterested anus, so we made a game just like one of the early good Paper Marios to slide craftily into the niche left behind like a sneaky finger up the nostril of secret treasures. Which is fair enough, but an indie game attempting to evoke Nintendo at its prime had better be pretty fucking confident in itself. Paper Mario 2 might look simplistic, but there are boatloads of little skillful touches you would only notice if they weren't there, and I certainly noticed them in Bug Fables. A lot of the peas and carrots of the ground level gameplay show some iffy design. Some of the combat minigames are a bit wonky. Press left and right to build up your power bar, so I rub that analog stick back and forth like a winning scratch guard with an engorged clitoris, and somehow it still doesn't take. And then there's puzzle solving. One of your characters can turn water drops into ice blocks, but can only do it in the very 
brief moment before the water drop hits the ground, so it's like playing fucking whack-a-mole, and then one of your other characters can hit the ice block around, but if you're trying to get it into a specific spot it's like playing golf with a bent snow shovel and a box ottoman. But what makes Bug Fables fail to hit that engagement button is that it's just not that visually appealing. Here's a good time to bring up Hollow Knight again, because Hollow Knight somehow managed to give its characters a sense of emotion and visual personality, despite them all being insects with black empty eyes instead of relatable human expressions, and harsh chitinous bodies instead of hilarious slogan t-shirts. I think Hollow Knight managed it with animation, because Bug Fables doesn't have very much. That's another subtle thing Paper Mario was full of, little organic movements, even when standing still Mario's feet would pulsate like they were about to give birth to a brood of spiderlings. Bug Fables characters are generally static paper cutouts, and the onus is on us to determine which bit of their simplified insectile face is the mouth and whether or not it's giving us a friendly smile. Is it fair to diss Bug Fables for not being exactly like Paper Mario? Yes, because that's literally what it was setting out to do, but it is better than the fucking void that is the actual Paper Mario franchise these days, so if someone says to you, sorry you can't fuck pigs anymore, try this pencil case full of bacon, it's up to you if you're going to get offended or start looking into the best ways to launder grease out of your underpants.